Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Covered alcoholic. Hey, Audrey. Good morning. I'm from Austin, Texas, and this is Julie from Dallas, Texas. If we didn't get to meet you tonight, or last night, excuse me, welcome. Um, we're absolutely honored and delighted to be here um, and really kind of taken aback by the amount of effort and engagement and um, just wow what you guys have done to bring us out here. We're, we're absolutely honored. What we're going to do, the, the driving force of this workshop is called Sober for Keeps. So what we're looking at is what does it really look like for me to get set on a path that ensures long-term permanent sobriety, right? So that's going to be the goal, and that's what we're going to keep coming back to. So we're going to take you through the book. We're going to take you through all 12 steps we're going to look at as an as from the standpoint of going through the work and then also what it looks like to take other people through the work because that's kind of the question. If you if you want to stay sober for good and for all, you need to learn how to sponsor. You need to learn how to carry the message because that in and of itself is what takes you to people picking up 15, 20, 25, 50 years of sobriety and having healthy sobriety, good sobriety. So this is what we're going to do. So everybody's got a book, right? I'm going to make a big assumption and assume everybody's got a book. If you'll turn in your book um, to the title page that says Alcoholics Anonymous, should be a, a fairly blank page looking like this. I'm going to take you to the first promise and then we're going to roll into the step work. On that title page where it says Alcoholics Anonymous, it says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. If you don't have that underlined, get your pen out. Recovered, ED, past tense, which means I got well. I took some necessary action. I took some necessary steps. And the obsession to drink has been removed. That is, in fact, what that means. That's the first promise of the big book. I've got a note in my text um, from Cliff Bishop, and it says protect the integrity of this message. And so that's what we're here to do. And so we may ruffle a few feathers, and that's so okay. Um, but we're going to talk about the text and what this really looks like. So bear with us. What I want to get started talking about um, in step one this morning is knowing your truth. Um, there's been a lot of people that have sat in a lot of meetings and said, I'm Audrey, I'm an alcoholic, and, and don't have a clue what it means to be alcoholic. There's a lot of people in this world that are drinking too much and need to quit. That's pretty evident. But what does it mean to be an alcoholic, to suffer from a disease um, of the mind and the body? What does that really look like? So we're going to delve into what it means to know your truth. Um, so one thing I want to do is I'm going to take you into, um, into the doctor's opinion. Julie mentioned last night, if you haven't read the doctor's opinion, my goodness, this is the, the synopsis, this is the, the snapshot. Um, a couple pages in on XXVIII, Roman numeral 28, why they put Roman numerals in a book for drunks, I will never know, but, um, but they did. 
We're going to look at what Dr. Stoforth gives us. And he went out on a huge limb in that day and age. People weren't, weren't looking at alcoholism as a disease. They were looking at it as some sort of a behavioral you know, defect, a character. Um, and what he found through working with a number of us, is, and namely Bill Wilson, is that we suffer from a disease in the mind and the body. And he's going to go into detail. I'm not going to read the doctor's opinion to you, but I want to hit a couple highlights with you. On the top of that page, the top left-hand line should say craving for liquor. It says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. Um, And and what we're driving at is when it says we're powerless over alcohol, what does that really mean? So we want to get down to to the causes of it. I've got an allergy of the body. It says the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So what that looks like is... um, There's a couple of components to alcoholism. One is choice, the other is control. What we're talking about right now is control. Once I put it in, can I stop? No, I can't, but why? I need to understand what this is really about. So it's saying I've got an allergy of my body, which means that every time that liquor gets in this system, every time alcohol of any kind gets in the system, uh, my body begins to do something called a phenomenon, which means it couldn't be explained. Back in the day, they didn't understand why that was happening. They called it a phenomenon of craving, right? You ever been on the floor trying to shuffle to get the next one, right? Anybody have the experience of telling the bartender, you know what, I'm good, thanks, I don't need another? No, nobody in this room knows what that's about, right? Because our bodies, once I get one shot in, I'm going to have another and another and another, whether I want want to or not. That's the baffling feature of alcoholism, this need to stop, this desire to stop and not be able to put the uh, brakes on. Can't do it. Can't do it. So it says I've got this phenomenon of craving, um, and I have to ask myself the question, did I ever get enough? The answer is, is infinitely no for this alcoholic. I could never get enough in my system. Then it goes on to talk about never being able to use alcohol in any form at all. And guys, we've got to get real clear about that. You know, any form at all. Your body will not register alcohol as medicinal, right, just because it's in NyQuil, just because it's in a pain pill, just... It doesn't work that way. I've got to be really, really careful. Or recreational. Just because they poured some bourbon on top of a really yummy dessert, your your body won't know the difference. You're not trying to get loaded, but you will. And the problem is is that any form at all, it gets in this bloodstream, it will trip the phenomenon of craving, and I'll be at the liquor store that night with, with having zero intention to do so. So I see a lot of you guys relapsing around prescription pads. You've got to be careful. If it pours, read the label. Whose responsibility is this? Well, the doctor prescribed it, right. Did he know? No? Then that's on you. Right? I've got to be real, real careful and accept some responsibility for this stuff. And goes down to the bottom um, of that page. It says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Well, absolutely. Why else would you drink? Right? <laughs> I remember my mother said to me one time, I just thought you really, really liked the, the way that it tasted. I said, mother, would you drink a beer that had a cigarette butt floating in it? She said, God, no. I said, I will. If it comes to it, ladies, I'm telling you, I strain it out. I've got to have more. It doesn't matter. I'm not a gin drinker, never have been. It's the most disgusting. Ugh. You run out of what I'm drinking, I'm on it. Right? That's about an effect. This is not about a party. It's not about having fun. It's not about being social. It's about a need to get loaded. A need to. Once it starts, it's not going to stop. I've got an effect produced going on. So it says that sensation is so elusive. While I admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. That's a lot of big words to say this. The internal shift that happens when alcohol hits the back of my throat, the magic, the sensation where your shoulders drop and you go, 
oh, no matter what's going on out here in your external world, it just got right. It just got okay. That sensation is elusive, which means that I can't always catch it. It's like a delusion that I can step up. Anybody here throw darts in a bar? Right? I, yeah, I won't even get into that. But I remember stepping up to that line and being convinced I could hit the bullseye every single time. Now, early on, I could. Right. But as you get more loaded and more loaded, it starts. You're hitting the wall. You're hitting people. Right. But the delusion is I can hit that bullseye. It's the same thing. The obsession of my mind works in that very same manner. I'm convinced every time I pull up to the liquor store, every time I pull up to the bar, I can control it and enjoy it, that I can maintain it. That is a delusion that hadn't happened in years, but I'm setting it on fire every single day. Right? Elusive. It's like trying to catch a fish and hold on to it. it. You're not going to be able to, and it looks silly while you're trying to do it. Right? It's it's elusive, and it talks about it being injurious. This is this is a question of consequences. This is a question of things that happen as a direct result of my drinking. And this is where some people chart off the path and want to talk about unmanageability, being the drama and the consequences and the nonsense that happens in our lives. And I'm here to tell you, I know a lot of people that have drank too much in their lifetime, had a lot of consequences, had a lot of drama, and they stopped because of it. That's not unmanageability. That's about being too drunk, right, <laughs> and having some bad stuff happen, you know. And so what we're talking about is while I admit that there's injuries, I can't tell the truth from the false. You want to talk about unmanageability, that's it. My mind tells me, Audrey, you got this. Audrey, don't drink and drive, and you can manage this. Audrey, eat a little something beforehand, you won't get so loaded. Audrey, only take $15 to the bar. That's the delusion in my mind is that there's some avenue that I can come at this deal. Clearly, you need to stay away from bourbon. Go back to drinking beer. Anybody else done the beer experiment? That is a disaster waiting to happen. right? But I'm trying to control it and enjoy it, and the, the delusion in my mind is that I can do it that I can pull it off because early on in my drinking career, I could pseudo-control this thing. More often than not, I didn't, but I thought that I was. Right? The false is every time I put liquor or alcohol in any form in this body, it triggers the phenomenon of craving. I get loaded. Bad stuff happens more often than not. And this is what we're talking about, the insanity that precedes the first drink. It says to them their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Right. You ever watch those of you guys that have been around a minute? Watch some of the newcomers come in, and, and their stories are horrifying, and they're completely like, "Oh, this is my life. This is how it rolls." And and you had forgotten momentarily what that looked like. If we'd have come to you at seven and said, "Darling, here's how it's going to play out," right? you'd have said, "I don't think so. Surely not. I would never let it get that bad." Let's do this. Who's got an alcoholic in the family? Anybody? Did you ever look at people like that and say, man, if it ever got that bad, I'd quit. <laughs> then you surpass them, <laughs> right? Or you set those barriers for yourself. If I ever get, if my kids ever see me loaded and I scare them, I'll stop. If I ever get in trouble at work, it becomes an issue with my coworkers and my boss, I'll stop. If there's a legal problem, I'd never let it get to that point. And you begin to set these bars. And every time you bust your butt on them, you lower it a little bit more. Well, that really wasn't that big of a deal. And I, I wasn't loaded at work. I was just hungover, so it's, I'm going to let that one slide. Right? And you begin to make excuses and, and justifications for yourself before you don't know who you are anymore. Can't look myself in the mirror. That's my alcoholic life became the only normal one. Waking up saying I'll never do this again. By lunch I'm loaded or planning to get loaded. Set it all in motion. The next morning I woke up remorse. Dang, I can't believe I let it happen again. That is my normal life. It's not even really about the drama. 
Because there's more pain than drama, is there not? I mean, certainly some of us step in it more than others, but, you know, what they're talking about is that sickness of, I want to stop so bad and so desperately, but I absolutely cannot. That's my only normal life. It says, they're restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. What do you like without a drink or a chemical in your body untreated? Are you happy, joyous, and free? I'm sure not. I'm irritable. Everybody and everything is on my last nerve. The sound of your voice is like nails on a chalkboard, right? I don't really know why you're breathing so loud. <laughs> Irritated at everything. Hypersensitive. Hyper aware of everything. Everything's being done at me. Y'all with me? Right? People are looking at you and you're going, what? They're looking past you. They're not even looking at you. Restless. Anybody here have sleep problems? Right? I Absolutely. And when you do sleep, you don't wake up rested. And the mind's always racing. Discontent. Nothing and nobody's good enough. Right? I'll be happy when. I'll be okay if. Wow. Wow. What a darkness. Sense of ease and comfort. That's why I... That's why I drink. See, I want to connect the dots to make it about an external deal. I drink because of him. I drink because that job is so much pressure. I drink because of the childhood stuff. If you had my life, you'd drink too. It's false information. Absolute delusion. I drink because I sense some ease and comfort in the bottle. And even when it's gone, I'm drinking it anyway. Are you? Welcome. (laughs) You are in the right room. Okay? This is what we're talking about. The control piece is probably the easiest one to get your mind around. Once I start, I can't stop. That's obvious to everybody else in the world as they watch us, but it's, it can become fairly obvious to you. The, the hard thing to wrap your mind around is this, this choice piece because it looks like a choice, doesn't it? Who drove to the liquor store? Who bought the booze? Who, who went home and immediately poured it down their throat sometimes on the way without somebody holding the gun to their head? Right? Me. It looks like a choice. Who said they were never going to do it again? Me. Welcome to drinking against your will. That's what that looks like. And that is the major component of step one. You see, if the allergy is the problem, if I can't drink without getting drunk, what's the obvious solution? Don't don't pick up the first one. Thank you very much, Nancy Reagan. Right? If I could If I could get with that, if I could wrap my hand around going, you know what, no, I'll just say no then I'd be perfect. I'd be golden. And the problem is you can do that from time to time. You can do that. Let's flip to page 24 and talk about what that looks like. So on the preceding page, they're talking about um, this idea of people waiting on us to kind of pull it together. This idea of them waiting on us to pull ourselves up and go, enough is enough. I choose not to drink anymore, and I'm going to kind of get it together, right? And at the bottom it says, The tragic truth that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. We're at the top of 24. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. Stop for a moment. Did you catch it? The most powerful desire to stop means nothing. How many times you heard that in a meeting? You... Guys, you just really got to want to. You got to really want to. My book just said, it doesn't matter how much you want to, you're going to. You will drink again. That's the truth, and that's the death sentence for the real alcoholic. And you're going to hear Julie and I refer to that all day long. The real alcoholic. Not the hard drinker, 
Not the moderate drinker, not the guy who got in trouble and his wife suggested he come sit in a meeting. No, I'm talking about the real alcoholic. Don't spit, Dr. Pepper. <laughs> says the tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it's suspected. If you haven't read Bill's story, my goodness. Go get you some Bill Wilson, right? Go back and read that story. There's a line in there that reads this. Alcohol, let me not misquote it. Let me not do that. Alcohol, well, I can't find it. Alcohol ceased to be a luxury and it became a necessity. Liquor. Liquor ceased to be a luxury and became a necessity. Can you guys get with that? This isn't fun. This isn't a party. This isn't about anything. This is about I have to drink to live, and it's killing me. It's quite the, quite the paradox, is it not? Right? Happens long before it's suspected in every situation. Now, it goes into some metallics, and it looks like this. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Right? You want a, a good definition of unmanageability? There you go. No matter what, no matter what looms behind me in the past, I don't want that to repeat itself. No matter what dreams and aspirations I've got ahead of me that I can't seem to connect with because liquor's in the way, I can't choose not to do it. That in and of itself is alcoholism. I can't stop no matter what, right? I says our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent in this area. There, I, there's some men and women in this room to, that I know have some strong willpower, you don't believe me? Try to get them to do something they don't want to do. It won't happen. We'll not do it just to spite you. Right? We have willpower, but when it comes to combating alcoholism, it's diminished. Right? The, the, the loss of choice and control around this is taking me to a point where willpower is no longer sufficient in this area. So it says we, we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink, and that's it. At certain times, I can't recall the drama, the pain, the sickness of, of hours, days, weeks, months ago with enough force to keep me from pulling in front of the liquor store, to keep me out of the beer store, keep me out of the bar, to keep me from drinking alone at home. I can't recall that. Now, here's the funny thing. The day it happens, sometimes it's enough. You ever had one of those moments? Think about this. Let's, let's play this game. Nobody say it out loud. But think about it and get dicey. Think about this. What is the worst thing that's ever happened to you as a direct result of alcohol? The absolute worst thing. And a lot of times it will turn your own stomach just to think about it. The moment where you said to yourself, I can't believe it got this bad. I swore I'd never be this person. Right? How long was it? When you made that resolve, that firm resolution, how long was it before you picked up a drink again? Day, some of us hours, some of us a week, some of us a couple months kind of held it together and it finally broke. Right? Sometimes it's sufficient for short periods of time, but the truth is, the further away I get away from the pain, the easier it is for my mind to go, well, that was then. That won't happen again. I need to not be in that part of town with those people at that hour. I need to not drink alone. That's that's not a good deal. Let's make this a social thing. Right? But it goes to work on you. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind, not the body. We're all trying to stay away from the first one, but the problem is we can't. We're all trying not to trigger the allergy, but we can't. That that's what the deal is. I can't not do it. At certain times, it says we are without defense against the first drink. Let me tell you what. If you're if you're looking for some solidified truth in this textbook, that's it. 
We are without defense against the first drink. I hear a lot of people in the treatment centers um, when we go to carry the message go, well, you know what, I've got some babies at home, and I'm just, I'm not going to do this anymore because I want to be a mom. How commendable, how cool, I get that. Guess what, not going to work. Were your babies not important enough six months ago for you to stop? It's not about that. It's not about them. It's not about the love you have for your child. It's about an utter inability to cease what you're doing, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. Can you all get with that? No matter what. No matter what. Has anybody ever had the experience of having um, a a consequence put in place before it happened? If you get loaded again, (laughs) dot, 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 it's from from a judge, from an employer, from your spouse, I'm I'm out the door. And you think, that's what I've been waiting on. I've been waiting on the reason, the good one. And then you find yourself picking up a drink going, am I crazy? And you begin to wonder. Bill Wilson used to contemplate that. Am I crazy? Am I of weak will? Is this a character issue? Is this low moral? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm diseased in my mind and my body, and I can't stop no matter what. And that's the truth. That's the truth. Now, a lot of times, um, if we, if we want to look at this from sort, sort of a sponsorship perspective, trying to drive somebody into the first step, trying to get them to see facts and see truth, right? you can only present the book. You can only share your experience around the step. You can only, that's when war stories are appropriate. When you're one-on-one with another drunk trying to draw a connection. Right? Bill, Bill called that language of the heart. So important. It's so necessary to identify. That's when it's appropriate. But you can't get somebody to see their truth. They're either willing, they're open to say, oh my God, I did that. I drank like that. I felt like that. I'm desperate like you were. What did you do? You can take them to certain places in the book and outline it, but let me show you something on 48. Because this is when people begin to balk. On 48, about seven lines down from the top, it says, faced with alcoholic destruction, right, meaning step one, the truth, the reality, the facts. Faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters, and we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was the great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. Now, in this context, they're speaking about some prejudgments towards spiritual matters, but I'm telling you, you can fill in the blank with anything. I don't really know if I'm like you because I'm a beer drinker and you're a liquor right? It, they'll, they'll balk at all kinds of ways. But here's the driving truth. Alcohol is the great persuader. Not your sponsor. Not your home group. Not somebody branding you an alcoholic. Think about your own experience. How long did, you, did people tell you you were a drunk and you were resistant? Or how long did you sit in the meetings and go, I'm Audrey, I'm an alcoholic, having no connection to what that meant? Because, see, when I talk about you've got to find your truth, I have to know that when I sit in this room with, with you guys this morning and say, I'm Audrey Chapman and I'm an alcoholic, I am utterly convinced on a gut, visceral level that that's my truth. And that's what drives me to continue with the work. There's, there's a great handout that we'll have up here later for you, um, and it talks about this idea of finding the truth in the first step will, will propel me into doing the rest of the work. And if I don't find my truth in step one, my goodness, nothing's going to happen. This is where you feel like you're dragging protégés through the work. And it will become exhausting. If they know their truth, I don't want to say that on tape, but Cliff has a great thing. Is it okay? All right. Our Julie sponsor, Cliff, um, who I think hung the moon, FYI, but um, he, uh, he says that, you know, if, if, if they want it, if they absolutely want it, you can't beat them off with a stick. 
You just can't get rid of them. They are chasing you. They're following you. And if they don't want it, you can't give it to them with an enema. And I've, I've never seen, I've never seen something more simplistic be, be more true. You know, if you can get, get a new guy, get a new girl to see the reality and the facts, because here's what you're doing. You're taking, they're taking their experience. You're taking the knowledge that you have of the text, right? Armed with the facts, you're matching them so that the big book comes alive for them because otherwise it, it reads like a novel to people that can't connect with it. It becomes boring. They don't connect. The meeting is, ugh, it's, it's, a drudgery, right? So we're looking for some sort of a connection. Um, I want to flip back to page uh, to, to 25 real quick. I'm totally not understanding the schedule. Okay. All right. So then there becomes a, um, once I can kind of see and identify with this choice and control piece, and I can kind of look at it, then I've got to look at what are my other options. This will become vitally important, not only in your own experience, but in the experience of the men and women that you're going to be sponsoring as you as you go out from here. Um, at the bottom of page 25, it says this. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. Well, let's pause and get clear on what middle-of-the-road solution looks like. Self-sponsorship. Some of you guys have, have embarked on that fun little journey, right? Where you sponsor you, you make you call all the shots. That's that's middle of the road solution. Going to meetings and not working the steps, that's middle of the road solution. Working part of the po- program and leaving the rest of it to to rest because it's not comfortable. That's middle of the road solution. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got loaded, I got all the way loaded. I didn't do any half measures when it came to, to getting drunk, right? So what makes me think that I'm going to be able to shift gears and do it differently in recovery? You either want to get all the way free or you don't. Was it was a, a little ever enough for, for y'all? Right? Not Me neither. Me neither. No middle-of-the-road solution if you're the real McCoy. It says we were in a position where life was becoming impossible, which means we're living in that first step. Can't live with it. Can't live without it. Jumping off point. And if we had passed in the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had two alternatives. I circled that word if in my book because it's important. I've got to know, am I without human reliance? Have I burned all that up? Or do I have a back pocket plan? You want to be mystified by somebody doing really well in the program and then burning off? That was about a back pocket plan. That was about a reservation. That was about a, I'm going to do this for a minute while I get my marriage in order, and once I'm good with him or good with her, then I'll be good to go, and I won't have to drink this. That's about a misunderstanding of the first step, right? So if I've passed into the region from which there's no return, meaning I can't get sober for the man, the woman, the parent, the job, the judge, the babies, nothing. If nothing stands between you and the alcohol, then I'm... And then I'm faced with a decision. And, you know, I was told very early in sobriety by some phenomenal people, if there is a job or a man that will fix you, go get them. Run at it 100 miles an hour like your life depends upon it because obviously it does. If you're out of options and you're out of plans and desperate, you're at a perfect place. It doesn't feel that way. It feels absolutely hopeless because there's no hope in step one. Right? If you're absolutely hopeless and you're in, you're in a pos- position to accept something better. It says, one was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. So it's kind of like being at a fork in the road. I've got a couple different avenues. That's, that's a, a, an easier sell when I'm convinced of the truth. When I know that left to my own devices, I'll drink until I die. Facing some spiritual 
you know, bumps in the road for me became a very easy choice when I'm out of options and I've got nowhere else to go. Now, it says this we did because we honestly wanted to and we were willing to make the effort. That's conditional. See, a lot of people want to tell you you can kind of breeze your way through Alcoholics Anonymous. You absolutely cannot. There are musts in the text. There are conditions. There are suggestions. Do you ever want to find out what a suggestion meant in 1939? Look it up. It's a subtle command. It's very different than that we're going to, you know, skip through this and, and it's just no big deal. That's not the truth. So I'm going to take some time as a sponsor to go through. I'm going to read this text with you, not page by page. I'm going to ask you to read it, and then we're going to get together, and we're going to hit the highlights and see, is this you? Is this not? We talked a little bit last night about the principle of honesty, right? This is the point in which I'm going to learn to be honest, maybe for the very first time, right? Is this me or is it not? Now, none of us know how to come in here being honest. I was telling people in treatment I was an author, Right? <laughs> the dumbest thing. I mean, thank God they didn't ask me what I wrote. I mean, I had nothing, nothing to go on. But I did not understand what it meant to be honest. But, the, but this is why, as a sponsor, you must be armed with the facts. You have to know to ask the questions. You have to know where to drive them back to in the textbook. Sharing experience, strength, and hope is a phenomenal deal. But if it's not backed with the facts from the big book, you're in a lot of trouble. Because what it will do will set you up to give a, give this drunk a lot of opinions. And, and from what I heard last night, a lot of you were in and out for seven years, nine years, 13 years, couldn't get sober, couldn't hear a message. That's about being surrounded by a fellowship that is driven by opinions. What a, what a detriment. I won't get off on that tangent too much, but if you ever go look at the success rates back in 39, go clock what they were doing. They weren't chatting. They weren't sharing experience, strength, and hope. They, they actually knew what that meant back then. And it wasn't about talking about where you're at today. Experience is what happened. Where does your experience line up with the text, the facts about alcoholism, the disease of the body and the mind? That's experience. Strength, what did you do? Mm. Work the steps. Solidified with a sponsor. Made some decisions. Understood this textbook. Hope, what does your life look like today? Where are you on a spiritual plane, right? Not how did you pull yourself out of your own problems. So not impressed. <laughs> self-reliance causes fear. Fear causes self-reliance. We won't even go on that tangent. That's for inventory. But I've got to understand the truth about this text. I've got to understand this. Okay, so I'm Julie Harvey, alcoholic. Thank Julie Harvey. Um, recovered, thank God. Okay, so here's the deal. I, we're not looking to get anybody sober for to, to, to watch them pick up a 30-day or 60-day or 90-day chip mm-hmm. and then leave. Like, we're here to get you sober for good and all. And if you look through the text, you will see where it asks you again and again, are you willing to go to any extremes? Are you willing to go to any lengths? Are you ready to quit for good and all? It asks you over and over and over. So why is it that we come in here and we sit around, and I will I will say something about that. Because you know what? I sat in meetings for 13 years, and I raised my hand and I said, hey, I'm Julie and I'm an alcoholic, and I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what that meant because what I heard was a lot of BS and sharing in meetings and sharing people's experiences of and people's strengths and hopes of their marriage and their job and the clouds and the traffic and their gas. Seriously? Not a joke. So what can we do differently? 
What can we do to help somebody get sober for good and all? See, here's the deal. Like, we come in here absolutely dying. And it's one thing. We've got to see the truth in step one. And, and Andre laid that out really well. And I'm not going to keep rehashing it. But we've got to understand that when it comes to alcohol, we don't have a choice whether we're going to put it in our body. And once we start, we can't control it. And if you can fix those little issues and not do it, our hats off to you. Like, oh my gosh, hallelujah <laughs> for you. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> Leave. But if you can't, please listen to what we have to offer. Because we have something more than just not drinking to offer. And I didn't know that about Alcoholics Anonymous. See, I didn't know that. And the coolest thing is we do. So, so we, we broke down step one, right? No choice, no control. So, so, okay. So then we get in this step two thing and it, and it talks about, um, we're insane. <laughs> God? No. What does it say? Higher power? Right? Came to believe that a higher power could restore us to sanity. First of all, I'm like, I'm not crazy. Y'all are. <laughs> because at step two, I'm still arrogant as heck. Right? I still have all the ideas. I still have the plans. I still know what's better for me. And you don't. I mean, clearly, that's it. Bill had a huge problem with the whole God idea, right? I mean, when Ebby showed up, Ebby was like going, da 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 He laid out this great program of action. And then Ebby's like, and then Bill's like, you're talking about God. Breaks on, right? There's a lot of us like that. I always say there's two types of people who come in here. One with God, one without God. Not much in the middle. <laughs> That's it. I'm all over here. I'm all tight with God, right? Like, I'm in the church. I'm starting a whole ministry. I'm volunteering. In fact, I'm on a committee that tells a, a, a pastor if he can get his pastoral license. That's how smart I am. <laughs> Then you have the guy over here. So so actually, when you talk to me about spiritual matters, my mind snaps shut. See, you don't know more than I do, right? And then you have the guy over here who bristles with antagonism when you mention the word God, right? Why? Because he's so darn smart. He sits in his garage philosophizing about life, knowing the solutions of the world, and he's so darn smart that he does it while drinking. And I'm over here making all my calls to my church ladies, drinking. <laughs> See, if we all had it, why are we still drinking? That's why I love how the big book lays it out. They lay it out and they ask us a couple simple questions. Let's go to page 44. Because in the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism, so we're hoping that you've actually read those chapters. And we make clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic, like Audrey was talking about. Now, here's your question. If you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. Look, we're, aren't we quitters? We're great quitters. <laughs> Problem is we can't stay quit. <laughs> it's like, how do you stay quit? I quit all the time. Quit every morning. Just can't say it. Um, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take. I keep drinking too darn much, and I'm drunk every time, and it's getting annoying. So 
here, you're probably alcoholic. Now, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. That's the difference between me and that hard drinker. That's the difference. I have to have a spiritual experience. I have to, or I will die of this disease or live through it, which is even uh, uglier. So you have to ask yourself this question. Have you placed yourself beyond human aid? Have you done everything you can to quit? Have you marshaled up with your own will? Listen, I love at the bottom, it says, if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. We're not bad people. We're not ill-intentioned people. Right? We all have morals and our own conduct that we like to live up to. But it's saying the needed power isn't there. Our human resources marshaled by the will were insufficient. It's kind of like I wake up in the morning and I say, I wish not to drink today. (laughs) And it says I can wish and I can will with all my might, but the power isn't there. Just like I used to wake up and say, I wish to be good. I wish to be the best mom ever today. The needed power isn't there. It fails utterly, right? I'm not saying we're bad people. We're not. Lack of power, that's our dilemma. It doesn't say booze is your dilemma. It says lack of power is your dilemma. You better find another power. So, If we have two types of people who come in here, one with and one without, right? And we're both thinking, I know, I know, I know. We're both, I know, and ourselves right to the liquor store. So what do we need to do differently? What did Audrey say? What is the greatest persuader? Alcohol. Alcohol is the greatest persuader. That's going to beat me into a state of reasonableness where I might be able to lay aside some prejudice. That's not where I'm going to be here, guys. At step two, I still think I'm smarter than you. I don't know how to say it any more than that. It's plain and simple. I came in here knowing I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. I might be drunk, but still. Um, If you look at Bill, right? Bill had the huge problem with, with... with the whole God idea, but go to page um, 11, because this is one of my favorite things, and I love Bill's story. He said, but my friend sat before me, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. That's what you need to be asking your protégés. Has your human will failed? Where it comes to what? Alcohol. Because if your human will has failed around people, places, or things, go to Elanon. See, my human will has failed where it comes to alcohol. I guarantee you I can still control my husband. (laughs) Very well. Shh, don't tell him that. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead. The spiritually dead. 
suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him, obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and that was none at all. How cool is that? This power is absolutely real, and it's available to everyone. We don't get hand-picked. It is available to everyone. We just have to be willing to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves. That's it. Um, here's the cool thing. If you notice the, the, the that that Ebby came to Bill, right? He didn't wait for Bill to call him. He actually went out to Bill and carried a simple little program of action. And Bill, by seeing him, it was quite self-evident to Bill that he was like, oh my gosh, there's something different about him. He's not keeping himself sober because it's not like he's like, "Mm," white knuckling it. Guys, don't white knuckle it. This isn't about white knuckling it. This isn't about keeping ourselves sober. This is about getting tapped into this power so this power can do it for us. You don't have to understand that at this point. There's a step two question in here, and it's pretty simple. On page 47, it says, we needed to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I now believe, or, circle or, am I even willing to believe that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe, or circle it, highlight it, box it in, is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. How cool is that? You mean I don't have to have God figured out? You mean I don't have to know anything? No, because if you go over to page 55... It says we're fooling ourselves because really deep down in every one of us is the fundamental idea of God. I love what my sponsor says, and he always says, um, God's kind of sense of humor is funny. He puts himself um, in the last place that will look <laughs> in us, <laughs> right? We're always searching. Have you ever heard this, like, I'm looking for God? I went to the mountaintops looking for God. I went to the seas looking for God. I went to the sweat lodge looking for God, right? And it's kind of funny because he's inside of us, each and every one of us. Go down here a little bit. There's my time. 1002, I'm good. It says, we finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup just as we, as much as a feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly. Right? So there's a little bit of searching. That's an action word, by the way. But he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, I love that. In the last analysis, meaning the last place you're going to look, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. Here's the deal, guys. That's our experience. That's their experience. It may not be everyone's experience. I am not saying that AA has a monopoly on God. It doesn't. But the deal is if you've exhausted all other measures, if you've exhausted everything else at your human disposal and it didn't help get you sober, we have a way out which we absolutely agree upon. Not my words. 
my experience. We can only clear the ground a bit if our testimony helps sweep away prejudice. See, like when Ebby came to Bill, right, his, testi- his testimony helped him sweep away prejudice. How long? For a minute. For a hot minute. He's like, okay, okay, I think there might be a God. But, right, by Ebby coming to Bill, Bill came to believe just enough to make a beginning. Just enough to make a approach. He didn't say, Hallelujah. That's it. I got it. I'm good. Asobo. <laughs> right? That's not what he said. He made an approach. But what happened without the action behind that approach, what's going to happen? We're going to go back and, and, and go back to our old thinking and our old ways and, and rely on our old drunkenness again. It says, Enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself. Then, if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. With this attitude, you cannot fail. Takes the right attitude. But I'm going to tell you, in spite of you, in spite of me, right? I still got it. I still worked it. The question was, do you now believe, or are you even willing to believe that there's a power greater than you? That's it. That's all I needed to make an approach, to make it a beginning. And see, I found somebody that was actually sober and happy and not talking sideways. I found somebody sitting across the table from me that absolutely understood what was wrong with them and understood what the solution was. And by that, I was able to go, well, scratching my head going, I'm not quite sure. I still think I'm smarter than you. (laughs) I really don't think this is going to work because I've done all that. But had I really... See, when I came in, I thought, I don't need step two and three. I've got God. And it's, and I love how my friend Chris Raymer told me one time, he said, Julie, some of us come in here spiritual. Absolutely. But we're not connected. We're not awake. I can get down with that, right? Because if you go up on that page just a little bit where it says, it may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things. In some form or other, it is there. See, we may be spiritual, but the problem is it's usually obscured by worship of other things. The car, the job, the this, the that, right? And if I put place all that stuff and my dependence on that, then really am I relying on God? No. See, my prayers would be, Waking up in the morning saying, hey, God, here's the plan. Bless it. (laughs) That is not a joke. We laugh. We laugh. And it's not a joke. I really thought I was that great. I did. I thought I was, I had it all figured out. Like, I'm so smart. You should listen to me. And we're going to get a little bit into that after we take a break and come back. So let's go take a break and then we'll come on back. So now we're going to get into step three. We've kind of rolled off of step one and step 
step two, and, and the cool thing that the thing that we need to remember is that we're trying to get sober for good and all. We're not trying to get sober for a minute. And so I had an experience recently where, um, and, and you guys can't be afraid to, to say, you know what, I'm not sure you're really getting this. Why don't you go home and, and think about it before we get on with that third step? I worked with a girl recently, and, and you know, she got that physical piece. She understood that every time she, she drank, she got drunk, and she so got down with that. But when I started talking about the mental piece, she was like, eh? no, I think I can control it. And that's what she said. I, I think I can control it. And so there was no point in moving on with the rest of the steps. Because if I move on with the rest of the steps, then I'm denying her the chance of her finding her own truth. She's got to see her own truth. I can't make her see her own truth. Does that make sense? Because it's kind of like, if I don't see my own truth, I'm going to look at the rest of the steps and I'm going to go, oh my gosh, that's good for her (laughs) or him. (laughs) They need that. I don't have to do that. Or that's where we start really balking and balking and balking later on and we relapse and we wonder why we fell so I told her to leave and and go try that controlled drinking or go try to control it on your own or just don't do it it's clearly a problem just don't just go home and don't do it two weeks later I get a phone call get a phone call two weeks later I can't do this on my own she's sober today yeah, I mean, that's the coolest thing. She had never been introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, ever. This is her first time in AA. How cool is that, that she gets a true experience in Alcoholics Anonymous? I'm, I'm digging it. I'm digging it. All right. Um, so... <coughs> I I I got a I got a this little wind up joint in Dallas and and uh, we call them wind up joints because that's where you wind up. Um, but I used to go there every Wednesday night and every Wednesday morning. We do the we would do the IOP Wednesday morning. We would do the the inpatient on Wednesday night for the women and the IOP was a mixed group and and I, I have to tell you the coolest thing looking out in this room is how many women are in this room. I, I can't tell you. It, bre- it, it makes me cry. Because it's not the norm. It's just not. And, and I'm not saying it's not hard for men to get sober. And bless you men that are here. I love you guys. Um, but what we find a lot of times is that the woman gets home and they want, they need to what? Get, take care of the kid. Take care of the husband. Take care of this. Take care of that. We're the caretakers. That's just our, that's just who we are. And all of a sudden, the big book, the book, the program, the, the what we've been taught is pushed aside, and we start thinking we need to what? Do dot, dot, dot. And then we find we relapse. And so what I would see is I would see these 25 women inpatient, and when I would do outpatient, I would see one, two women. And so I'm like, where are you guys? Where are you guys? So thank you for being here. Besides the fact that all of y'all are so freaking beautiful. (laughs) California. California. Looking good. I love the California time, too. I like to roll into that. 
<laughs> All right, on page 60, let's get into this. On page 60, it says, um, being convinced, we're at step three. All right, so what are we convinced of? If you go right back up, it says, A, that we're alcoholic and cannot manage our own lives. B, that no human power can relieve our alcoholism, and that God could and would if he were sought. Here's the deal. Are you screwed? <laughs> mm-hmm. And do you have a little hope? I mean, that's the question. Do you, are you convinced of step one, and do you believe that this might work for you? Being convinced of that. But you have to be convinced before I'm going to move on. See, here's my question to you, if I'm working with you. Are you done? Are you done? Are you done for good? Because if you're not, I'm not wasting my time, and I'm not wasting your time. See, if you have a better plan, and if you're convinced that you can do this another way, adios, there's the door. See ya. I don't mind saying it. Because I want you sober, and I want you on the firing line with me. Because I want more women out here doing this. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. So here's the deal. Here's the, everybody's like gets on step three, and they're like, I'm, I'm on step three. I'm figuring God out. <laughs> Didn't say figure God out. That's not what it says. Here's your requirements. Are you convinced that your life run on your own self-will is not successful? Yes? All right. There you go. Be convinced of that, right? So we have a few little requirements here. And then it's going to lay out a perfect example of what that looks like, right? Like everybody wants to be the actor, the director, the the setting up this, setting up that. Hey, listen, that's everybody in this world, not just you. (laughs) You don't get that character. See, my husband is great. My husband is, I love my husband's death. Y'all know how much I love him. But when it comes to him driving, (laughs) I look out the window and say, today, today, I look out the window most of the time. (laughs) Let's get honest. Sometimes I tell him how to drive. But um, I look out the window and say, thy will not mine be done. Because what he does is he sits there and he's like, Oh, that person cut me off. And, oh, right, right. He's, like, trying to tell everybody else how they should be driving while he's doing the same thing. (laughs) Right? He can do that. See, everybody in this world lives by self-propulsion. Everybody wants their way (laughs) to some extent and thinks that they have a good idea of what it should look like. Everybody wants to manage and control things. Right? And so... You get to the next page. There we're going to start talking about the alcoholic. All right? He says, selfish self-centeredness. That, oh, I love that exclamation point. That we think is the root of our troubles, meaning the alcoholic. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate. Or, in my case, they go away. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we find that at some time in our past we made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. Now, the first time I read that, I thought, um, you can take that page out. Or just mark it out, because that's not me. I'm a giver. I give, give, give. I'm so sweet and kind, Right? So delusional. 
But let's let's look at this because it's as simple as this. And I love when I when I go to the treatment centers, I love to give this um, example. Let's say I'm sitting in a meeting, right? I'm sitting in a meeting, and let's say Audrey looks at me, and I, I don't like the way she looks at me. Like she just. Hmm. So now my mind is starting to turn, starting to turn, starting to turn. And then then I start replaying every conversation that we've had in the past three months. I can't come up with anything that I've done because it's always I'm going to do something. And so what do I think? That bitch. (laughs) That's really what I think. (laughs) That is what I think. So what am I going to do? I'm going to leave there and I'm going to call Kimberly. I'm going to call my friend Kimberly. I'm going to have, oh my God, Kimberly, you won't believe what Audrey did. And Kimberly is so sweet, and she loves us, and she wants us to be good, and she's the fixer of the group. So she's going to call Audrey, and she's going to say, Audrey, why why are you mad at Julie? Because Julie's awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and Audrey's going to say, what? Now. Driven by, when I'm sitting in that meeting, what was I driven by? Fear. Fear she doesn't like me. Self-seeking. I need her to like me to be okay. Right? Self-delusion. She's not thinking about me. The world does not revolve around me, although I think it does. Probably I wasn't did. even looking at you. <laughs> Probably weren't. <laughs> so, I stepped on her toes. What do they do in my life? They quit calling. <laughs> they don't retaliate. They just quit calling. Right? But who set the ball rolling? I made decisions based on fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. Does that make sense? It can be that simple. But see, that's how we manage and control things in our life. That's the self-will that we're going to later see that blocks us off from the sunlight of the Spirit. That's the stuff we need to get around. But let me tell you, at step three, I didn't see this. I didn't understand it. So it's not about understanding and figuring it out before we move on. It's about moving on so that we can look back and go, oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What I have to be convinced of is my life run on my self-will is not successful. It goes on to say, quit playing God. Why? It doesn't work. If it's working for you, keep doing it. If it's not, we think we have a better way. On page 63, it says, um, He provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. If you are sponsored by me, you will hear that thousands and thousands of times because that is your job description forever and ever and ever. What is your job? Keep close to him. Perform his work well. What does that look like today? I don't know. Right? But keep close to him. Perform his work well. The simplicity of this program blows me away. It's that simple. We like to get in here and, and, and muck it up. But it's so beautifully simple. 
We have this beautiful prayer that we get to say once we're ready. Once we're ready to take the step, move on. Listen, I'm not saying this third step decision isn't a vital one. The book says it is. It's vital. It's life-saving. It's serious. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to say, you know what? Am I ready to do this? Am I ready? Because I better make sure I am. Have, am I convinced of my truth in step one? And I am, am I, am I believing that there's a, a higher power that's going to restore me to sanity? Because I don't know about you guys. I'm thinking that drink is good <laughs> at this point, right? I'm still thinking just because I come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and sit in a chair and write my name on a chair, doesn't keep me sober. I tried that. Don't do it. I wrote my name on a chair in Alcoholics Anonymous. Seriously. They still have it. I ran into a guy. He's like, we, we kept it in a closet. <laughs> Didn't work. Right? It's kind of like meaning makers make it. No, they don't. No, they don't. We come in here, and I don't know about y'all. Have y'all heard that whole, um, that, that, for those who have been around for long, you hear that one, two, three out, one, two, three shuffle, one, two, three shuffle. And this is why. Because we make this decision, and then we don't follow it up. And that's the commitment. We've got to make the commitment of the step three, get down on our hands and knees and say this beautiful prayer, and then follow it up with action afterwards. The reason most people don't make that commitment to follow it up with action afterwards is probably because they're not convinced in step one. So if they're not convinced of step one, please don't make them do their third step. It's not worth it to them. It says, um, the wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we express the idea of voicing it without reservation. So there's some stipulations here, right? It was, we got to make it honest and humble. And if we do, and affect sometimes, not every time, don't expect a great woo-hoo when you get up off your knees. <laughs> don't expect it. Sometimes an effect, a very great one, was felt at once. You know, you hear all these, I had a burning bush experience in my step three. Um, and then you hear some people say, I didn't. I did. I did. Um, and my burning bush, I did not see fire. I did not see flames. I had a sense of, oh, my God, I know nothing. I know nothing about God. I know nothing about these steps. I know nothing about AA. I've been around here for 13 years. What has happened to me? I think this might work. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Not sure. Not sure. <laughs> right? Still doubting. <laughs> doubting. Because I've lived with alcohol for 22 years. I've drank for 22 years. That's all I know. How can you dare take that away from me? And you're telling me that I'm going to say a stupid little prayer, get off my knees and write some inventory, and I'm going to stay sober? That's insane. But it's the facts. It's the experience that we have had. It's the experience that they have had. If we do this work as outlined in this book, if we make the commitment, if we do it honestly, if we do it humbly, in effect, sometimes a great one was felt at once. It does not say you will enter a pink cloud. 
It doesn't say that. So shut up about the pink cloud. My biggest pet peeve in Alcoholics Anonymous is that people sit around and talk about this stupid pink cloud. I'm not kidding. I was that newcomer all the time. And we start looking better and we start feeling better and we start smelling better and we start getting a little pokey pokey again. And I say it. I like it. <laughs> and we start thinking, oh my gosh, all is well in the world. I was making two hard turns of that drinking thing. I'm all right. And we go back and we drink again because we don't move on with the rest of the steps because nobody's standing there in my face saying, you better get off your knees and get the pen to the paper because what this book says is the effect will be permanent. But, right, let's, next we launched out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Mm. I tried to, but they told me I did it wrong. Though our decision, meaning that third step decision, was a vital, life-saving, and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at once, followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which have been blocking us. I got an effect from that third step. Let me tell you, seven and a half years later, I still have an effect from that third step. Today, I get just as giddy when I read these words. I get just as excited when I read these words. I can't believe that getting on my knees and working some steps has kept me sober. But following this program of action has kept me sober when I tried everything else that was at my disposal. How cool is that? And it didn't say, you have to know God and understand God. It doesn't say that. It says, say this prayer, say it humbly, say it honestly, and then follow it up with some action. That's what it's all about. We'll, um, we'll roll into some inventory and take a look at what this is going to look like. Now, if, if the third step is, is a decision, it's based on some information. If step one is the problem, step two is the solution, step three is a, is a moment of contemplation about what to do about that. If, if self manifested in various ways is what really defeated me, I'm only catching a glimpse of it in the third step. Like Julie was talking about, um, when I look at the actor running the show and I'm, and I'm looking at this stuff, I can get with pieces of it, but I'm about to see it live and live in color come full force in inventory. And that's the point. The, what, what Bill's setting us up for is to see that problems are of my own making. Because I've been a, a long time talking about problems that you made for me, at me, around me. About me, right? And what I'm about to, what I'm about to embark upon, um, is seeing the truth for the very, very, very first time. You know, um, earlier on it talks about, um, I may have admitted certain faults, but I'm certain that you're more to blame. Certain of it, convinced of it. You know, and I, I live in this delusional world of alcoholism where everything is distorted. 
out of proportion, doesn't make sense, and the only way to make sense about it is to say that it's, it's out there. And what I can get down with in looking at the third step and rolling into inventory is that if the problem is me and the problem is internal, then it can change. If the problem remains you, then it's time to get a bottle because it's not going to be any different. So what we're looking at um, back on 64 is what's been blocking me from the sunlight of the spirit. This is the whole driving point of inventory is getting down to symptoms, causes, conditions, Um this is what we're looking for. So it goes into taking a commercial inventory. It's going to give us an example. Taking a commercial inventory is fact-finding, fact-facing process, right? So when it says searching and fearless, this is what we mean. Fact-finding is searching. Fact-facing is fearless, okay? Inherently, we know some things deep down in our gut, but we're afraid to look at them. And if we look at them, it means, by God, we might have to accept some responsibility, which is why nobody in this room, prior to getting sober, ever took personal inventory. You will never convince me that you did it. You might have pseudo-done it, but you didn't do it. Because if I can stop short and make it about you, why would I press on? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Right? It's an effort to to discover the truth, which is the, was the piece talking about moral inventory, which means truth about the stock in trade. I'm going to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. Get rid of them promptly and without regret. Remember that. Julie's going to talk in depth about that with 6 and 7. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. What they're what they're referring to is delusions. I believe that some of the things in my life have served me and I'd like to hold on to them. The problem is they're killing me and everybody around me and I can't see it. And that's the sponsor's job to get in and look at it and sift through and tease out the truth and show you the facts. Because I don't know about you guys, but I've, I've, I've lived a world based on emotion. Anybody get with that? If I feel it, it, it therefore it is. <laughs> I don't like you, therefore you're a bad person. Well, not necessarily. I've got my little sensitive feelings hurt. There's been some sort of an exchange, and the truth has not been revealed yet until I slide down to fourth column, right? So God can't get in when I'm blocked out by resentments, my fears, and my sex conduct. So we're going to take an overhauling and look at what am, what is it that's causing so much resentment within my spirit? The heaviness, the darkness, the drudgery, what does that look like? Uh, and a lot of times people say, well, I'm not really an angry person. Feel ya. I don't have enough energy to be angry. By God, I'm bitter. <laughs> There's something that's grinding on me. There's something that's irritating me. Um, Chris gives this great example. If the person that you are to write down in the first column, if you're having dinner with your significant other and this person walks into the restaurant, are you uncomfortable? Right? Their name goes on the list. I don't have to hate you. I don't have to plot your demise. I have some of you. But, right, are you uncomfortable? That's a great way to look at it if you're wondering what that might look like. So it talks about self being manifested in various ways, defeating it. We're going to consider its common manifestation because here's the truth. Inventory is all the same. Everybody's inventory. There will be different names, different scenarios, but what that, those are called manifestations of self. So every, if you're wondering, well, I don't have the same experiences, how will I be able to see this person's truth? How will this person be able to see my truth easily, just like that? Because all you're talking about is manifestation. Resentment is the number one offender. Isn't that the truth? It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we've been spiritually sick. When the spiritual maladies overcome, we straighten out 
mentally and physically. They begin to introduce this peace, this malady, this sickness that's kind of all over us and begin to look at what that looks like. So it says they give you just the most simplistic directions. And here's the truth, guys. There's about 30,000 formats floating around about inventory. So not interested in which one of them you use. Doesn't matter to me. I need, I need to see that you can get down to the facts. You want to use check boxes? Check on. You want to write it out? Right away. You want to use notebook paper? Cool. You want to do a printout? Fine. Do not get into a debate and get divisive about that kind of nonsense. It drives the newcomer into a state of confusion. Don't do that. Don't do that. So it says, in dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. So I'm going to get down and look at it. I'm going to list people, institutions, and principles. So this is all you're looking at in, in first contact. Don't overwhelm yourself. Don't work across the board trying to get them all set out. Just walk. Just work first column. People. Who, who are the names? And you guys know this stuff. Some people think, I just can't remember. Really? Who are you on the bar stool talking about? <laughs> who have you been in the garage drinking at? You know who these people are. You've been ruminating for years. Because God knows we don't let anything go. Okay? These people. These principles. What are the principles? What are principles of life that, that you don't care for? Maybe it's Ten Commandments. Maybe it's women should be seen and not heard. Right? Maybe it's men should, should treat people like this. You don't care. What is it that's grinding on you? Places, institutions, the police department, have they wronged you in your eyes? The, the legal system, you know, not been fair to you? <laughs> right? Never fair. Right? What are those institutions? CPS got your kids. You thought, un, you know, they just did you wrong. Get it out. Get it down on paper. You want to put specific names? Have at it. I, I like to group them. You know, I, I put Corinth Police Department. There's only one person I'm really upset with. The whole, <clears throat> all of you on there. You know, that's fine. Get down to it and see what it really looks like. You've been told it's not okay to be gay. Put that on there. That rubbing you the wrong way doesn't sit right. Write it down. You cannot be afraid of what that person's going to think. Right? I cannot care what Julie thinks about what I put on inventory. Life can't afford it. Absolutely can't. Get clear on first column because this will drive you. Then slide on over to that second column. What are the causes? And, and Bill's great. He's got it laid out on 65 on what his looks like. And we're going we're gonna to take his inventory here in a bit. <laughs> it's the easiest thing in the world to see. So I ask myself, why am I angry? So the second column is going to look like a cause. What is it that you've done or has happened to me as a direct result of your behavior. So in my, in, this is going to say, in most cases it was found our self-esteem, pocketbooks, ambitions, personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. We were sore. We were burned up. Isn't that <laughs> indicative of everyone in this room? Burned up. <laughs> Eat up with, with resentment. So just as, just as simplistic as, as Bill's done it on 65 on the cause, I mean, look at how, how simplistic this is. His attention to my wife. I'm telling you what, you pay attention to my man, we're going to get deep. I'm writing, I'm writing. He could have gone into novels about this, and he didn't. Why? Because the details are not important. Mm -hmm. They're really not. If your sponsor needs to hear more detail to get a clear depiction of what's going on, they'll ask. They will. But see, I get lost in in column two, because that's where I've always stopped prior to getting sober sitting on a bar stool talking about column one and two and possibly how it affected me because I'm a martyr by nature, right? But I think it's stuck in column two. Don't do that. It's not necessary. His attention to my wife. Told my wife about my mistress. He gossiped about me. He got me in trouble at home. He, now he's trying to get my job at the office. Uh, he could have written 
huge, huge. And you guys will run into people that do that. But bring your files. I've got I've got 832 pages of, of inventory. I'm sure as hell I'm not going to listen to that. I don't have time, and it's not important. What we need to drive down is to, to the fourth column. I can't get hung up with you on you wanting to, to do therapy with me. It's not, not what we're doing. So it says, on our grudge list, we set opposite each name our injuries. Was it our self-esteem, security, ambition, personal, or sex relations which have been interfered with? What part of self have you interfered with so that I'm not happy with you? Because if you don't threaten one of my God-given instincts, I don't know you're on the planet. I didn't even notice you because that's how self-involved I was. But you start threatening my money, the relationship, the way others perceive me. You embarrass me. Do any any of these things that threaten sex relations, security, you know, what I need to be okay, self-esteem, how I feel about me. You start stepping on those toes, and I'll remember you till the day I die. (laughs) Etched in stone, you know, what you did and the inflection and tone in your voice when you said it. I mean, we are just we are just like that. It's too funny. So I'm looking at column one, column two, and column three. Now, I'm somebody that went ahead and, and wrote out my the fourth column. I could see in some ways, in limited ways, where I had been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking. I could see some of that, just like I could see some of the actor running the show. But it wasn't until... I got across the table from another woman who was emotionally detached from my drama and my nonsense to be able to really clearly see it. And then when I begin to do inventory, the fear begins to set in of, well, at some point I'll be listening to inventory, and what if I don't see it? Let me, let me pose this question to you. Have you ever been at work and had um, a coworker begin to tell a story about how they were wronged, and you're sitting there thinking, well, I can get with that, but you totally set that in motion. You made some bad decisions way back there and kind of caused this stuff to manifest. So that's really kind of on you. Right? It's super easy to see it in other people. But when you're in it, you're like in it to win it. Right? You're like, no, you don't understand the detail and the, you know, she said this and hold on, I got another detail over here. It's like nobody cares. Right? No. No. Julie doesn't for sure. For sure. I got asked this question more often than not. Audrey, what are the facts? I said, I I told you, I think that he feels because of what I think, just like silliness, right? I'm a master that I think I know what you think about me. And then I proceed to make decisions based upon that. That's a recipe for disaster. Recipe for disaster. A bunch of mind readers. As we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. Now, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. Thoroughness and honesty doesn't mean I take six months to write inventory. What it means is I got honest about the truth. I started from now. What's eating your lunch today? I'm not going to think about the boy who didn't, you know, ask me to dance as a third grade little square dance. That's not, that's not what's eating me. Right now, at current, it was a relationship. It was the stuff my family and I have been through together. It was some financial stuff. It was the men in my life that had harmed. It was that stuff. And then I can go back through, back through my life. But if I get hung up on trying to remember all that stuff from square one, it becomes overwhelming. It becomes daunting. And this is where people throw up their hands and go, no, never mind. It doesn't have to be that difficult. Yeah, and let's get real clear. If you can't get thorough and honest on a piece of paper, welcome to Rarely. (laughs) <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. You'll have trouble downstream. And this is where people think that they don't have to write things down um, and begin to justify why they don't matter. And, and you'll see people get loaded downstream and go, but I, I work the steps. Yeah, but were you honest? How many times does it have to say back here in 58, thir- three times in the first paragraph to be honest? Right? If I still care what people think about me, I'm not ready to get sober. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. That's the truth. It talks about being fearless and thorough from the very start. It talks about next we launched out on a course of vigorous action. There denotes a real sense of urgency. And if you get caught up on how you feel, you're, you're headed for a world of hurt. You just are. You just are. Sobriety is not difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. I'm going to have to talk about, examine, get willing to do a bunch of stuff I've never been willing to do before. So, okay, welcome to the process. If it was easy, everybody in the world would be sober, right? But it, uh, it denotes me doing some things that I'm not, not too keen on doing. So it says on 66, it says, To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. Isn't that the truth? The usual outcome is that people continued to wrong us, and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse, and then we were sore at ourselves. Anybody been there? Mm-hmm. I should have. I wish I had. Next time I'm going to. And you replay that over and over, and you hate yourself because you couldn't be true. Couldn't be true to you. Says, but the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. That's an every-time statement. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. Right? Because the delusion is, if I can do it my way, I'll be happy. you got to ask yourself that question. Did you come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get your way or to get something different? Right? I've spent a lifetime sitting there thinking about how it should have gone and what y'all should have done and how it should have gone down. Mm. World, of delu- world of delusion. So the, this elusive fourth column nobody seems to talk about is on page 67. A couple paragraphs down, it says, Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Brand new concept. Own mistakes. I'm so not concerned with column one and column two. I'm really not. You could replace those with anybody's name, anybody's scenario. If you want to get free, you better look at you. Because the more time you spend looking at other people, the more unhappy you will become. You can take that principle on down the road. Because it will hold true. So it says, where have we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? See, this is the nature of the defect. This is where we're all the same. Julie's selfishness shows up and manifests very differently than mine. It does. See, Julie will run over you trying to make it work, trying to pile drive through life. I know better. I go behind the scenes quietly as I smile and get deceitful and fix whatever it is that I don't like and then go, huh? Right? That's what that, it manifests very differently. But it's the same defect. Selfish. We think we know what you need to be doing. How arrogant of me. But it it will show up differently. But this is the good news is that it's all the same. It just might, it just might appear a little bit different. So we're looking for selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. So if you've got somebody writing it out on notebook paper, that's all they're writing. Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Then they're going to write the ways according to that resentment as they work across the page. How were they selfish? How were they dishonest? And, and remember that dishonesty includes delusion more often than not. Right? Self-seeking. How was it all about me? Because isn't it always all about me? <laughs> frightened. What you'll find is that at the base of every resentment is a, is a core fear. 
It is the driving force of all of your actions, and, and I've never, ever known that to not be true. Now, here comes, the, here comes the rub. Sometimes it's like, well, man, that was a bad situation that happened to them. I mean, how can they even have a part in that? Let me show you where it is. Slide back over to 66. First full paragraph down, one line in, it says, the, um, to the precise extent that we permit these, meaning these resentments, this unhappiness, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? There you go. There you go. Is it your fault that you were touched inappropriately at three years old? Did you bring that on? No. You didn't play a part in that. As an adult, now that you're 47 and getting sober and have been unable to let it go your entire life, whose fault is that? You think you can have a new experience with a human being as you're carrying around the sickness from your past and justifying it why you get to drink? That's the part. See what I mean? There's always a part. What are you doing with it? Are you a molestation victim or are you a survivor? Those are very different things. Are you using it to help other men and women who have, have had similar experiences and have pain and bring them somewhere different and cool? Or are you still, wah, 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 I got touched at three? Wow. Right? Welcome to some truth in your life. Now that is hard to see. It's hard to see. And I'll tell you what, it's even harder to say sometimes. But if you love somebody... And like you love another alcoholic, you'll tell them the truth even if it's uncomfortable. Was it your fault you got raped? Mm-mm. No. But what are you doing with it? Right? This is what we're talking about. So back to 67, back to this paragraph. It says, though a situation had not been entirely our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. All right? So I, if I'm going to get somewhere different, it stands to reason I've got to know where I am. I, gotta, I have, a, have to have a clear depiction of where I am. And in the fourth step, where I am is bound by self. I made a decision in three to ask God to relieve me of the bondage of self, but in four I'm getting to see what bondage looks like. See, I'm, I'm bound my, by my defects. I am bound by selfishness. I am bound by delusion. I am bound by my martyrdom, my victim mentality. And I tell you what, guys, if you walk out of a fist up still a victim, you are in so much trouble. Victims do not get sober. They don't, and they damn sure don't stay sober. Don't. See, I've got to be free. If, I, if it's still out here... <laughs> that I'm still bound. If it can be in here, it can be changed. And I've got to be able to have that mentality to walk in. So step four is kind of like a, um, Cliff calls it a diagnostic step. Right? We're diagnosing what the problem really is. So as I, I've written a, an inventory, as, as Julie's listening to it, she's making a list of character defects that are, are, are spot on that are keeping me in bondage of self so that when I walk into 6 and 7, which she's going to talk about later, i got a clear idea of what I'm working with. God already knows what he's working with, but i got to get eyeballs on what I'm working with so that I can clearly give to God what, what's been shown. So it gets real important not to do a fifth step with just a buddy, somebody who's going to go, oh, I hear you. All right, move on. You know, bless your heart, darling. <laughs> I'd have drank too if I had that kind of life. You know, you want to. You, the the book is crystal clear that if you want to, um, if you want to do some inventory work with with um, a clergy person, if you want to do it with a pastor, if you want to do it with somebody of that nature, rock on. That's cool, but understand that's not 
what we're looking at. You need to go to confession. Alcoholics Anonymous so honors that. Awesome. Go do what you need to do. But get with a drunk to see the truth. Because this will not be about what do I need to be doing for forgiveness. You've already been forgiven by God. And we'll talk more about that in the ninth step step. You've already been forgiven. What we're looking at is what is blocking me from the sunlight of the Spirit. How many times have you gotten on your knees and said, God, please just help me stop drinking? And you said it with utter sincerity, only to get off your knees and find yourself loaded in short order. What happened? Were you not really sincere? No, of course you were. But you had too much stuff blocking you. Right? So I've got to get down to causes and conditions. Um, You know... I love Joe and Charlie that break down four-step inventory, and they talk about um, it being like a football replay. You know, those situations, those scenarios that you're writing about in the first couple columns, when you begin to replay those, because that's what resentment means, to replay it and then to essentially refeel it. Every time I replay that conversation I had with that woman 15 years ago, I replay it. I refeel it, and the madder I become, and the more she comes off looking like a jerk, and I come off looking like a victim. So it's kind of like a football replay where the first time you see it, you're like, ooh, that was a pretty hard hit. They got the quarterback, and they hit him pretty hard. That was bad. Then what are they going to do? They're going to slow it down and replay it. And as you see him flip up in the air, you're like, now, that didn't, that kind of looks like you need a penalty on that. Or it looks crazy. And as he hits the ground, you're like, now, that is wrong. That is wrong. So they're going to replay it about four times. So the fourth time, you're mad. You don't even care about the teams that are in it, but you're mad. And that's what that stuff does when I selfishly sit and ruminate over and over and over. And the inflection and tone in your voice change, and you get meaner and meaner every time you got on to me, or whatever it was that was said. That's (laughs) the obsession of my mind at this point, is that I've got to be right, and you've got to be wrong. Wow. I remember sitting in treatment, I had this old... I call him Old Man Dan. He was about 100. And we would sit in this place called the Butt Huts and smoke cigarettes. I never went to gym. I hardly went to class. He would sit out there and teach me big book. And he used to ask me, kid, do you want to be right or do you want to be at peace? And I was like, well, I want to be both. (laughs) Don't we all? Don't we all? Welcome to being a a grown-up. Do you want to be right or do you want to be free? Do you have the ability to look at something for what it is and go, you know what, can't change any of that, but where I was at fault was I set the ball rolling by the comments that I made and the decision I made that I knew what was best for everybody, and so this is essentially my part, and I can do something with that and let the rest of it go. Right? But I, I don't know about y'all, but I've decided to let stuff go in the past, only to 45 minutes find myself later irritated with you again. I don't know how to let that kind of stuff go. And so this is the process that inventory is going to drive me into seeing what the truth is. And after I can see what the truth is, back on 67, where it says we placed them before us in black and white, it's real hard to argue with the paper, <laughs> right? It's the list. I mean, I'm looking at a list of character defects that I am not thrilled to have, but I can't argue with the paper because it's dead on. It's based upon the facts. So it says we admitted them honestly and we're willing to set these matters straight. The question then becomes, do you like what you see? Are you willing to go to any lengths to change that? Because I'm a lot like Julie in the fact that I, I thought I was a giver. I've been told by my mother since I was tiny that I was precious. She always said that you're the most precious thing God ever made. <sighs> God, you know, I believed that. And when I got into AA and they said, problems are your own making, I went, Excuse me, precious. <laughs> you know, 
Maybe you didn't hear the first three columns, right? But I had to get driven into a point. See, what happens is we, we come into a fist step prepared to sort of pseudo-plead our case, right? Because we've been doing it in the bars for a number of years. Guess what she did? And guess what he said, right? And a strong sponsor, 10 times out of 10, will spin the tables on you and show you, I hear you, darling, but here's the truth. Oh, like a... Mm. <laughs> gut in the, you know, knife in the belly. But it, that's the most freeing thing that will ever happen to you. I remember walking out of his fist step and going, oh, I'll be damned, it's my fault. How cool is that? How cool is that? It kind of takes the defensive component right on out of it. So we look at this this resentment inventory, and then we're going to move on to the fear inventory. There's a couple, you know, there's lots of different ways to, to write fear inventory. You can do it in columns. You can do it in par- whatever. What, what I've got to see is the same thing. So down on 67, it says, the short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. If you can't trace a resentment to fear, you hadn't worked because it's the driving force every single time. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through it. It's kind of like, um, you ever seen like a, a knit sport coat? Right? And there's so many tiny little intricate colors, you can't even tell what color is what because it's so woven. That's what fear is. It gets in your cells, in your tissue. It's at the core of every single thing. It's just woven. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. Right? This is crosses lines with resentment and with fear. What happens, why resentment is the number one offender is it turns to self-pity like that. Then I wear it like a cloak of dignity. Right? Oh, have you been through this? No? Step to the side. I get to act however I want to. I get to get loaded. I get to dot, dot, dot. Right? That's the problem with this stuff that turns to self-pity. But did we not ourselves set the ball rolling? Absolutely. you got to think about it like this. I, I, I create fear out of my selfish way of living. Fear is always driven by a selfish motive. I want what I want. Myers always says that's the battle cry of every drunk I've ever known. Smartest thing I ever heard. I want what I want, and I'm afraid I'm not going to get it, or you're going to get it first, or you're going to take it from me. But I'm all about me. Out of my selfish mode of living, that modality drives me into fear, which places me in a position of what? To panic and then begin to think of, who's my thinkers in here? Anybody (laughs) thinkers, plotters, planners, right? God, it just, ooh. It places me in a position of self-reliance. And then I begin to concoct plans and set things in motion. Then when it backfires, I want to spin around and go, hey, point the finger at you. Who set it all in motion? Oh, me, because I panicked. I didn't think I was going to get what I wanted. So I did what? I was dishonest, deceitful, manipulative, self-serving, inconsiderate of you and what was going on in your world because I got my eye on the prize. Right, so I've got to get down and look at this stuff. So sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Early on in sobriety, I used to read this text and think, God Almighty, they're so dramatic in the way that they write. But if they're really, really not. It ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Why? It's the driving force of every wrong decision, every bad action, every poor decision that I've ever made. Every single one of them can be traced by, back to that. So it says, we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper, even though we had no resentment in connection with them. So I'm going to get out some paper. I'm going to list, what are my fears? What is it that I'm always afraid of? And there's tons of fears out there. You could be afraid of just about anything. And the truth is, most of us are afraid of the opposite, too. Afraid of failure, but you're afraid to succeed, too. 
what would you do then? Right? You're afraid to be alone, but you're also afraid to be in a committed relationship. You know, it, it's the funniest thing. I'm afraid of everything a lot of times. I want to act like I'm not afraid of anything, but that's just not the truth. So I'm going to list what fears I have. Um, and then it says we asked ourselves why we had them. So I'm going to list the fears, then I'm going to ask, why do I have it? If I'm afraid of being alone, why might that be? Um, it's uncomfortable. Um, there's nobody else to rely on. I'm afraid of what people will think about me being alone. Stuff like that, right? Wasn't it because self-reliance failed me? Everything I touch turns to crap. So it says self-reliance was good as far as it went, but it didn't go far enough. Some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. This is Jim. When it made us cocky, it was worse. You ever watch those people that come into the room, got to let you know they're in the room? That's not about arrogance. It only appears that way. That's about absolute paralyzing fear. Right? Mm-hmm. When it made us cocky, it was worse. It's real hard to watch, mm-hmm. especially when you know what the driving force is. It's like, oh, darling, we see you. Sit down. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to be at the top of everything, the best of everything, the head of everything, places, people. It's about fear, not about arrogance. Right? So I'm going to look at what is the fear, why do I have the fear, and am I relying on me or am I relying on my creator? I love to watch people get confused around that question. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's possible I'm relying on God. Really? You sure? <laughs> if you're relying on God, are you in paralyzing fear? No. No. So, I mean, you could get real detailed with it if you wanted to. Have you been relying on you or God? In what areas have you not been, right? You can trace it on out if you want to, but the important thing is to see the truth. I'm afraid to be alone. Why? All the reasons I listed a moment ago. Where has self-reliance failed me? I stay in relationships too long I don't need to be in. Or I get in relationships when I'm clear that I don't need to. Have you ever had that? We all have that God-given intuition. It's just a matter of are you awake to it or not. Mm -hmm. But have you ever had that where you go, don't do that, don't do that. You've got that gripping, it's kind of like it crushes your tummy. It makes you go, don't, 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 don't. And you do it anyway. <laughs> it's about self-reliance, right? Self-reliance availed me nothing. Kind of like self-knowledge. Self-anything is going to be <laughs> wind up on the floor. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. So that's about self-reliance. So once I get down and look at that, I can see that my faith, it's not that I don't have capacity for faith in something bigger. It's that it's been misplaced and I've had it in me. Because isn't that what you're taught when you're little? Audrey, have a goal. Have drive. Have determination. Set a plan. Make a path. Don't count on anybody else. Get it. Right? And we just kind of pile drive through life, giving it 100%, bumping into everybody and everything, stepping on toes as we go, getting our little feelings hurt when things don't pan out. I love when it says, what happens? The show doesn't come off very well. <laughs> I wrote the word shocking above that line. Right? Everything I turn to, I've got a death grip on because I'm driven by fear. It's the funniest thing to, to watch these little drunks come in and they've got their talons gripped around a life of destruction that they hate and they're terrified to let it go. Driving force of my action. Horrible to watch. Says perhaps there's a better way. And this is based on the experience of the first 100. We think so. For we're now on a different basis. Basis of what? Having made a third step commitment, because that's what it is. The commitment. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We're in the world to play the role He assigns. 
Isn't that a concept? So instead of steady handing out parts to all the rest of the actors and exes, get on your exes, <laughs> places, I'm in the world to play the role he assigns. And that's it. Me and him, no one else. This is what we're talking about. Just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? This is what they mean by living life on God's terms, not living life on life's terms. That's a common confusion. Living life on life's terms, we know what that looks like. That's what it looks like out there in the third dimension. We're attempting to slide on over into the fourth dimension, living on a spiritual basis, which is a brand new world for most of us. Right? Enable us to match calamity with serenity. That's one of the biggest promises I love because it's the difference between me manhandling life and then let, or on the flip side, letting life come at me connected to the power of God. Very different. Very different. So it says down here we've got the, the, uh, and I forgot about the resentment prayer. We'll go back and look at that. Um, down at the, okay. Alright, so we're looking at the fear prayer in the next paragraph. Um, it says, the verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. It's more like faith produces courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. <laughs> demonstrate through us what he can do. Here we go. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. Not for him to fix the situation to my liking. Because that was my previous prayer. God, get on it. Fix it. Look at it. Pay attention. Right? No. What would you have me be? Very different. And I tell you what, we always think that's about action. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's sit down and hush. Don't touch it. Don't call her. Don't get on top of that. Don't mention it. Leave it alone. I learned that more often than not. It's a painful lesson over and over. Sit down and hush. It says that once we, be, we commence to outgrow fear, this is the point where I stop trying to manhandle and begin to be of maximum service. Right? But the deal is we're all waiting to trust God and feel connected and okay before we take action. Because that's kind of how we do it in third dimension. We use logic. We worship the God of reason. If it makes sense, do it. If we can, if we can wrap our brains around it, it's a good idea. Not so. Not so in recovery. I'm not waiting to overcome fear to take necessary action. I take necessary action and then I begin to overcome mm-hmm. fear. It's everything in here is backwards. It makes no sense. And that's okay. I mean, how have we lived our whole life? Why do you need it to make sense now? <laughs> right? Put down the bottle of whiskey. Just try it. Just try it. This is all that we're looking for. Well, I, I do want to kind of talk about that resentment stuff and, and, and for just a second because, um, where where it talks about it's kind of like we all have these resentments and we think that we can wish them away and wish them away and we're not talking about even when we're just come in let's talk about when we're three months down the line or six months or five years down the line and all of a sudden we're more sober and we're smarter and better and look at me I'm so successful in AA <laughs> right I was like I've arrived um, but we we start getting these little resentments and we think we can wish them away 
And we can't. And we really need to be real clear on that. I cannot wish resentments away. So it says that this is our course of action. See, it says to be free to live. If we were to live, we had to be free of this anger. Because, see, one resentment is going to cut us off from the sunlight of the spirit. And the insanity to drink is going to return. And we will drink. And for us to drink is to die. And so we have to be free of this anger. It doesn't say you might want to think about it. It says we must be free of this. And who's going to make this possible but God? Um, and so we have a definite course to take. Now, it, when, and, and in talking about that resentment prayer, I love, I love people, I think, get a little bit um, confused. Um, because I, I hear a lot of times, well, um, I pray for them. <sighs> I'm not, (laughs) and I don't really care what happens to them, (laughs) right? What I need changed is me. I have to change. My sponsor set me straight on this pretty quick and says, here's our course. Now, we realize that people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick, and a lot of us, we like to stop right there, right? We like to go, well, they're sick, bless their hearts, because we don't want to read on. It says, because my sponsor will look at he goes, like you, Julie, <laughs> love you, but you're sick too, right? Um, and, and so we realize that they're spiritually sick. Now, though we do not like their symptoms, like spiritual symptoms can seep out different ways. Um, you can, we can be arrogant, we can be critical, we can be, you know, whatever it is, these spiritual symptoms can, and when they disturb me, right, if it disturbs me, I don't like that. Um, but then I have to go, well, they, like ourselves, are sick too, so they're no different from me. I do not get to place myself above anybody. When I do that, I become arrogant. If I think because your symptoms are sicker than mine, I'm worse than you are because then I'm in judgment. So it says to, it says we ask God to help us. Who are we going to ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend? Now, sometimes this is quite difficult, especially if we've had somebody that has really, really harmed us, right? So, so, so that's why I say sometimes I don't give a rat's ass if that person lives or dies. And I'm going to be honest about that. At least I'm honest. Because this is what I need to do. It says, when a person offended, we said to ourselves, hey, God, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? I can be helpful by not saying a word. I can be helpful by leaving. I can be helpful by never talking to them again if I can't be patient, kindly, and tolerant. Right? This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. See, who am I asking God to change? Me. Am I asking God to change that guy? Absolutely not, because my world should not matter if they change or not. See, I need to get okay with whether you change or not. 
The deal is that if I don't change, I'm going to drink again. If my attitude doesn't change, I'm going to drink again. What What's going to cut me off from the sunlight of the spirit but one resentment, right? So I've got to be free of that anger. I've got to be free of it for me to live and walk free. It doesn't matter what people in this world do, say, think, or feel. I get to walk free of that. I have a course of action to get there, though. It's not about me sitting around and going, um, turn it over. I turned it over, and then I took it back. Well, really? Then you really didn't get on a course of action. Because if you get on a course of action, I guarantee you, you will be free of this. Does that make sense? Um, going on to the fear. Uh, is that good? Mm-hmm. you have anything else on that? No, no. Um, moving on, on the fear thing. I don't know about y'all, but I'm a... I was always one of those friends that everybody would call me for advice, <laughs> drunk or not. Like, um, and and I always considered myself a pretty strong woman. And so when they when they said you need to write down your fears, and I thought that is funny because I am I fear nothing. I'm afraid of nothing. Or, um, or like Audrey said, I will plow through you in a minute to get what I need. I started writing my fears, and I had. A book of fears. And that's why I say this is just a matter of getting pen to paper and we get honest with the paper. I mean, I I wrote down every single fear that I couldn't believe how much stuff, how many decisions, how much you played a part in every decision I made and how afraid I was of what you thought of me because it clearly showed on the paper. See, we can sit around and think all we want and be in the self-delusion of what we think we are and who we think we are. But when we get to the paper, and that's what this fourth step is all about. It's fact-finding, fact-facing to discover the truth about us. It's not to discover the drama. It's to discover the truth about. I don't care how it got. It's kind of like a friend of mine always says, you know, it's, it's like getting the, the sour milk, right? You got, if you're in a store and there's sour milk, I don't care how the sour milk got sour. It's sour. How are we going to discard it and get rid of it promptly without regret? Okay, I don't know about y'all, but that's the coolest promise right there. In the beginning, we're going to discard this and get rid of it promptly and without regret. Meaning, look, when we write this stuff out, it looks ugly. I don't know about y'all, but I'm sitting here writing, especially when she gets to the next inventory, that sex inventory. I'm like, I, ouch, right? And so I'm going ucky, ucky, ucky. And to tell me that in the beginning, before I even start putting this to paper, that I promise you, I promise you, and you better promise your protégés, promise you, as you write this, I promise you, you can get rid of this promptly and without regret, and God will take this to a different place and let you use it. See, I know that when I made that third step, and it's going to be followed up later, I nothing in my life happened because it happened for me. It happened so that I can be of service to him. How cool is that? I think I'm good. Okay. All right. So back on 68 down at the bottom, we're going to roll into some sex inventory. 
Um, where are we at? 11.30. So we're going to 11.45. Okay. All right. So now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling there. Raise your hands. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Some of you just voluntarily. <laughs> me! Take me. We're going we're gonna to do some sex inventory. Um, but it says, above all, we try to be sensible on this question. I tell you what, I've never heard so many opinions in my whole oh, life yeah. than when we get down to some sex inventory. Um, and really what this is looking like is how am I interacting with other people and what does that really look like? That's, that's the question when we're looking at this inventory. So it says it's easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions, highlight human opinions, <laughs> running to extremes, ex- absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cries, sex is the lust of our lower nature, a base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are, race are traceable to sex causes. We don't have enough of it. It's not the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would amount would allow man no flavor for his fear and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet it's kind of like a spectrum there are those of us out here who believe in monogamy marriage heterosexual relationships there are those of us that believe in anything goes and then you will find a variation anywhere on that spectrum it matters none so not interested in your beliefs not one bit when i sit down to look at sex conduct inventory because that's the word conduct how am i conducting myself inside of these engagements and interactions i don't care what julie's thoughts are on marriage i really don't i need to know where are you seeing me manifesting sickness by my character defects where am i showing up that's what i need to know i don't care if you think it's okay to be gay i don't care if you think it's okay to to have sex before marriage i don't care and I'm not here to tell you all the freaky stuff I've done. I've done some freaky stuff. Too. I've done some freaky stuff. Really nice, right? So is you. And that's, it's funny. And, and there's some times that, that you've got some, some pain around that. You've got some shame around it. And you want to admit some of that to your sponsor. Have at it. You need to get some stuff off your chest. So cool. Go for it. Understand it's not about confession. That's not what it is. I don't need a list of everybody you've ever slept with. I'm not impressed. No one is. I've got to look for causes and conditions inside the confines of these interactions. And so we're going to get down to it. So it says, I'm not going to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. That is so important. As a sponsor, you better get with that. I'm not the arbiter of your sex conduct. I can't believe you had sex before you were married. No. Not okay. We all have sex problems. What a relief. Mm -hmm. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? So this is where I get down to to looking at some, you know, fourth column, so to speak, in sex inventory. So it says, we reviewed our own conduct over the years past. I'm not here to talk to you about those men, those situations, and what they did to me. I'm here to talk to you about how I showed up and interacted within it. Right? I'm going to review my conduct over the years past. Where was I selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? So this is kind of a repeat of the resentment inventory and what it looked like. Where was I selfish in these relationships? Now, I've got to look at that and write that out. I don't check off. I was selfish, check. Dishonest, check. I I need to see it for what it is. So whom had we hurt? My first inclination is to say, me. I got hurt. And maybe the, the other person. You want to see a ripple in a pond? Get into some sex conduct inventory. Who picked up the pieces when the relationship broke? 
or when it went through all the troubled waters based on your selfishness. Um, that other person's coworkers when they couldn't show up sufficiently at work, your family who had to listen to it for years, your children who were neglected because you were running into yourself, so to speak, in this relationship. Get honest about that. Who got hurt? I've got to know the truth. Did I unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? This is not always about the act of sex. It can certainly play out in the bedroom, but it's not always about the act of sex. What part did you play trying to get your way? Where did you cause suspicion? Are you shady around the checkbook? Are you deleting text messages so they don't go through your phone? Where are you? Bitterness. Can you let go of anything? Are you consistently bringing that up? Are you consistently playing the role of the victim, trying to shame people into feeling bad? Where is self-pity playing a role in your life and in your relationships? Um, jealousy. That's about the easiest one to see. What are what have you been jealous of? What have you caused jealousy in other people about? <clears throat> I know it irritates him when I spend all my time with my mother, so I just do it to spite him. <laughs> right? That's not about the bedroom. That's about me. Right? This is so not about sex. It's really not. It's about the engagement you have with another human being. Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? So this is a point in which my little stage characters come in live and live in color, and I get to see what I did, what I really did. Because most of us, especially all the women in this room, we've been harmed. That's the mentality that we walk into this with. Let me tell you what they did. Right? Why'd you stay? What role did that play? How did that serve you? Wow. Oh, I got to cry about it on everybody's shoulder. I got to be the victim. I got to elude sympathy from the people around me. If you felt sorry for me, I felt okay. Wow. Did you did you slaughter this other person's character in 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 the meantime? Absolutely. Every single time. What role did you play? I've got to look at it. Says so we got this down on paper and looked at it. So it can be just as simplistic as this. I have women that will write out that relation write the name. Write this the next question. Where were you selfish? And jot it down. Just as simple as we did in the fourth column of the resentment inventory. Where were you dishonest and considerate? Whom got hurt? You will see more stuff pop up here, more pain pop up here. And here's the deal. I've never seen anything more redundant in my whole life. All these relationships. Oh, they're all very different. No, they're not. (laughs) No, they have different names and different faces. But you are the same <laughs> consistently in all these relationships. The way you interact and the way that you try to get your way looks the same. It's kind of like we're all fighting for the power. We're all fighting to be on top of it. And if I can control it, manage it, manifest what I think I need, I'll be okay. Were you? How'd that work? Well, I've got 15 broken relationships on my inventory. Didn't pan out very well. Didn't pan out very well. It's important to see what does that really look like. Because here's the deal. If you want to get somewhere different, you better know where you're at. Well, I didn't handle relationships very well, but, you know, God will fix that later. No, no. Get down to it. You want you want to show up differently? See where you're at. Right? So it says, in this way, we try to shape. Ooh, it's fluid. Shape. A sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. See, at this point, I'm making a Santa Claus list. Of all the stuff that I want in a relationship. Julie, who I hate when she does this, she marks through stuff. 
She's written in my book. She's marked through stuff I've written on paper. It's super irritating. But I made like a whole list of, I'm shaping sane and sound future ideals. This is what I need in a man. And it looked like physical characteristics. It looked like he better be from the South. It, I mean, a whole bunch of, she starts marking them off. And I'm like, I don't think you're supposed to do that. <laughs> Me and God, you know. But here's the thing. She said, don't make a Santa Claus list. Wait on what God's got for you. Sane and sound ideals looks like, what do I want to bring to a relationship? It is better be the complete opposite of what I just saw in sex inventory. What do I need a partner to bring to a relationship? I'm looking at characteristics. I'm looking at values. I'm looking at core belief systems. The cool stuff. The stuff that matters. Right? Not, does he or she drive a BMW? Will they tolerate my smoking? It, wow. Really? I remember one of the first first things I tried to shape, there were four things on it. That's how poorly I showed up in sex conduct is that I can only think of four things trying to shape a sane and sound. But we, neither one of us could be in a relationship because I'm notorious for sleeping with your boyfriend. Right? That, that was one. There had to be some sort of emotional involvement because I'm notorious also for kicking them out and nice to meet you. Okay. I was so limited. And if I had confined that, the word shape would have lost its value. Because my sane and sound ideals today are not what they were six and a half years ago. Thank God they have been molded and added to and taken from and, and conformed. Right? So I'm going to shape this. It says we subjected each relation to the test. Was it selfish or not? Here's the first sex prayer. We ask God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. I'm not out shopping. I'm, I'm trying to be those. Well, everything I said I wanted in a partner, I'm trying to be that. I'm trying to get with some honesty. I'm trying to roll with some integrity. I'm trying to be the, the child of God I was designed to be. You guys get with that? More often than not, what we see is in early sobriety, we're all looking for somebody to fix us. Don't. Not because it's a rule from the big book, but because don't rob yourself of the experience of what God can do with you mm-hmm. first. And then let the cool stuff come at you. It's the neatest thing to watch Watch these men and women in sobriety. It says, we remember always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selfishly, nor to be despised or loathed. And you're going to see that in sex inventory, that you've used your sex powers lightly and selfishly. Do you flirt just because you can? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You bend over just a little to the left and make sure he saw it. You <laughs> pick up the pen off the floor. <laughs> you know? I love that. Women always in sobriety complaining about, the men are staring me down. Right, but you're getting up in the middle of the meeting to go get coffee, shaking your ass right by him. Really? What do you expect? That's right. It's the truth. And women are, we're just as bad, if That's not right. worse, Say it. than the men. Right? Stop complaining about that stuff because you're using your sex powers lightly and selfishly. Mm-hmm. Selfishly. I gotta get down with it and look at it. Whatever our ideals turn out to be, we must be willing to grow towards it, which means I'm gonna stumble. We're gonna talk about that in a minute too. I'm gonna fall. I made lots of mistakes. I flirted with people. I did all kinds of nonsense and Julie'd be like, come on back to the book. He's engaged. See the ring? Let's go. Alright? I didn't know what I was doing. That's what a sponsor, they kinda hoard you in and back to the book, but she let me make a bunch of mistakes and bust my butt and run into myself to see what this text was talking about. I'm going to have these ideals, and I'm going to be willing to grow towards them. So it says at the bottom of that paragraph, this is your second prayer, in meditation we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. I love this. The right answer will come, circle if we want it. 
right? I'm telling you what, I've never, I've never been around a bunch of people that had more, you know, God-given intuition who wanted to ignore it. You know it because it's going against the grain every single time. I know I need to not be doing this, or I know I need to jump headlong in this, but just I don't want to. Well, then stay where you're at. Sad. Stay where you're at. If you want it, you're about to get taken to another level, a whole nother level. But it says God alone can judge our sex situation. That's the truth. Counsel with other persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. I'm telling you, I love nothing better than bounce stuff off of people. Women in the fellowship, men in the fellowship, my sponsor, my grand sponsor, let's talk about this stuff. Let's wrestle with these ideas. Cool. Who's going to be the final judge? My creator, period. End of sentence. Mm-hmm. End of sentence. Because if you begin to make decisions based on what people tell you they think you ought to do, where will your reliance be? Always on them. Always on them. If I'd have done every single thing that Julie ever thought I should have done, I would have had to go to her every time and say, what do you think? What should I do? Should I leave? Should I stay? Should I date this one? Should I? Not her job. Her job is to get me connected to the power of God so that God can direct me. And if I'm awake, I hear it. And if I'm willing not to go back to step one, I listen to that stuff. So it says, um, oh, I lost my page. It says, we realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. So we've got all these opinions. The last thing you ever want from a drunk is an opinion. I assure you, right? I'm going to go to go to the source, which is my God. It says, we avoid hysterical thinking or advice. I can promise you this. Guys, God does not come hysterically. <laughs> he doesn't. Those thoughts that you have that are hysterical come from you. He's the one. I gotta get him. Right? That's you. That's not the gentle urging of your creator. Are you flashing back? <laughs> Just sponsor me for too long. But those, those hysterical thoughts come from your peers. They come from your family. They come from a lot of well-meaning, intentioned people who go, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. Get with God. Follow those those nudgings. I challenge you to. So it says support and even our own. Those, we got some hysterical thinking. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Suppose is a big old funny word in that book. You will. You'll fall short and you'll stumble because you're so human. You're not going to walk on water because you got sober. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so. A lot of people will tell you so. You made a mistake. You're sick. You're an untreated alcoholic and you're about to get drunk. Really? Or are you human making mistakes because you're living life? I love for a woman to tell me, oh, my God, Audrey, I swear I just feel like I'm making so many mistakes. Good. That means you're living. You've been sitting alone drinking in the garage for seven years. You're, you're out here stepping on toes and making mistakes. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome to learning how to live. Absolutely. Welcome to growing up in sobriety. says, this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. Here's the key point. If we're sorry for what we've done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and we'll have learned our lesson. Let me get transparent with you for a moment. In early sobriety, I was having a sexual relationship with a man who was engaged. I was. And Julie said to me, here's, here's what the text says. I'm concerned about you. I want to show you what the book says, and I want to talk about it. And we did. I didn't get drunk. I was sorry for what I had done. And when I, when I was convicted by the power of God, not by my sponsor, she didn't berate me. She didn't make me feel like the scum of the earth. She didn't do that. But it was in the moments of aloneness 
when I realized who I had become. I had become the woman that I judged, right? That came from my creator who said, Audrey, you don't want to do that anymore. And I got up and I never did it again. And to this day, I've never done it again. But that's not about her saying, you better not. You better don't speak to him. No, that's about a reliance and an experience with the power of God. Don't force your protégés to act right. Don't. Let them have an experience with it. And if I'd have needed to bust in my butt and drank over it, that's what I needed to do. But be smart enough to get out of the path of self-will. Don't interrupt that. Don't interrupt that. That's where the experience is to be found. Can you all get with that? All right. It's hard. It's a beating. It's a beating. So it says, if we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we're quite sure to drink. If something's brought into my awareness and I continue to choose over and over and over to do what I want to do, what the literature says is I'm quite sure to drink if I'm not willing to do something different. We're not theorizing. These are facts out of our experiences. You know how many bodies they stepped over to get that experience? Mm. Tons. Tons. So it says, to sum up about sex, here's your third sex prayer. We earnestly pray for the right ideal. For guidance in each questionable situation. For sanity. That's a good one. And for the strength to do the right thing. Nothing harder than knowing what the right thing is to do and, and having a hard time doing it. It is like an out-of-body experience to watch yourself do the right thing. Some of us for the very first time. It is a powerful experience to step back and go, Oh my God, I continue to make the right decisions even though I didn't want to. How cool is that? That's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's that's what we're talking about. It says if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. So if relationships, sex relations, this kind of dating, your marriage, if you're having problems, don't sit and fix it alone. Because that's what we do. I don't know why we do that, but we sure do. I'm having an issue. Let me get in the corner and think about it. Don't talk to anybody about it. Analyze it logically. Don't. Go down to the halfway house and see if there's a man or a woman you can talk to. Go down to the 24-hour club. I don't know if they have those in California. Go to, go to a treatment center, a detox, a jail. Go share your story with a busted drunk. Mm-hmm. Right? You go to work on them. God goes to work on your issues. Don't fix it. Don't fix it. That's what we always want to do. I'm sober now. Let me go to work on don't. Your toolkit is still shady. <laughs> don't know what you're doing. Put it down. What you can do is go work with another alcoholic and watch God take care of your problems. We think of their needs and work for them. This takes us out of ourselves. It quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartaches. And then they're going to wrap some stuff up. They're talking about inventory in general. It says we've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We've commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. This is the promise of the resentment prayer. We've begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We've listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you're convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. Isn't it funny that you came in here not to be drinking? You're trying to get free of the bottle, and what we're, they're driving at is you really need to get free of you. That's what we're looking for. Self-will run riot. If you've made a decision, meaning that third-step commitment, and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, meaning your large, largest handicaps, you've made a good beginning. It's like, dang, I thought I just did something. No, you made a good beginning. There's still a lot left to be done. That being so, if you swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself, 
right? So self has me blocked from the sunlight. Fourth step is about getting down to causes and conditions of this so that when I walk into a fifth step, I can see the truth and then subsequently get free of it. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're looking at. Now that we've broken it down, it doesn't seem so big and bad and scary. Not really. You'll hear a lot of that in the meetings, too. Oh, my God, you're on your fourth step. Bless your heart. Mm-hmm. Don't scare the newcomer with stuff like that. That's nonsense. It's the most freeing exercise you can do before you roll into some amends and, and get into to living in the sunlight of the Spirit. Julie, what do you got? Well, I, that's such a good point. You know, we always sit around in meetings and we hear, oh, I'm on the fourth step, the dreaded fourth step, the dreaded fourth step. And, and it's such a BS because, that, I mean, the whole thing about the fourth step is to, to, to bring light to, to, to these to us, the truth about us. And, and, and the cool thing is, is that for the first time, I actually saw who I really was. I mean, I am sitting there. I, I actually saw, I'm, oh my God, I'm arrogant. Like, I didn't know that. <laughs> I just thought I was strong. I just, you know, and, and I mean, all these things start coming to light and start coming to light. Um, and, and the, that sex inventory and on each inventory. Here's one thing about the four step is that there's so many, and I know there's so many different ways that people do it. And, and the book lays it out so beautifully and simply. Mm-hmm. All you need is the big book. You don't even, and a piece of paper and a pen. Um, and, but there's different, and I don't really give a rat patootie, um, how you do it. Just get her done. Get her done. And I don't care how many resentments you have. I don't care. Just, Give me your top ten. You know, I mean, people are like, I had 70. Like, I had 130. I'm like, really? I don't know that many people. (laughs) But that's all right. And then they're all like, oh, my God, I have to go back to to the very first person. Johnny on the playground hit me with a rock. If Johnny on the playground that hit you with a rock doesn't bother you today, I don't care about Johnny on the playground. Does that make sense? It's kind of like everybody wants to do it so thorough that they go way overboard. We're such extremists. God, I love us. And so um, just get her done. I, I always say get on your Nike shoes and get her done. Just do it. Um, but we get to that sex inventory, and, and there we go with those opinions. And, and I really just want one more time to express that this is about me finding my truth. This is not about my sponsor pointing out my truth. This is not about my sponsor taking me to a different place. This is about me letting God take me to a different place. Nobody, nobody, nobody gets to tell me what is right or what is wrong. Nobody. Only God does. Nobody gets to be my judge. Nobody. Don't you dare sit in front of another human being and do their fist step and judge them. If you're going to do that, get out. Because that's the worst thing we can do. That is none of our business. It is a business of getting them connected to God. That's our business so that God can take them to a different place if he sees fit. God alone can judge, period. I can I can get advice from you guys because I know y'all think like I do and I know y'all like are on the same page with me. But you know what? When I get quiet with God, that's who gives me my direction. Nobody else does. Because let me tell you, I've had some, I've had some stuff go on. And, and when it came to, I had a little, I literally put ouch 
next to the sex inventory because that hurt worse than anything. I was in a relationship, an abusive relationship with a man. I was married to him, um, and, and when after I did all the inventory, I saw how I put myself in that position, and it hurt. And it hurt. I saw how I was, my mistakes that I made. I wasn't all to blame. We're not always all to blame, but we have to look for our own mistakes. Where was I wrong? Where, where were my mistakes? Why? Because we gotta put the other person aside totally. Putting them out of our minds, right? Putting their mistakes out of our minds. Where did I resolutely make the mistakes? So that I can take that to God later and let him deal with me. Does that make sense? So we're looking for the truth about who? Me. I got to, this is my inventory, not anyone else's. How free do you want to be? That's the question. How free do you want to be? Do you want to walk free from this anger? Yeah? Well, come on. We can do it. All right. I think we're breaking for lunch. On page 72, we're talking about the fifth step. So we've just gotten done with that fourth step, and we've written it out, and we're like, ow, holy cow, this hurts. (laughs) I don't like myself. We're like these wounded dogs. You know, and I always say it's, it's amazing to me what God does because I believe that truly we're shown little by little by little because if we saw all the truth at once, we'd be like open wounded dogs who couldn't lick themselves well. So that's why that's why you're stuck with us for a lifetime. we got a lifetime of learning of our truth. But um, in the beginning here, it says, having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? Here's the question. We've been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. That's the goal. The goal is to get a new attitude. Like, my old attitude sucked. <laughs> i got to get a new one, a new relationship. It didn't say you didn't have a relationship. It's like, how's that working for you? Let's try a new one. You know, we're going to get a new relationship with this creator and to discover the obstacles in the past and find out what is that self-will that blocked me off from him. Um, it's, it's, and it also goes on to say we've admitted certain defects, right? Like, come on, haven't we all in our lifetime, I, I love, I, we walk down the street and we can put our finger on the rough items in our life and we can kind of say, yeah, 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 I know that's wrong with me or yeah, yeah, I know I do that and, and that's, that's as far as we get. And we just keep walking, right? Here's the cool thing about this. It says, now these are about to be cast out. What a great promise that is. They're going to be cast out. And this requires action on our part. So we're going to have to do something, which when completed will mean that we have admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. And I always say this is not about our sponsor. This is not, I have to admit this to another human being, but this isn't about the human being that's sitting across from me. This is about me and God. I just need that vessel that's sitting across from me because otherwise I'm not getting humble. Because for I don't know about y'all, but I was like one of those super women. I had the big S on my chest. I did it all drunk, but I did it all. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I can do everything and better than you. So what's going to happen is that We've got to get the S off the chest. We've got to get the, all that stuff broken down and get to who I am for real. 
Um, it talks about how this is difficult, right? Who likes to say, who likes to admit their mistakes? I don't know. Maybe y'all like, woohoo. No, not me. <laughs> uh-uh. Mm-mm. So it's difficult. They knew it was difficult back then. We know it's difficult today. Um, especially discussing our defects with another person. We think we've done well enough admitting these things to ourselves, right? Thought so. But there's doubt about that in actual practice. We find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. Many of us thought it was necessary to go much further. We will be more reconciled in discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. When I see a good reason, I don't ever, ever want to drink again. That's a good reason. That's the only reason I need right now. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. And time and time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. It's it's crazy because I remember telling my sponsor the one thing that I said I would take to the grave. The one thing that absolutely nobody on this earth would ever know. And I told it, and I admitted it, and he um, he kind of chuckled, and he said, you're not the only one. <laughs> and how relieving was that? I'm not the only one. And I it was the deep, dark secret that I thought I was so bad. And how cool is this that this gets to be cast out? Trying to avoid this humbling experience, they have turned to easier methods. How many times did we all just sit in the room trying to avoid this experience? Or what, whatever it is, how many easier methods did we do? I don't know about y'all. I went to Dr. Phil. I did this. I did that, right? All these easier methods, therapy, um, whatever it was that I didn't have to do this. Anything but this. Oh, but they got drunk. Hey. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is that they never completed the house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egoism and fear, and they only thought they had humbled themselves. Here's the kicker. That's what this whole step is about. That's why I've got a sponsor in front of me, because it's about humbling myself, losing my fear, losing my ego, getting down to the nitty-gritty, and busting me up. Not for them, but for me to get connected to this power. Because most people lead double lives, right? It's like the whole actor. I call it the the mask that we wear. I was so good at it, right? We think we are. <laughs> I put on the here's the soccer mom mask. Here's the, here's the uh, church lady mask. Here's here's the the, the bar mask, <laughs> right? We have all these different lives that we lead, and the, and then in our hearts we know we don't deserve it. I was driving over here this morning with the girls, and and I was talking to you know those little ladies in church, and oh my God, I love them, and I still love them, and I have friends like that, and they're just all sweet, and they I'm I'm loud, right? 
I know y'all know. I can't help it. <laughs> I'm just loud. And and I always wanted to be one of those sweet how they talk like this. They just they just talk like this and they get their point across. I want I want to be like I thought that's how I should be. All through I kept thinking that's what it need that's how I need to be. That's not how God made me. God made me loud. I don't know why. And so I, I put on that mask, and I try to be this, and I try to be this, and, and with all my will and all my might, I try to be something I'm not. Why? To impress you? So we've got we've to let, through this step, what happens is we let God take down all those masks and mold us into that person he intended us to be in the first place. Yes, Julie, you are loud. If you're performing my work well and sticking close to me, who cares what anybody else thinks? Does that make sense? Yeah. The thing is, is that's the part we, we get into this later in sobriety, too, because we like to put up the good AA front, and we like to say, yes, I'm doing great, yes, I'm doing great, yes, I'm doing great, and inside we're dying. We're dying. We see this in the rooms a lot. We're on our way. We're doing well. We're doing well. And then all of a sudden we keep, and we'll talk about it later, but, I mean, this is, we all of a sudden we start making ourselves appear one way, but knowing in our heart we don't deserve it. And that is a lonely place to be. And that's where we want to be free of. And that's what this step is all about. It's about admitting it to somebody else so that we can get humble enough to say, you know what, I'm not perfect. I called my sponsor the other day to do a 10-step with him, and I forget what it was. And, and I said, I'll try to be nice. And he goes, please don't change now. <laughs> he said, God's got you just like he's got you. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. Yeah, I'm nice. Don't get me wrong. But he, we giggle because um, I could be nicer. I could be nicer to my husband and stuff, you know. Couldn't we all? What would I change now? Um, but here's the, it goes on to say how the inconsistencies are made worse by the things he does on his spree and come into his senses. He's revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers or really remembers. <laughs> I always I, I told my husband I never blacked out, and he's like, "Where were you?" <laughs> because I hope you were blacked out, right? <laughs> he's like, "I hope you didn't do that, and you meant to." <laughs> Some have sex problems. Um, he trembles to think someone might have observed him as fast as he can. He pushes these memories far inside himself, and he hopes they will never see the light of day. And then he's under constant fear and tension, and then that makes for more drinking or more hiding and more withdrawing and just that black hole, as Bill describes it, that loneliness and despair, that bitter morass of self-pity. And we need to get out of that and find this power. So, once we find the right person, right? And then the book starts talking about that right person that, that, that you want to do this with. Someone who's, you, who's going to be unaffected. 
Someone who is going to be closed-mouthed. And that's the person that we need to find to do this step with. You have to remember when this book was written, AA was not on every street corner, right? You were shipped the book. So we want to find an understanding. I don't know how many times understanding is on that next page. Understanding, understanding. I need to know what you're driving at. What you're driving at is getting a new relationship with that creator, discovering the obstacles in the path. I need to be able to help you get to that truth. If you're not seeing it and you're not seeing it, you're not. I have been able to say, you know what, we're going to have to stop. Not sure you're really ready. I can't convince you of your own self-will. You have to see it. Does that make sense? Like, just like we can't convince somebody of step one, we can't convince somebody of their own self-will. If they're sitting there arguing with me, no, 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 I'm like, you know, you might be right. You might be right. But I can't help you. Um, so what we do is we kind of pocket our pride and we go to it. Um, illuminating, I love illuminating. Illuminating means bring to light. Every twist of character and every dark cranny of the past, right? So we are going to all bars off. All, we're going to all on the table. I'm going to let it loose. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go over this inventory that I've rewritten. And I'm prepared for a long talk. And once I start going with my sponsor and, and going through it, I start seeing, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, pride, fear, pride, fear, air, air, ego, 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 me, 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 me. Everything was me, 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 me. I couldn't believe how arrogant I was. I really couldn't. Like, I really couldn't. I was like, oh, my God, here I am. And I have to tell you, the first fifth step I ever did was so enlightening. I was so free feeling it was it was amazing because for the first time I saw who I was in black and white and I could work with that I had been to I don't know about y'all how many of y'all had like the stack of self-help books (laughs) yeah I did too and and I was talking to somebody else earlier and we were talking about the fluff that we hear in the meetings and all that fluffy stuff and that fluffy stuff sounds so good and I can't obtain it and I'm trying to obtain all this stuff but I can't obtain anything because I don't even know who I am because I'm putting up so many stage characters like I'm sitting in meetings and I'm telling you all that like I'm all that and you're I know nothing And so for the first time, I actually saw who I was in black and white. I saw where I was selfish. I saw where where I was self-centered. I saw where I was full of fear, self-delusional for the first time. So once I was finished with that, I got to have some promises read to me. And these are my favorite promises of the book because I sat in meetings for how many, 13 years? (laughs) And not once did I know there was other promises. I only heard that there were nine-step promises, and I did not know there were fifth-step promises. 
Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, meaning I can't withhold any information. I love to, I love to stop there and ask, um, I ask a few questions to the women. 75. Oh, 75. I'm sorry. I'm real bad about that. No, I'm bad. Um, we can look. We are delighted. Like, when's the last time you've been delighted? And how would you, I mean, whoever talks about that in meetings, all they do is go, oh, the dreaded four step. They never say, oh, my God, after the fifth step, you can be delighted. Like, where's the hope in the meetings? Come on, guys. Let's get the hope back in the meetings. We're delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We quit looking down. And we start looking up. We can hold our head high. Our fears fall from us. Oh, my gosh. I had a stack of fears, and they just started dropping. Amazing. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. So it's just a beginning. It's another starting point, right? It doesn't say, hey, hey. We're hooked again. <laughs> We're like this. I've been like that, drunk. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience, right? So it doesn't say we came in here ignorant. It doesn't say we came in here without without an idea or or being spiritual. Some of us come in here spiritual. There are atheists that are spiritual, okay? But now it's saying that we're beginning to have an awakening. We're beginning to become awakened. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly, meaning I don't want it more and more. I'm, I'm separating more and more from it. I'm waking up, and it's, and it's 3 o'clock before I start thinking about it. Oh, my God. I don't know about y'all, but, like, I wake up, and I'm, I'm like... When am I going to get it? How am I going to get it? Where am I going to get it? Who do I have to get to school to get it? And, and when, and right? I mean, it's like, blah, 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 blah. and now it's like three o'clock going, oh my God, I haven't thought about alcohol today. More and more, we become less interested in it. We feel we're on the broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. So returning home, we're going to find a place where we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we've done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Highlight. (laughs) Because it just told me after the fifth step that I get to know him better. Meaning I don't have to know him in step two or three. That I get to know him after the fifth step because I just got to know me. And where did we talk about finding God but deep down within us? And once I find out who I am a little bit more, I can find out who God is more and more. And here's the cool thing. Every time I sit down with you, I see him more and more and I grow more and more every day. I'm going to tell you today, I still do not know who God is. (laughs) I still don't have it figured out because y'all come in here all busted up and then y'all get sober. And I'm still freaked out over it. (laughs) I mean, I've seen some miracles in this room. And it still amazes me. I'm like, really? All right, there must be a God. Look at her. (laughs) 
gives us some more instructions and taking this book down from the shelf. And, you know, I actually, um, I actually put my book on my shelf and took it down. I was so scared. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do this right. I, I read it. I was told, go home and read this. And, and, and I read it and I'm like, oh, it says taking the book down from the shelf? Okay, I closed it, I put it up on the shelf and then I took it down. I followed every direction. That was good. Carefully reading the first five proposals, the first five steps, we ask, here's a prayer if we've omitted anything. Hey God, did I leave anything out? What did I leave out? Anything in the first step? Anything in the second step? Anything in the third step? Anything in that fourth step? Anything in that fifth step? No? Oh, all right. For we're building an ark through which we're going to walk a free man at last. So we're going to make sure that our work is solid. we got to lay the foundation here. Is it solid so I can walk free? Or have I tried to skimp on something? Did I leave something out? Well, she'll never know that. He'll never need to know that. I can take that one to my grave. No, you can't. Not if you want to walk free. That's the kicker. And I guarantee you there's nothing in here that you have done or been done that we haven't heard. Truly. Guys, it's and the thing is, is that this whole step, if you look at the promises and we're talking about, we want to get rid of this promptly and without regret. This isn't about us. At this point, when we first go through this, we know this is about me. This is all about me because the world's still revolving around me. But later we find out, looking back, this was never about me. This was about me getting clear of it, understanding some truth around it, so then I could use it for somebody else. My dad died at 18 years old when I was 18. Um, It was the most devastating thing that has ever happened to me in my entire life because um, um, my dad was everything in my life. My mom, I hate to say this, my dad was everything to me, everything. He was my supporter. He knew when I was hurt. He was everything that my mother wasn't, okay? And so when he died, everything crashed. Through that experience, and it's still painful sometimes, through that experience, I've been able to help Audrey that went through the same thing. It makes it, I mean, that's why I, and sometimes I have to look and say, you know what? Maybe it happened to me so that I could benefit her. How cool is that? Bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens to us. Absolutely. But what can we do with it? What can we take and what can we share? And how can we help someone else? Because you know what? This program is about being of maximum service to God and the people about us. And the longer you stay in these rooms, the longer you will learn that. If you work this program, you will learn that. And that's when the joy comes. Being able to share the experiences that has happened to us. And now taking that. And it's kind of like other things. You know, I'm sitting down and doing a fifth step with something. I don't even remember stuff. And all of a sudden she's saying, I'm like, God kind of takes it out and says, here, I need you to use this now. Otherwise, I'm not even remembering it. 
That's the coolest thing. That's the promises that come out of this. So looking at this from, from a standpoint of a sponsor, what we're doing is we're driving somebody back into the fourth column, driving them into looking at their stage characters and seeing the truth. So when it gives us that fifth step promise and it says, once we've taken the step of holding nothing, we're delighted, let's be clear on what we're talking about. I wasn't delighted to see what I saw, right? What I saw was it's kind of a selfish prick. That's kind of what I saw in a whole bunch of manifestations and a whole bunch of stage characters and a whole bunch of sickness and harms done to others. I didn't go, yes, but it was good to see the truth. And this is what we're talking about. Because if I don't know where I am, I can't get anywhere different. So if I've got a sponsor that will show me the truth, then I can do something with it. And so when, when we talk about the directions for what we do when we go home, um, it talks about being quiet for an hour and, and reviewing some things. We get real specific at this point in the book, or Bill gets real specific at this point in the book, and a lot of times this, this is the point where you're going to shortchange yourself. You're going to say, I'll sit with it for 10 minutes, or I'll sort of pseudo-meditate, or you know, I'll flip through back through my inventory pages or something. I'll, I'll do it on the hang car out. on the way home. I'll take a nap and do it tomorrow. You know, all kinds of stuff, and I can get with that. I mean, God knows we don't ever like to do anything you know, by the book, but... Here's the deal. Anything less than what this literature is asking you to do is a demonstration that you think you've got a better way. So remember that. When you want to go into six and seven and go, oh, it's two paragraphs. No problem. I'll knock this out in two minutes. Don't do that. Don't do that. The, um, the 12 and 12 gets real clear about six and seven. It's kind of interesting if you ever want to read it. It talks about being the step that separates the men from the boys, the girls from the women. And what I see is a lot of people playing at sobriety. Right and mouth and stuff. You want to get real with some stuff. Do do a six and seven. You want to find some power. Do a step six and seven. I dare you. It is insane because Julie and I were having this conversation earlier about looking at character defects. And my delusional mind wants to use things like logic and reason. That if I if I do something long enough and don't like it, I'll I'll just remember and stop doing it. Anybody been there? You ever get caught gossiping? And you're like, oh, my God, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. That was so humiliating. I hurt somebody's feelings. It caused pain. I'm done with that. How'd that last? Like three weeks, and you're like, girl, did you see what she was wearing? Right? You to say something. Human nature. you gotta, you got to understand what we're dealing with. We're dealing with spiritual principles and human nature. And we're watching them in collision, trying to get it sorted out in the path. If you'll stick with it, you'll get somewhere different. But you got to know that you seeing your defects won't get you anywhere. Except an idea of what you're working with. And then comes, what do you do with it? So it talks about... Asking yourself if you've omitted anything. There's a difference between forgetting and omitting. There was, um, I told you guys last night I have a flair for the theatrics. I used to have fake panic attacks a lot when I was drinking because people feel sorry for you if they think you're crazy. And so I would fake a lot of panic attacks. Well, I completely forgot that. And some months down the road, I'm listening to an inventory and this girl saying that she was faking this and faking illness. I faked a whole disease my senior year of high school. It was real kind of interesting to watch how it all came about. But um manifested its symptoms and the whole situation. But I forgot that. Now, that's dumb. How do you forget that? Well, you do. Mm-hmm. You do. And I'm listening to inventory and I'm, oh, my gosh, Julie, I completely forgot X, Y, and Z. You know, there wasn't any work to do around it. It was about humility to let another person know who I was when it when it was brought to my attention. 
But I think that, you know, if we are to see everything all at once, I don't know, we might explode. I don't know. But over the years, I can, I can assure you that as time passes in sobriety, God will take you to the depths of your defects if you'll let him. And there's always another layer. There's always another occurrence to be found. You're not going to see it all at once, but I've got to see the point, which is problems in my own making. That's what I've got to see. So having looked at that, we're on 76. I already did that. You missed it. We'll play it back for you. Thanks. I love you. All right, so we're on 76. We're looking at step six. Now, here's the thing. If I made a commitment in step three to, to, to finish the work, to see what God would do with me, then you can kind of address step six as a reaffirmation of that third step. Having seen what I've seen, which is the truth about me, am I willing to go on? Right? So it says, if we can answer to our satisfaction the questions that we just asked ourselves, we then look at step six. We've emphasized willingness as being indispensable, absolutely essential. I've got to have willingness to continue to go on. Now, where do I find willingness to go on? About fourth column of inventory. Right? After you've seen who you really are, do you want to hang on to that? After we gather up all the garbage and put it on your front doorstep and then ask you, would you like me to take that to the curb? Or would you like to keep that on your front doorstep? It gets real obvious what you want to do. And this is why you have to have a sponsor that knows this book, that knows what they're doing to show you. Are you now ready to let God remove from us remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Well, what did we find was objectionable? That I'm selfish, self-centered, dishonest, things of that nature. But the specifics, the manifestations of self, that's what's objectionable. Is that working for you? Your controlling nature, your tendency to be a victim, the way that you want to go behind people's back and do things without their knowledge, is that objectionable to you? I, I should hope so. Having done an inventory with a strong sponsor, you'll find a lot of things objectionable. So it says, can he now take them all, every one? How long have you been trying to give God your alcoholism and nothing else? Um, please take this terrible situation. <laughs> Leave me with the checkbook and the man. I got that. You know, no. Are you willing to give absolutely everything to God? This is not, an, this is not a ride the fence kind of program. This is an all or nothing. Either jump in or close the door and walk away. Truly, don't ride the fence. You want to get sick and crazy and confused in recovery? Ride the fence. You want to get well? Jump in. So it says, if we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. So at this point, I'm asking myself, am I willing to pay the price? Am I really willing to submit these defects of character and stop going to work on them? Right? How many times you I'm really working on honesty. I'm really working on my honesty. Don't. I'm praying for patience. Don't do that either. <laughs> do the work in the book. Stop trying to sound so smart and so spiritual and go to work on you. If you working on you work, could you be here? I'd be at home working mm-hmm. on me, being happy. Right? No, I'm here to let God go to work on me. This is why this is not a self-help program. Right? Now, is there some measurable action I can take to not tell lies? I can stop telling people I'm an author? I can do that. <laughs> you know, that's an obvious one. I can certainly do that. But I don't see all the delusions. I don't see all the sickness. There are stories I told for years that it took me a year or two in sobriety to go, I think that might be a lie. I think I've been telling that since I was 10, and it, mm-hmm. it really didn't even happen. Mm-hmm. But I believe true. my own lies. It's true. She's listened to all of them. 
we've kind of sorted them out over the years, mm-hmm. but I didn't know. But I didn't go to work on me. I said a prayer, asked God to do with it what he would, and I got my freaking hands off of it and got busy doing amends and some other things. So this is a six-step prayer. If you're not willing to let something go, you ask God to help you be willing. If you're not willing to stop cheating on your spouse, you better ask God to help you be willing, right? Because mm-hmm. if we're not, we've already been clear, my conduct harms others, and I continue to live in a dishonest, secretive, sick world, I'm quite sure to drink. So I've got to get clear about that kind of stuff. So it says, when ready, we say something like this, and here's my seventh-step prayer. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. Hmm. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We've then completed steps, step seven. So while, while there was no amen on the end of the third step prayer, we begin to find one at the end of the seventh step prayer. Why? Why? Um, and the way to view that, and you know, one way to look at it is, is to look at it as sort of a covenant. You know, a commitment between you and this creator that you're now on your knees saying a prayer to. On the third step, I got on my knees and I said, here's what I'm going to do. Please remove what's standing in the way of me doing it so I can be useful to to you. Right? And then when you do that, I'm going to bear witness, which means I'm going to carry the message and I'm going to sponsor and I'm going to get involved. I don't always know that Mm -hmm. at the third step. I never will forget the night I said my third step prayer and Cliff... Walked by. I was sitting on the bench, and I, w- I walked by, and he said, "What are you doing out here?" And I said, "He's old and kind of grumpy sometimes." And I said, "I'm I just I'm scared. I just said my third step prayer. I'm just sitting here, like go away, you know." And he's like, "Well, you just made a huge mistake." I said, "What are you talking about? Got on my knees to the prayer, check, check." He said, "No, the rest of your life is none of your business." Uh-huh. I was like, I so didn't sign up for that. You know, I, I thought we were saying a prayer. And I remember when I went back to the work with Julie, having a clear depiction of what we were doing in the third step, that I was to submit everything. And then steps four and five is prayer and action. What are we really doing? What's really been going on? Some of my favorite questions to ask, what's really going on? But um, it's prayer and action. And then by the time I get to the seventh step, what that looks like is I'm signing off on the deal. Here is like a contract that got drawn up. Here's what I'm willing to do. Here's what I've done. Signing it off. Moving on. I'm working on six and seven. We used to hear that at this one meeting all the time. We were like, you could do that by the end of this meeting. You could have been worked out on six and seven. What are you working on? This is another decision. Are you willing to continue to submit to the work? Are you willing to continue to go out and make amends and begin to, to do work with 10, 11, and 12? That's it. There's no real great spiritual complexity. If you boil this program down to its simplest form, oh, my God. I told a girl the other day, I said, do you know how many dumbass people I've seen get sober? It, tons. You do not have to be brilliant to do this. There are no huge spiritual innuendos. It's so simple if you'll just submit to it. So the seventh step, I'm kind of signing off on the deal. And um, while God's going to work on me, what am I committed to do? Right? So when it says that I'm to give all of me to him and remove the defects that stand in the way of my usefulness to God, I'm not, I'm not to ask for these defects to be removed so I can sit at home and be comfortable. Right? And God's not going to remove everything at once because they're teaching tools. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to walk on water, and I spent a lot of time and energy doing that in early sobriety, trying to get it all perfect, all perfect. And Cliff said to me, I tell you what, kid, it's hell having to be human when you want to walk on water. <laughs> I just, bye, Cliff. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I don't get to do that. When I mess up, when I'm dishonest, and I still am, I have moments. When I do that, it's always for somebody else. I tell you what, you start sponsoring, and it will be abundantly clear that your life is not your own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything you go through, watch him or her come right up behind you going through the same thing. hundred times over. It's not up to me. It's not up to me. He removes those as he will. So grant me strength as I go out from here. What am I going out from here to do? What's his bidding now? Well, after step seven, it's to make the list. I'm about to roll into eight and nine tonight. Right? See, I go to my sponsor's house or wherever you're meeting. I'm doing that inventory, which if you're taking longer than about two to three hours to do inventory, you are spinning your wheels. Or they are talking too much. No, no. It doesn't take that long to see the truth. It really, really doesn't. I hear people say that all the time. I take about eight, ten hours on that first inventory. I'm glad you don't sponsor me. God Almighty. No, it really doesn't. I will stop you short in the middle of your dramatic story and go, it's this and this. Next. Next. We don't know. Get clear on that. So I'm doing that in an afternoon. I'm going home. I'm spending an hour doing six and seven. That night, pen, paper, eight-step list. Who do I owe amends to? I'm pulling them all off of that inventory. Can you want to say something about six and seven? When it says good and bad, I mean, here's the point. I've got to give all of me to him. And I don't get to give just the bad, right, and keep the good. I don't give just the good and keep the bad. And I think, oh, that's too bad. You can't have that. I must hold on to that. <laughs> no, I give all of me at this point. And here's why. And this is what this looks like, guys. And this is what I used to say when I go carry the message to all these little treatment centers. Um, it's kind of like if I go off, out, let's say I go and, and, and I'm, I'm do this. Right? I'm, I'm out here at the podium, and I do this, and I walk off, and I go, oh, my gosh, that sucks. Because we can do that, right? We can walk out of any situation. We can walk away from a conversation with someone. And what do we start thinking about? Me. <laughs> Did we hear what they said? No. All we keep replaying is everything we said. <laughs> right? And, and so I can walk off, and I can sit there, and I can say, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. I should have said this, and it should have gone like this, and I, I should have done. Okay, so what am I saying? I'm taking the credit. Therefore, it's kind of like I'm now going to go into self-pity. Same as if I were to walk off and say, Oh my God, that went great. Did you hear him laugh? I like rot. (laughs) I mean, who's taking the credit? Who am I giving credit to? Me. That's saying I'm doing it. And it sounds crazy, but you know what? I am going to succeed in sobriety, and I am going to fail in sobriety. My successes and my failures are not mine. They are his to do with. And that way, I stay even. I stay one with you. I'm not above you, and I'm not below you. I'm shoulder to shoulder with you. How cool is that? Like, I don't think I'm bad. Guys, come on. This is a book. We get to read it. We get to study it. We get to have fun with it. Just because I'm at this side of the table 
doesn't mean I'm better than anybody. Does that make sense? And so we, I mean, I, I love a friend of mine says, once we believe we've arrived in AA, you need to look around. <laughs> look what you've arrived to. loser. <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm one of them. The point is, is this is the humbling step. Truthfully, this is truly where we get to stay humble and get on our knees and give everything to him. And if I'm giving everything to him, then I don't take it. I don't take any of it. It's not, this is not me. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't be sober first off. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't have the knowledge second off. If it weren't for him, I wouldn't have what I have. I am everything I am because of him and he gets all the credit. He gets my successes and he gets my failures. That is it. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. That's, I mean, that, I can't go back to stick close to him, perform his work well. If the person next to you doesn't like how you're doing it, too bad. As long as you, I mean, I, what else do you say? This is where we rely on him solely, and this is where we end that third step, and we get to start giving everything to him. Um, oh, I was going to say something else. I hate these, um, I used to, I always call, I, I still to this day call my sponsor before I speak. Um, it is because uh, early in, I, I, this is not my favorite thing to do for those of you who, I, when I go to speak, I just like, uh, you, I want to puke, truly. My hands are sweaty. I just want to throw up. I can't t- have conversation with anybody before I speak. <laughs> if you'll, I'm like, blah, 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 my th-. anyway. Um, so when early in sobriety, people used to call me and say, Julie, will you please come speak for us? And, and I'm like, oh my God, yes. Cause we, I've, I've been taught never to say no. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, you should get Audrey. <laughs> she is awesome. And so I used to throw her under the bus every time. I didn't know this till a year ago, mind you. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> but so whenever I speak, I, so I still to this day call my sponsor before I speak. And he used to say, Julie, you got one story to tell. The one you were going to tell, the one you told, and the one you should have told. And isn't that true with us in life and everything? It's always what we're going to do, what we, you know, what we did and what we should have done. Because aren't we always looking everywhere else but what we did? And my point is with that is that even if we make mistakes, because we will make mistakes, we will. Thank God. And we're going to talk about that more in step 10 because those mistakes, once again, she said, are not our mistakes. They're going to be to be used for somebody else. I get to grow in understanding and be more effective for someone else. Same with my my successes. So, does that make sense? Did I leave anything out? I think that's it. Let's go ahead and take a break. All right. So we're just about to roll into step eight and nine. Um, So we're back on page 76. We just wrapped up step seven, talking about an eight-step amends list. So in the middle of page 76, it says, now we need more action. Isn't that just the resounding calm that I hear after (laughs) consistently? Just when I think I've done something, it's like, okay, moving on. 
So it says, without which we find that faith without works is dead. And I tell you what, that's a theme that's all throughout this literature, that faith without works is dead. I can believe, believe, believe all day long, but until I'm willing to put action behind my belief system, it really doesn't amount to anything. So we're going to find that that, that's repeated over and over. It says, let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we have harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. So what we're looking at on an eight-step list is is who am I, um, who is necessary for me to go out and get in front of face-to-face and make direct amends with. Now, all those people on my on my inventory that I saw that I harmed, I most certainly owe amends to. Um, but there's also an additional names that need to be added to that list because not everybody that I've harmed, I've been upset with. Not everybody made it to inventory. There was a whole host of people that I had had terribly harmed that there was no resentment in connection with it. And um, so at this point, um, all I'm doing is making the list. It's an easy place to kind of get hung up and, and overwhelmed and get real scared about, oh my God, the huge list. All you're doing at this point is making the list. The eighth step is not the ninth step. I'm making a willing list, and then my mind begins to talk to me about certain things such as, well, I don't even know his last name. I don't even know which state she lives in. I doubt my path will ever cross with that person again. Do not be fooled about the power of God. Don't don't shortchange yourself in that area. Your job at this point is to put the name on the list, Period. That's it. There's nothing else required of you at that point. I've got to put the name on the list, be willing to get in front of them, right? There are some people that it was not pertinent for me to make amends to them at that time. And I had to get with a sponsor and look at that stuff. And we're going to delve into when is it not appropriate to make an amends to somebody. And there are a few cases where it's not. Um, But I still have those people. They are still on my eight-step list. And should God make that appropriate, I hold myself in readiness to make the amends. So now is not the time to be running all these things through your brain. It's just the time to place those names down on paper. So it says, we subjected ourselves to drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which is accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. And there's your eight-step prayer. If there are people that, you know what, I am not willing to get in front of that person and make amends, start praying now. Get into prayer now that God change your heart and give you the willingness to do so. Because, you know, there, it's not always right off the bat that you're willing to make amends to everybody. Okay, well, do we just stop short? No. What can we do with it? Where can God guide me with this? So I'm going to say, to say those prayers and ask for the willingness. Then it's going to give me something that might shift my gears. It says, remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. I have friends that, that ask their protégés to write in the, in the front of their big book on day one, I'm willing to go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. And when they start balking, they get to go back and look where they signed and dated that they were willing to go to any lengths. I think that's a riot. <laughs> I love it. And you, the question then becomes, what lengths did, did you go to for alcohol? Really? I mean, I'm on snow days. They've shut down the town on snow days. I'm skidding across in my truck trying to get to the liquor store, willing to go to any length. Now I don't want to go make amends because it's raining outside. Yeah. Thinking, I could, I could fishtail. Nobody in Texas knows how to drive in the rain. Everyone knows that. Right? Really? 
Are you willing to go to any lengths or are you not? When I'm trying to get liquor in this kid's system, I'm knocking old ladies down. I'm running 100 miles an hour. Bless you if you're in my way. But then when I want to make amends, it's every excuse in the book. No. No. Do you want to get well or do you not? Do you, did you read Dr. Bob's nightmare or did you not? Where did he balk? Where did he pull up short? Amends. Willing to do anything but have the humility to stand in front of another person and say, you know what? I was wrong. And what happened? He got loaded. <laughs> and after he got loaded, he got out and one day made all of his amends. Nothing will beat you into a state of reasonableness like liquor. <laughs> Nothing. Right? Do you want to be that guy or can you press on? So then it's going to begin to talk to me about um, approaching people on a spiritual basis. Um, why we should do that sometimes, why we shouldn't do that other times. Um and talks about um, not emphasizing the spiritual feature, spiritual feature on our first approach with certain people. Um, at the moment, we're trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in, end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. It's seldom wise to approach an individual who still smarts from our injustice to him and announce we've gone religious. Let me set that little scenario up for you. After you tear somebody's life down, around your alcoholism and your selfish and inconsiderate habits, three days later, you've detoxed, want to show up on their front doorstep and talk about how you found God. (laughs) No, (laughs) ma'am. No. It starts like this. I was wrong. (laughs) That's how that starts. Nobody cares that you found God. They want the money that you took back, right? They need to hear it. explanation for what the things that you did and an apology of sorts a promise not to do those things again an in-depth conversation not that you found God is it wonderful that you found God through the steps yes have tacting common sense when announcing those things right when, when it talks about leading with the chin I'm setting myself up I can kill a future opportunity to be beneficial to somebody else if, if, if I can tone it down and approach it in a different way it can be handled um very differently. Um, it says, why lay ourselves open to be branded fanatics or religious bores? We may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message. See, when this person that, you, that you've mishandled your amends with, it's time for them to get sober. Or it's time for somebody in their family to get sober. They're not going to look back on you showing up doing cartwheels on their front doorstep about finding God and think, that's the person to call. No, but when I can approach you in a calm directive, I'm working a spiritual program of action. Part of this program is that I make restoration to you for the harms that I've done. Something to that effect, you, you can bet then go, you know, that girl was in sobriety. I don't remember what exactly she said she was doing, but she seemed like she was on a different path. Maybe I'll have to call her. There's a way to handle it and a way not to. There's a couple of qualifications for making amends um, listed on page 77. Um, and the first one is in that in that first paragraph where it says, but our man is sure to be impressed with a sincere desire to set right the wrong. Um, I don't know if you've ever been on the playground with toddlers. I used to work at a daycare, which was a, a riot. Um, but have you ever seen a mom snatch a kid up and say, you better say you're sorry? And you watch that chunky, chunky little toddler step over and go, sorry, to the other little kid, right? <laughs> That is not a sincere desire to set right or wrong. I don't make amends because Julie says so. Get clear on that. I hear that all the time. I made amends because my sponsor said I had to. Really? Is that a sincere desire? Is that what the other person receiving that amends needed to hear? No. 
It's my sponsor's job to rub my little nose in the fourth column. That's where the sincerity comes from. My creator, me seeing the truth about me and the damage I've caused, now I'm willing. Now I want to clean it up because I see how wrong I was, but not because I've been made to. I've been made to. And I will forget that, you know, hearing a story about somebody that went to make amends to somebody and, you know, here, here's the deal and I, I know I have to make amends to you. Wow. What a, what a bad feeling to have to hear an amends like that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Says he's going to be in, more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than in our talk of spiritual discoveries. I've got to get crystal clear that at this point I don't have any credibility with people. So for me to continue to announce that I found, you know, the good Lord above, you know, with zero credibility. Two weeks ago, I'm robbing you. You know what I mean? Let's see a demonstration of what you found. Right. Sleeping with your husband. That's a great one. Let's see a demonstration of what it is you found. Because if you found something, you don't need to talk about it, do you? No. Your actions manifest. And, it, you know, the, it talks about earlier on in the book about a sponsor that his whole deportment Think about that word. His whole deportment shouts at the new prospect, he's a man or a woman with an answer. Hmm. See, there's no need for me to be running my mouth, because how long have you been running that mouth? <laughs> for years. And it usually sounds like this, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. That's one reason that me personally, this is an opinion, I don't say the words I'm sorry and amen. I just don't. I said it for too long. I, it sounds like this, I was wrong. That's something they've never heard before. I was wrong. Right? The second question um, or qualification is a little ways down in that second paragraph. Um, it says, we go to him, that last line, we go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feeling and expressing our regret. Right? That's another thing I say when I make an amend. I regret treating you the way that I, the way that I have. And no matter what he does or what he has done in the past, I go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, because I don't get to continue to take his inventory, right? That's about me trying to get free. This is about me and my creator. It, it never matters what he says or does, or what she says or does. This is about, can I lay my head down on the pillow, having demonstrated to my God that I was willing to go to any lengths today to clean up the past? You may roll your eyes. You may argue with me. You may not accept my amends. So not my business. So not. It's about me and God, period. And once you know that, you can remove expectations. You can remove irritations about the way they behaved in it, right? You want to know what your motives are? Start clocking the way they respond to your amends. Well, she didn't admit her fault. Right. And what was your expectation? That she would? Did you need that? Guess so. Get with a sponsor on that. They can show you what your motives are. Sometimes it's best to wait a few days before you run out and make all of your amends. Sometimes we make them for the wrong reasons. The girls always want to make amends to the boyfriend right away. Mm -hmm. I need to get back in the bed. Right? No, you don't. Calm down. The, the and you think it's the one. guys. The women. We're a hot, hot mess. And then it talks about um, the question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. Let me assure you that's going to arise. Because you may have gotten a better attitude through inventory, but you still remember, don't you? We don't forget. Mm -hmm. I still remember. And so it says, directive, I love this, it may be that he's done us more harm than we've done him. And though we may have acquired a better attitude, we're still not too keen about admitting our faults. Wow. 
Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. That's a big old suck it up from the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. I love that. It's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it, circle those words, much more beneficial to us. Harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial. See, that's the thing. I'm going to sit across from the man or woman that I absolutely can't stand and make amends. And I've done that with no expectation that they would do anything, make amends back to me, admit they're wrong, none of that. I tell you what, that's some of the coolest experiences. You want to get free? Don't go to your mama. She loves you. She's going to say, baby, I don't care as long as you're sober. <laughs> they don't care. Don't don't go to your spouse. Go to the man you can't stand. Go to the man that when you think you see his car six lanes away in traffic, you're like trying to pull the visor, you know, hiding. Can't stand him. Go do that. Watch what happens. See, that's the problem. Everybody wants to do the real easy ones first. Then you catch a little bump. A little spiritual bump off of that, then you quit. And you've got all these hard ones, so to speak, looming in the balance where the real freedom lies, and you don't do them. And then you get drunk and go, but I don't understand, I made a whole bunch of amends. No, you didn't. You went to a whole bunch of people that you knew were happy with you anyway. Approach it differently and see if something doesn't happen. I mean, I've got to understand the point of amends is not to apologize, it's to make it right. That's what that word actually means. It means to make it right. So that's a question I'm going to ask you when I make amends to you. I'm going to tell you specifically, I've been selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate with your feelings. Whatever it was that I was wrong about, I'm going to tell you what that is. And let me tell you something, guys. If you can't be big enough to say what you did, don't go. I don't know if you all have ever had that experience. I know Julie and I specifically have somebody saying, I owe you amends. For what? Well, I was I just selfish in general. Selfish how? What are you talking about? I just, I just was. If you can't put on your big girl panties and say what you did, don't come. <laughs> don't. Because now I'm wondering what'd you do? Now you owe me a mess. <laughs> I'm still waiting to collect on that one. Me too. I know it. Right? But it means to make it right. So I'm going to ask you specifically, what can I do to make it right? Besides not doing dot, 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 whatever it was. You know, if I was dishonest with you or if I took something or whatever it was, besides not doing this again, what else can I do to make it right and get clear with you? I'm telling you, you ask people what you can do to make it right. You'll have the funniest experiences. I remember my grandfather had a list. I didn't even think I'd harmed him that badly, and he he made a list. You can do this, you can do this, you can do And I'm like, what? All right. You want to talk about living amends? That's not you deciding that you're going to be a better person to make an amend. I terribly harmed Julie, but instead of making it right and getting face-to-face and being a big girl about it, I just decided to be a better person, and we're going to call it a living amend. No, ma'am. Direct amends, face-to-face. Now, every day when I pay my bills on time, because that was on my list that my grandfather gave me, you can pay your bills on time, you can show up where you're supposed to be, show up early, get there, Right? Every time I show up early to a commitment, I'm making a living amend to him. Every time I sign a check and pay a bill on time, that's a living amend to him. See how that works? See how the fellowship wants to make it about an easier, softer way? It's not. It's not. Take it in context for what it is. So continuing on with that, it says, um, this will, this will teach you some good stuff about what to do and what not to do. It says, under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. How easy do you think that would be to do? 
You just learned how to take inventory. <laughs> right. Properly. Right? That it's real easy to spot them. Their dishonesty, their selfishness. You've been clocking them for years anyway, judging them. Now you just learned how to put it in a format. It's real easy to do it. Don't do it. You'll be making an amends for the amends. So simply telling we will never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. I hear that a lot. Can I go and make amends and not tell them I'm in recovery? Mm-hmm. It's like, wow. Or do you want to continue to live that double life? Is that what we're doing now? You know? I don't want anybody to know I'm in sobriety. Oh, my God, they already know. <laughs> your truck's been parked next door for a long time. You, you can't seem to get it right. Your credit card statements read liquor store, liquor store, liquor store, bar. Everybody knows. I don't know if you guys know that. Everybody knows. And if they don't, by God, tell them. Tell them. Your life is not your own anymore. I can't tell you how many times I hear stories of people making amends and then three years later hearing from that person of, you know what, my my daughter decided she needed to get sober. I remember you making that amends. Did you say there was a group or a fellowship or something? What? Your life is not your own. Stop hiding your alcoholism. There's no surefire way to get sick than to do that right there. Remember when you're drinking and your world got real narrow because you couldn't let anybody know who you really were? That's the same concept. Don't close that door. So it says we are there to see, sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. It's tough sometimes. We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the result. That is one of the coolest promises in a man. We'll be gratified with the result, even if they don't receive it well. Even if they're ugly about it. Even if they don't admit that you are okay. Gratified with the results. That's all I have to be is calm, frank, and open. But I'm never going to tell him what he should do. I'm never going to discuss his fault. And let me tell you, one of the toughest amends to make is to make an amends for the amends you messed up. I did do that with one of my sisters. It was really embarrassing. But it sounded a lot like a process group. Where I said, when you said, I felt, and then I misunderstood, and then I did, but if you hadn't, I wouldn't have. I was like, oh my God, Audrey, is this what we're doing? It was a botched amends. And I had to go back and go, you know what, Alex, I was totally having a process group with you that was so wrong. I was was wrong. Here's what I did. She said, yeah, you didn't even ask me what you could do to make it right. (laughs) That's when you know you've made too many amends to your family. And they're like, you didn't even get the order right. <laughs> Bad. But it says, in nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. Sometimes the man we are calling upon admits his own fault, so a fuse of years standing melts away in an hour. I've had that experience. That's kind of neat. It says, rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Hmm. You don't get to judge what satisfactory progress looks like. <laughs> See, I feel better, so therefore I want to think it's okay. Stop. making judgments based on your emotions. It's not a good idea. It's really not. Feelings come and go. They're not a a point to make decisions on. It says it should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We've made our demonstration, done our part. It's water over the dam. That's another question we hear a lot of times. What if they won't accept my amends? What if I get on the phone and try to schedule an appointment with them and they say, absolutely not, I want nothing to do with you? Then you've made your demonstration. What you can do to make it right with them is leave them alone Mm -hmm. until they're ready. And it may be five, ten years down the road and they go, you run into them, they say, you know, kind of cut you short and if there's something you want to say, I'm willing to hear it. That can happen. That's happened to friends of ours in Dallas. 
But for the time being, stop stalking them. <laughs> stop sending 100 emails. Stop, you know, block their number and then call Star 67. It, don't do that. They said leave them alone. They meant it. Leave them alone. There might be a time down the road, but really and truly, it wasn't about the exchange between you guys anyway. It was about the exchange that you had with your creator. That's what that's about. So i got to see it for what it is. Water over the dam. It says, most alcoholics owe money. Like pause for effect. <laughs> Never known one who, who didn't owe something. It says, we don't dodge our creditors. How many, how many times have you done that? You got that certain 866 number? Hey, shoot to voicemail. You know? I watch people do that. It, it, it's a hoot. I mean, if you're going to continue to hide and duck and dodge, get ready to drink. 100%. Never seen it fail. Telling them what we're trying to do, we make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway. Who doesn't pay their bills? People like us. <laughs> they know. They know. There's a problem. They usually know it anyway, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. That's what that's what Dr. Bob did. Approached in this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Mm-hmm. Arranging the best deal we can, and that's what my directive is to do. We let these people know we're sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go if we're liable to drink if we're afraid to face them. <sighs> if you're going to be in hiding, you're going to be with a bottle. Keep that in mind, no matter what the situation. I mean, let's say it while we're on it. If you're gay, be gay, right? If you're in debt, be in debt. Be in debt, but come out with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, if if you have done some things in the past, let's talk about it. But if you continue to hide, guys, you're going to hide with a bottle. I guarantee you. And that was just a little opening I went, went ahead and took for myself. <laughs> Sometimes it lays out that way. Arranging the best deal we can. What does that look like? If I owe Angie $500, what I want to do is wait till I have $500 and get in front of her so I can just hand it to her and run away. Right? Because that's kind of how we've interacted in the past. We don't want to handle stuff like that. Be a big kid. Get in front of Angie. Angie, I was wrong. I owed you $500 from six years ago. I've been ducking and dodging you. I was doing this and this. Get clear with her on what that was about. Make it right. Can I pay you $25 a week or a month until this is paid off? Is that acceptable to you? That works for Angie. We're going to roll with it. If it doesn't, I better find something else. I'm going to arrange the best deal I can. It doesn't mean that I'm going to try to, you know, get Angie to come off the price. Would you take three fifty? You know, <laughs> I hear that all the time. Well, I, I got him to come down to God. Stop negotiating. Y'all laugh. Start sponsoring. You're gonna hear some fun stuff. <laughs> fun stuff. So I'm gonna let these people know what what the deal is and and see what I can do about it. Um, I sponsor a woman that has had so much debt that she was overwhelmed initially. And I'm telling you, she's checking them off the list like nobody's business. Once you get rolling, you get rolling. If you need to seek some outside financial assistance to get with somebody on what does a budget mean, what does it look like to pay stuff on time, go get it. Go get it. I mean, we get sober. We've got all kinds of resources at our disposal. Go help yourself. Cool. Learn how to do that stuff. And it's going to talk about criminal offenses um, and, and, and not wanting to talk about that kind of stuff. Um, on 79, I'm going to show you something. 
It says, although these reparations take innumerable forms, there are some general principles which we find guiding. Here's the deal. We've all got stuff in the past, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's criminal offenses, whether it's, you know, cheating, who knows. I've got to get honest, number one, with a sponsor. Somebody's got to help me sift through and see what it is that I need to be doing about this. But we've got some general stuff. It says reminding ourselves, and this is your first ninth step prayer, reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lengths, underline, to find a spiritual experience. We ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing no matter what the personal consequences may be. That's it. You can apply that prayer to any situation in amends. Any lengths to find a spiritual experience. I have to be willing. That's what it's asking me. There are two themes that run throughout the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of them is willingness and the other one's action. You know, sometimes the action doesn't need to be taken because it causes harm to who? Not you, others. And that's where I'm going to get with a sponsor and say what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. But no matter what, that first component better be there. I better be willing. That's all I have to be at that point. Since we may lose our position or reputation or face jail, but we are willing. I'm telling you what, I've seen more people willing to face jail but not willing to lose their reputation. That alcoholic ego is a hot mess. Says, but we have to be. We must not shrink at anything. Circle that word anything. You know, because here's the deal. Everybody wants to come up and take exception and get real specific with a particular amends with some complexities and details, and you don't understand the backstory, and you don't know these people. I don't give a shit. Anything. Are you willing to go to any links, or are you not? If you're not, bye-bye. You're going to get loaded, period. Right? And if you are, let's go. And then it talks about um, not being a martyr and throwing other people under the bus. Um so it says, usually other people are involved. And that's the case sometimes. That's the case. Sometimes other people are involved in some of the stuff that I need to make amends for. I don't get to throw you under the bus to save me. Right? I, I can take responsibility for my part, but I'm not there to go, oh, and she was there, and he was also there, and he did more than the rest of No. <laughs> it's time to be a grown-up and take responsibility for your stuff. So it says, we're not to be the hasty and foolish martyr who would needlessly sacrifice others to save himself from the alcoholic pit. Julie and I knock off a liquor store, you know. I get sober. Julie's still out there drinking. I don't get to name her. I don't get to do that. I'm there. I go in front of these people, accept responsibility, pay the fines, do the time, whatever it is. But I don't get to throw her under the bus. She wants to come get sober. That'll be on her. Vice versa. See how that works? But I, I got to get clear about some of that stuff. Um, do you have anything so far? No. Okay. All right. So go to 80. Go to the top of page 80. So we'll look at that second ninth step prayer. It says, before taking drastic action, which might implicate other people, we secure their consent. If we have obtained permission, have consulted with others, such as a sponsor, people in your recovery network, ask God to help, and the drastic step is needed, we must not shrink. All right, so there's my second prayer. I'm just going to go in and talk about a story of a... Um, we don't have time to go into all that. Mm-hmm. But um, go back and read that story. It'll make, it'll make tons of sense. Down at the bottom, it says um, domestic troubles. And it talks about being mixed up with people in a fashion we wouldn't care to have advertised. I love the language from back then. <laughs> when you're acting a fool, that's what, you're, that's what they should have said. 
It says we down if, at top of 81, we down if in this respect alcoholics are fundamentally much worse than other people. I'm sure you they're not. We're all the same. But drinking does complicate sex relations at the home. Then it goes on to talk about um, what happens when we get mixed up with men and women we don't have any business being mixed up with. And down in that next paragraph, what do I do about that? Because that's always the kind of the first or at least second question everybody wants to ask in a men. What if I've cheated, do I tell? If this is a program of honesty, how does that work? So let's look at it. It says, whatever the situation, we usually have to do something about it. Something. If we're sure our wife or husband does not know, should we tell them? Not always we think. See, this is another point where your sponsor is going to be real key for you to discuss this stuff. If they know in a general way that we've been wild, should we tell her in detail? Undoubtedly, we should admit our fault. And then she's going to say, who is she? Where does she work? Because you will want to know the particulars. So you've got to be careful about that kind of stuff because I can't continue to cause harm. It says, we feel we ought to say to her that we have no right to involve another person. We're sorry for what we've done, and God willing, it shall not be repeated. More than that, we cannot do. We have no right to go further. And they go on to talk about um, no, no hard and fast rules, just some general principles we find guiding. If your spouse knows that you've been running around, should you be honest about that? In detail, no. In actuality, yes. Does that make sense? Right, so I'm going to go and let them know. They know. If they already know, discuss that. But we don't start naming people for them to vent jealousy on. Right? If you're married or you have significant others, you're dealing with a terrible human emotion called jealousy. And if you continue to provoke that, you continue to cause harm, and that's not okay. If they have no idea, do you tell them? My experience is no. No. I have women today that I owe huge amends to, but I don't have the right to make the amends. But I hold myself in complete readiness to do so, right? And if the situation arises, I'm there. Come hell or high water, I'll make that amend. But to to harm that relationship that I've already harmed, I don't get to do that because I feel guilty. That's selfish. That's selfish. Well, I just want to get it off my chest. Shame on you. That's not okay. I want to feel better. I can't t- continue with the self-centered motive. Um, and so that's, that's a, but, you know, again, get with your sponsor on that. Pull on some experience of the people that are strong in this fellowship that can kind of give you some guiding, um, guiding stuff on that. Um, do you have anything to add on that? Mm-mm. Okay. Go to 82. We'll look at that third. Where are we on the session? We're okay. Go. All right. Continuing on with that topic on 82. About four lines down from the top is the third ninth step prayer. It says, each might pray about it, having the other one's happiness uppermost in mind. So are we going to let bygones be bygones? Are we going to continue to rehash this? Do we need to go get some therapy? Are there outside resources we can utilize? Sure. But let's, let's pray about this and see what we need to do. Keep it in sight. We're dealing with that most terrible human emotion, jealousy. But it says, if we have no such complication, there's plenty we should do at home. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say the only thing he needs to do is keep sober. <laughs> At a nickel. Certainly he must keep sober, for there will be no home if he doesn't. But he's a long way from making good to the wife or parents for whom, parents whom for years he is so shockingly treated. If you don't have shockingly treated highlighted, highlight that. <laughs> Think about that. Right? The two delusions I sold myself on for a number of years are I can quit when I want to, and I'm only hurting myself. Turns out that's not the case. Turns out I've harmed a whole lot of people. And to this day, I will never know the extent 
not really, of how, how, you know, shockingly I did treat them. Passing all understanding is the patience mothers and wives, uncles, sons have had with alcoholics. Had this not been so, many of us would have no homes today, would perhaps be dead. The funniest thing I ever watched is somebody that's three months sober call with a tenth step, and it sounds like this. You know what? I picked up a three-month chip last week, and my husband still does not trust me with a checkbook. I'm about over that. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You've been drunk 27 years, but you've been sober three months. Talking about, give me that checkbook. Let me back in the bedroom. I'll be picking the kids up at carpool. No, ma'am. You won't until he trusts you. Long period of reconstruction. How dare you? Put a time frame on that and expect others to hop too. But we all do it. What's your problem? <laughs> I've been sober a hot minute. Well, sit down. Right? <laughs> Let us get used to the idea of you not being loaded at dinner. <laughs> Calm down. Right? There's a, there's some mottos in the back of the book. Everybody wants to use them for work in the steps, but they're really to be taken in context with the family. Live and let live. That's to be taken in the context with the family. Calm down. You've scalded them for years. Let them breathe. Right? Like go and let I mean there's a whole whole section to that. Go read it and see what chapter it's in. The family afterwards. Not in the work in the steps chapter. Easy does it. Easy does it. Easy does it with mom and daddy. They don't trust you. Don't ask for their credit card. So it says the alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. And you think about that for a minute. We read this paragraph all the time, and it kind of loses its effectiveness. Think about, like, how a tornado is. It comes. It destroys everything. It leaves certain things that make no sense why they would be left behind. It's careless. You're careless with your behavior. You're careless with your words. You're walking around just slapping everybody and then looking at them like, what? Right? Tornado roaring through other people's lives. And then trying to act like you didn't. Because you've either been in a blackout or you're going, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> so not true. But that's the way we behave, which is in turn more hurtful. Have you ever had somebody really harm you and then be like, hey, my bad. And you're like, I cried for three days. Don't say my bad. That hurt me to my core. Right? You've got to really look at that stuff. You've been so consumed with your pain of alcoholism and your pain of trying to get sober that we've neglected to see what we've done. I'm telling you, some of you get it because you've been on that other side of it, too. It's very hurtful. It says, um, hearts are broken, sweet relationships are dead, affections have been uprooted, selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. Underline that. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. I want to make it about whiskey. It's not. It's about me and my selfish and inconsiderate habits. One of the funniest things that, that I see is that the alcoholic thinks that when they stop drinking, all's going to be well. And what's scarier is, is so does the family. Oh, well, they quit drinking, so all's going to be well. You watch some hell break loose in a household with somebody newly sober, right? The whiskey's gone, but the selfishness, the dishonesty, the deceitfulness, the manipulation, the wanting to control everybody around you is still in full force. And it will be for a while. It will be until the principals really go to work on the alcoholic. We don't know what we're doing. We don't. Right? It's hard. It says we feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. That's such a delusion. We don't know what we don't know. And when it gets pointed out, a sponsor will help you. Absolutely help you. And a good sponsor is working with your family, too, and helping them to understand. Because they're going to get upset. She quit drinking. Why is she still 
you know, acting crazy. You know, because she's learning to live. I'm not, I don't want to let a drunk off the hook, but it's the truth. We're, we're learning to live, and we're going to step on some toes in the meantime, unfortunately. Since he's like the farmer who came up out of the cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? <laughs> Untreated alcoholism. Are you done? Are you ready for me to be done? No. She was asking what page. Oh, bottom of 82 is oh. what page we're on. Sorry. I was trying to do hand. hand. We, it's like a cheerleading thing. Yeah, I'm, I am doing. a cheerleader. You are. All right, top of 83. So it says, yes, there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. I remember my friend Marcia asking one time, that she, she was telling a story that she asked somebody, how long is long period of reconstruction? And they said to her, longer than three months, Marcia. You don't need to hold on, hold on, right? Longer than what you think. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. And that goes back to watching that toddler on the, on the playground. Sorry. Don't, that's not going to fix it. And even a sincere heart-driven amends does not make it whole. It's the behavior behind it that, that changes, that solidifies what I, what I did when I came to you to make an amends. And that was just the approach. The way I treat my mother today solidifies what I did six and a half years ago. That's the amend, the change in the way that we interact. Right? Some people, I don't know, maybe you're different. I was super selfish. And when I was a tiny, tiny kid, I found out that all you had to do was ask God for forgiveness, and it was like a clean slate. Now, some of us want to approach men's like that. <laughs> you know, I get to slap Julie around and go, uh, I need to make amends to you. And then two days later, I'm slapping her around again. No, no, no. We don't treat it like we did when we found out we could ask God for forgiveness and we would wipe the slate clean. That happens a lot. You don't get to make amends for the same thing over and over and over and over forever. Mm-hmm. Amen. That's not okay. That's not recovery. Mm-mm. It's absolutely not. Mm-mm. So it says we ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it. Well, how do you now see it? I've walked out of inventory and I know my problems are in my own making. That's how I see it mm-hmm. today. Whereas before it was about you and what you didn't do right. Be careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring. <laughs> Let me assure you, they will be glaring. They will be. You've been taking their inventory for years. You still remember that. But in this conversation, that's about me and what I've done, analyzing this past. It says, but our own actions are partly responsible. Who drove them to be crazy? Who's got a crazy family? Show of hands. We're not videotaping it. It's okay. We won't tell anybody. (laughs) But who drove them to that? I've got a mother that, that lives on the edge, on the edge, because my sisters and I have driven her to the edge. That's alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask, God, Julie, why didn't you calm down? Because you people have driven her to the edge. You can't have that many drunks in a family and have everybody be normal. It doesn't work that way. People are on edge. Leave them alone. Fourth night step prayer. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our Creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness and love. And Julie was talking about that prayer earlier. You want to incorporate that into your morning meditation? What a cool thing. What a cool thing. I get to extend the courtesy that I'm seeking in my family. You want you want those things from them? Why don't you show up with it? Don't ask that from them. The spiritual life's not a theory. We have to live it. There's a lot of us in recovery land talking about it. A lot of us wanting to quote some things, throw some ideas out there, discuss them. It becomes an intellectual exercise. Spiritual life is not a theory. It's about the way I show up. It's about my actions today. I have to live it. I have to. I, I circle the word we. 
Because I have to. Those people out there, they don't have to do anything. They don't. They can do whatever they want. They can be selfish. They can lie. They can do all kinds of stuff. Guess what? They don't drink over it. But this one right here, I, <laughs> I better show up with some principles in my life. And when I don't, I better fix it. Because I won't always be perfect, unfortunately. And it goes on to talk about not incessantly talking to them about spiritual matters. That That is so funny. Who... Anybody else do that in early sobriety? All you want to do is talk about sobriety? Your family's like, enough. You got sober. We see. It's great. You got some poker chips and stuff. Cool. Calm down. Be with them. Be about them. Stop talking recovery talk with with your family all the time. They're interested, but they're not that interested. Right? I remember my mom went with me to a meeting. I'm sure I did some stuff about this later. And she said, I see why you like recovery because it's all about you. I was like, she doesn't get it. Who cares? Stop trying to push them into Al-Anon. That's another fun little thing I've done. So it says we're not going to try to change them. Our behavior will convince them with our words. <laughs> we must remember that 10 or 20 years of drunkenness will make a skeptic out of anyone. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Is it possible to change as a process of working the 12 steps? Absolutely. Is it possible to convince the people around you that you've changed immediately? No. Don't waste your energy doing that. Show up consistently. Practice discipline. See, they'll, they'll see that. They will, and if they don't, they weren't meant to. Don't worry about it. So, so there may be some wrongs we can never fully right, and this is a big category. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves we could write them if we could, right? Some people can't be seen. We send them an honest letter, right? I can't get to everybody. Some people have passed away, and there's all kinds of cool stuff that you can do um, with, with graveside amends. That's always a real neat category of people that seem, seem to think that it won't make a difference. It will. It will. Personal experience tells me that in the experience of hundreds of people I know in sobriety that have done it. Everything that you would say in an amends face-to-face if this person was still living, if they're in prison and they're not coming out, write it on a piece of paper. Everything that you were going to say. We're not going to do therapy and light it on fire. We're going to actually do it. Send the amends letter to the prison. Do it. You don't want to put a return address? Don't. But make it right. You owe somebody that's passed away an amends, go get in front of their grave. Mm-hmm. You, talk, you talk about something powerful, go read an amends letter, graveside. Mm-hmm. Wow. You think it's just going to be this, okay, I'm going to do it and check it off my list. No, no. You show up and watch what God does. It's one of the absolute coolest things um, that I've ever seen. But I don't, where you get in trouble is judging. Kind of like going back to that, well, I don't think I'll ever see that person again, so why should I put them down? Don't decide mm-hmm. what it's going to be. Just do it. A friend of ours, John, up in Dallas, talks about going to make an amend to, I believe it was his grandmother, that he bought a bouquet of flowers, wrote an amends letter, and thought, well, this will be kind of sweet. And he went out there and just had an outpouring of emotion, a huge spiritual experience around a graveside of men. See, don't decide what God's going to do. Show up and do it anyway. That Your whole recovery will look differently if you if you can learn to do that kind of stuff. It says we shouldn't delay if it can be avoided. Um, we should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. Never. This is what I was talking about earlier. You don't need to be forgiven by these people. Mm-hmm. They want to extend you some courtesy and forgiveness. Cool. What a, what a gift. But we don't go searching for forgiveness. Why? Because I've already been forgiven by God. 
I don't need your forgiveness. You, you don't forgive me? Fine. I wish you the best. That's about an attitude, a specific attitude that I take into, into amends. Um, and then we have the ninth step promises, which are read in every meeting, so we kind of, kind of loses its value, which is unfortunate. But it talks about if we're painstaking about this phase, underline that, this phase. You don't get these promises because you showed up in a bunch of meetings. You get these promises because you participated in this phase called what? Amends. You got off your butt and got in front of some people and said, hey, here's the deal. I was wrong. Here's You did some stuff. Right? And while we're on the topic, don't happenstance upon people. I see that all the time. I made amends because I accidentally bumped into them. But could you have made an appointment? Could you have made an effort to get in front of them instead of waiting until you happenstance upon them? Probably. And if you could have, why didn't you? Is that about fear? Is that about inconsideration still on your part? One of the things I do with the women I sponsor is I tell them to make appointments. You've already been so inconsiderate. Do you want to continue to be inconsiderate with their time? Don't show up at their job. Don't go knock on their doorstep. Call that person and ask for their time. Ask them. I, I hate for people to just run up on me. It, it's not always convenient for you to run up on me. <laughs> Calm down. Ask me if you can have five minutes of my time. That's what I do when I, when I ask for an appointment. Is there a convenient time? I think I'll see them at the family reunion. I'll do it. Call them beforehand. Call him before. I remember my father making a to our family. He's lining them up at a Thanksgiving. He thought, I'll let everybody know I need to make amends at the Thanksgiving because I won't be seeing everybody. He let them know. And then he, like a cattle call, making amends to the whole family. But the considerate thing to do is give somebody a heads up. Let them know what you're doing. We always just kind of want to slide in there on everything, it seems, in life. Would not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. See, when you can, when you can give some closure to something, and that you've been carrying around for a number of years, suddenly you're free to talk about it without shame, without embarrassment, without guilt. I will say things. I'll say things in front of people that are inappropriate because I'm so free of it. It doesn't cross my mind. My mother will shush me a lot of times. Don't say that in public. No, don't do that. I don't even think about it because I'm so free of it. It's a non-issue. We laugh today about things that, that weren't funny a number of years ago. But that's what freedom looks like when you've cleaned it up sufficiently and you've done those things. And it goes on to talk about on 84, um, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. The way that I can view stuff is differently. You see, when my, when I'm, when I've got all these amends and all this heaviness, my world is still small. Because I can't go the places I want to go. I can't be with the people I want to be with because life looms large. There's a lot to clean up. When I clean it up, all of a sudden I'm free. My whole attitude and outlook upon life begins to change. That's the goal. That's what we're doing. I realize that God's doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Liquor used to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. Now God's doing it. What a shift. Because mm-hmm. these are, are these extravagant promises we think not. They are being fulfilled among us. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. But they will materialize. If I work for them, I don't get to judge how the freedom comes and in what form and what it looks like. Sometimes it's immediate and it's awesome and it's overwhelming and it's a spiritual awakening. Sometimes it's a spiritual experience that gradually creeps up on me and I suddenly shift. Did I? Spiritual awakening. Spiritual experience. I say it backwards. I haven't had enough caffeine today, clearly. (laughs) Spiritual experience. I'm not going to try to redo that. 
I'm tired. I think we all are. It's starting to show. All right. So it, it really doesn't matter. Sometimes it looks like Bill's experience. Sometimes it looks like Bob's experience. As long as it happens, mm-hmm. it happens. So I don't get to judge what that will look like. Do you have anything to add? It to will that? happen. <laughs> the thing is, is it will happen is if, if we work for it. And that's the words, work. So mean, meaning we got to stay into action. One thing I do want to, before I go, we go on, I do want to, um, I don't know about you. If you've been in the fellowship long enough, then, then you've had an amends made to you. In the fellowship. And I, and I think this is where we can get a little catty. And, and I, and I want to just propose something to you because I've done it and I've had it done to me. I've had it, uh, an amends made to me before where they came up and they said dot, dot, dot. And, and, and I'm thinking, uh, didn't know we had a problem. Thought we were friends. Clearly we're not. Because I'm not even clear on what this amends is all about. You're just telling me you're here to make amends because you're selfish, dishonest in our relationship. Okay. Not clear on that. But now I know you don't like me. (laughs) I mean, really, that's what you're telling me. Um, And so I sat there bewildered while she was making the amends. And because I was just kind of dumbfounded because I thought we were good. Um. I said, no, 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 you're fine. I don't, I don't need anything. I thought we were okay. She walked away. I walked away. I felt horrible. Because the thing is, is I have to remember anybody making amends to me, I should know why they're making amends. They're making amends to get connected to God. That's the driving force. I, it has nothing to do with me. And as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I should be receptive however it comes, whether I think it's right or whether I think it's wrong. I can't judge that person. So I was able to go back to her and say, listen, babe, I'm so sorry I wasn't receptive to your amends. And I so apologize and I so regret the way I don't want to take I don't want to get in between you and God. Please forgive me. And it was all groovy. I have also been, on the other hand, where I have made amends to somebody in the fellowship, um, and I told him exactly why I was making amends, and he proceeded to tell me that he didn't think I was sincere in making this amends. And so I initially walked away very hurt, and he said, I wish you hadn't made amends to me. When I said, what can I do to make it right? He goes, I wish you hadn't made amends to me. I walked off very hurt. I called my sponsor, and I said, I don't, uh, and he said, don't worry about it. He'll have a sponsor to talk to. Um, I said, okay. The thing is, is when I went home that night and did my nightly review and got got home and, and sat with God, I felt closer to God. I did what I needed to do. Sometimes we're going to be thrown out of an office. Sometimes we're going to be hugged. Everything, it's never going to look like what we think it's going to look like. And sometimes we shortchange God, <laughs> right? I'll never forget that the next time I was, I was going through the steps, I, the, I was going through the steps with Cliff and I went out, I had gone to the treatment center that I'd gone through to do their little, um, Sunday thing to whatever. I'd pick up a chip or something. And so I'm sitting there one night and, and it was, I had to make my men's list. And on my first men's list, I did not put this old boyfriend down. Um, and I have 
old boyfriend that I treated so shockingly. Um, surprise. But I, I sat there and I had this little conversation with God and I'm like, okay, I am so never going to see him again. That's exactly how I said it. I am so never going to see him again, God. But I'll tell you what. I will put him down. Like, I'm doing God a favor, right? Like, I mean, that's seriously how I I will put him down. And if you think it's appropriate, whatever. And I wrote him down. I mean, that I'm willing to do it. <laughs> the next day, I go up to the hill, and I do my little thing, and I look in the back of the room, and there he is. And I haven't seen him in ten years. See, I'm willing, and God shows up. As long as I'm willing, and I was able to make amends. My other point to this is that your sponsor's not always going to be there on the fly. There's no resell cell reception there. <laughs> I can't get a hold of my sponsor and go, oh my God, i got to make an amends right now. So I prayed. I did it in front of his wife because she was married. I felt like that was the appropriate thing to not to cause any jealousy with her, and I did it in front of her, and I just vaguely said how I harmed him, and he just, and we're good, but um, the thing is, is I think we always have a vision of what it's supposed to look like, and we always have an expectation of what it's supposed to look like, and then once we're done, it's never that, and once we get home and have that quiet time with God, we feel even more walking hand in hand with him. That's the cool part of that. All right, guys. I know we're back, and I know it's a long day, and I so appreciate y'all hanging in there. You don't even know. I swear. I think, I, and I keep saying, thank God for these comfy chairs. If y'all haven't been in an all-day workshop on those hard chairs, I mean, this is like going in, in this is Hollywood style right here. <laughs> definitely, definitely. So thanks so much for coming back and hanging in there with us. We'll we'll be wrapping it up here shortly. We're about to get to the good stuff. We we have just gotten to the, the logistics. We went through the logistics of what the program is really all about and, and how we get through it and how we get sober and what we do. And now we're about to really get to the fun stuff. And I'm about to start talking about Step 10, and this is where you will see me come out out of my seat. You already see me just, I love step 10. I call it the power step because in step 10, um, amazing things start happening and, and we just don't even know it. Um, if you look and let's go there. Um, and and the, we're coming off of those promises, and, and the thing is, is they're, they're coming true, and we're not even recognizing it, you know? And we're getting everything that we were searching for in the bottle, we're getting it out of the steps. And I'm looking at those steps on the walls for years and years and years, sitting in the meeting, and I'm looking at those steps on the wall, thinking, and, and I'm hearing people read those promises and hearing it, and I'm thinking, I don't know how to get, I don't know what y'all are talking about, right? I, it is foreign language to me. And the next thing I know, I come in here and actually have somebody work the steps to me with me and go through this with me and these things start happening and everything I was searching for in that bottle I am now getting out of the steps right yeah I mean it's the coolest and, and we just thought we were going to get sober <laughs> so 
Here's the thing. It says we have entered the world of the Spirit. At step 10, we, isn't that our goal, to stand in the sunlight of the Spirit, to walk hand in hand with the Spirit of the universe? At this point, that's where we are. We're walking hand in hand with the Spirit of the We're standing in the sunlight. We went from this bitter morass of self-pity, the, the gloom and the darkness and the ugh, and lack of power was our dilemma. And guess what? By step 10... We're in the power. We've got it. We're in the sunlight. How cool is that? Think about it. It's, it's warm. Uh, it, mm. <laughs> Our next function, oh, but it doesn't stop there, right? It doesn't say you get to rest, honey. <laughs> Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Remember when I talked about in step seven how we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have successes and and through these successes and failures we will grow in understanding. Why? For us? No. To be more effective for the new woman or man that walks through the door. Because my job is to fit myself, and that's what that night step did, is to help me fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. It's not an overnight matter, and it's going to continue for my lifetime, so guess what? You're stuck with me. Whether you like me or not, you're stuck with me. Here's some directions that we're going to get. See, the directions don't stop because we finished our fourth step. The fourth step, there's not just directions in the fourth step. We also have directions in the tenth step. You want to know how to stay in the sunlight of the Spirit? It's going to tell us. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That's all that fourth step stuff, right? So we're going to continue to watch for it. Why? Because it's going to come. <laughs> we got sober. We didn't get good. <laughs> Maybe you did. <laughs> I didn't. That's my sponsor. When these crop up, because they will, when these crop up, we ask God at, at, at once to remove them. All right, so what does that say? Six and se- What does that sound like? Six and seven? Right? So when it crops up, I'm going to say, hey, God, will you please remove this fear? Direct my attention to what you would have me be. I do not have to say that out loud and look like a crazy woman. I can say it silently and to myself. And I'm going to give you a little synopsis of what that will look like. Um, We discuss them with someone immediately. Step five, discussing ourselves. And make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Step nine. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Step 12, love and tolerance of others is our code. Isn't that the principle that we've been talking about and discussing through this whole time? What that looks like is remember when I was talking about in that third step of of, um, sitting in a meeting and Audrey looks at me wrong and the next thing I know I get all that stuff starts popping in my head like I'm replaying everything I've said and I'm thinking, okay, Just because I get sober doesn't mean that's going to go away. The book talks about how we can be sensitive, and that sensitivity is a handicap, but we're sensitive people. (laughs) Okay, so just because I get sober doesn't mean I'm going to get, like, right with everyone. I can still have my feelings hurt. It may be self-delusion. Remember how it talks about resentment? Fancied or real. 
has the power to kill. That's in sobriety. You don't know what a resentment is until you've had a resentment in sobriety. <laughs> when I said, well, I'll show him, ooh, that's a reason, right? So I'm sitting there. Audrey looks at me. I think she looks at me wrong. Now I have a new set of directions, a new set of directions and a new way of living. So it'll take care of the moment, right? So the urge to drink will not come back. That insanity will not return, and I will not drink again. And I can sit quietly because now I can recognize that fear. Now I can say to myself, not everybody else around me in the meeting, God, please remove the fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. Right? Sometimes, like Audrey said, be quiet, don't say anything. There's no need for me to go to Audrey and say, hey, baby, what's wrong with you? Why are you looking at me like that? Don't we always want to do that? Mm-hmm. Fix it? We want to be fixers. I'll never forget um, um, a friend of mine at my group. I was complaining about my husband, and I was like, oh, you just, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And, and he looked at me, and he's like, Julie, do nothing. You always want to fix it. I'm like, huh, that was like a new thought, right? Go home and do nothing? But that's what I can do. I can absolutely do nothing except when I walk out of that meeting, who do I call? My sponsor. I'm not calling Kimberly, (laughs) right? I'm not going to start any drama. I am not going to be a creator of drama today. I am going to do my best to be a creator of harmony. How do I do that? Keep my mouth shut. Call my sponsor. Oh, my gosh. I have done this. The reason I use this example, because it has happened to me. (laughs) I didn't just get it out of my pocket. (laughs) I remember calling my sponsor, and I'm like, oh, my God, I know this is so stupid. But this guy looked at me wrong in a meeting, and I feel judged, and I feel this, and I feel that. Right? Did I have to tell anybody else? Did I have to gossip? Did I have to tell anybody else what I thought of him? Mm Mm-mm. But I told my sponsor, and my sponsor said it, after he chewed me, it does not matter what they think of you. It is your job to love them. Who can you help? Right? I didn't have to make an amend because I didn't harm anyone. And see, we, we trivialize the small stuff. It's not, we, we're real good about tent stepping on the big stuff. Right? I'm real good about that. But it's when I get those small little things that, that I think bug me and I just want to set it aside and think, mm, not a big deal. They don't need to know about that. I don't need to bother them. Isn't that pride? All it is is pride. It's pride keeping me from doing that because it's saying that I can handle it. All of a sudden, the big S goes on the chest, and I think I'm better than that, and I think I can handle this situation, and I think I can wish it away, and I'm going to deal with this, and guess what happens? That gets attached to this one, and the next thing I know, I'm too good for all of you. The next thing I know, I'm really judging you. The next thing I know, all of you are whack. And the next thing I know, I leave. And I'm drunk again. 
because I am driven by selfishness and self-centeredness and I am full of fear down to the core and this stuff will kill me and one resentment will cut me off from the sunlight of the spirit it will whether you believe it or not so when I practice this because that's what it takes is practice 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 and if you get perfect at it will you please call me and let me know how you do that <laughs> I still get yelled at <laughs> for not being good at it <laughs> I mean I'm just not I, 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 I wish I were better but we can you know I still I'm like I'll still t- sometimes I'll still I'll just be like you know what no I'm mad at my husband and I want to be mad <laughs> my husband gets most of it. He gets all the grunt. He gets all of it. And I'm like, I, I want to be mad. I'm not calling Cliff yet. I'll talk to Audrey. I'm not. I'm not calling Cliff yet. <laughs> and my husband will finally say, have you talked to your sponsor? <laughs> <clears throat> Fine. And I'll call. But how long do I want to say? The, the thing is that who wants to be free? Me? Because, see, it's not bothering my sponsor if I call or not. He could care less. He'd love for me to do it. He loves me. He cares about my sobriety. But it's not hurting him. Who is it hurting? Me. If I don't call, what is that about? Pride. It's all about my pride, my ego. Does that make sense? All right. So when we actually work this step as it's laid out. Um, I, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around this because I go to some meetings and I hear tent step meetings and they're all talking about how they do their tent step at night. And I, I don't think that's what they're saying here in the book. I think what they're saying is that um, I think when they say at once... Like, when it crops up at once, we need to ask God to remove it. And then to discuss it with someone immediately means, like, then, and it doesn't say, will you please write your 10th step at night? I don't don't see that in here. (laughs) If y'all see it, let me know. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. I don't know about y'all, but I really, um, I joke about not doing a 10th step, but but I'm... (laughs) I'm willing to do what it takes to stay sober today and to live in the sunlight of the Spirit. And to do that, I must do this when the book suggests it. Now, if I want to wait and, and, and get a little ucky, I can, by all means. It's my sobriety. But in all honesty, the more that I have practiced this, the longer I have practiced this, I have learned that, you know what, I don't, I don't really today, I don't care what my sponsor thinks because it's my sobriety. And so I'll pick up the phone and I'll tell him anything because it's my sobriety. And, and in all honesty, that's all he wanted me to do in the first place. It just took me a little longer to learn that because I'm stubborn. Aren't we all? When we do this, here's the coolest thing. Here are the coolest promise. We have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. Oh, my gosh. You mean I don't have to just avoid alcohol? I don't have to avoid people. 
<laughs> like, I don't have to be afraid of you, and I don't have to be afraid of peop- um, um, alcohol. You know, I mean, I'm not avoiding anything. How cool is that? I cease fighting anything. I cease fighting anyone. I I love how my sponsor tells me all the time. He's like, Julie, I hate to break your bubble. Not everybody likes you. <laughs> like, don't hurt my feelings. <laughs> I mean, aren't we always trying to set us ourselves up to be liked by everyone? Not today. You know, you're going to like me or you're not. And and I can't make you feel a certain way, and I have learned that. You're going to like what I have to say or you're not. It, it just is what it is. So I don't have to fight that. I don't have to fight what you think about me anymore. That's the coolest. That's freedom. That is true freedom when we get to walk um, walk that way. Sanity is going to return. There's our step two promise. So at this point, this is where that step two promise comes into play. So at step two, I don't have to be, uh, it's kind of, God, it's crazy. These steps are so simple and we want to just complex them because in step two, we're always looking for the answer. We're always waiting for the, the sanity to be returned there. We're expecting something, but it's, it's, it's the action that we take that gets the results, right? So at step 10, this is where sanity is returned. Why? This is where I can differentiate the true from the false. This is where when I get tempted, because I will get tempted, because I am an alcoholic, right? And that is what I have known for a long time. And there is a time, I'll never forget I'm pretty newly sober and going back to a vacation spot that we went to for years and years and years, and all I did was drink, right? I'd go around the river with my kids in my inner tube, and that's all we did. And I remember being there, and I remember calling Cliff, and my, my comment to him was, I'm watching others drinking with impunity. And he said, go to a meeting. So I did. I went to a meeting. It happened to be a birthday meeting. There was another new kid, that new young guy that sat next to me, and um, nobody introduced themselves to us. I'd never been to this group. No one came up and said hi to us, so I started talking to him, and the next thing I know, it's his first meeting, and it's some birthday meeting, and I can tell there's nothing. No, mm. I said, hey, let's go sit in the kitchen. I take him. We go sit in the kitchen. I open my big book with him. I walk away free. Sanity returns again. And see, we're going to be tempted. It does, but, but the cool thing is, is that today I know my truth around alcohol. Today I know when I drink, I will get drunk. There is no other result. There is no great effect that will come from it. I will be drunk. Period. We will react sanely and normally. I used to I used to sit in meetings and um God guys all I wanted to do is be normal. That's all I want. I just wanted to be normal my whole life. I wanted to be normal. I remember saying that, and then I remember hearing in these meetings, well, normal is just a setting on a dishwasher. How pathetic! How sad! What hope is that? You're going to tell me that I just get to be a setting on a dishwasher? Guess what? Open your book. 
Because that's not what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says. It says, I will react sanely and normally. And I will find that this will happen automatically. The only thing, effort it takes is for me to follow a few simple rules. The steps. I do this. I get connected to the power. The power relieves that mental obsession. I walk free. That's what that looks like. That's what that normalcy looks like. I am not dodging the beer signs, which I used to do. Because I'm telling you what, I love Coors Light. And those hot chicks that used to promote it, they look good. And I'd be like, no, don't look, don't look. I don't have to do that today. The other thing is I don't have to swear it off. I don't have to wake up and say, you know what, today we're not drinking. Today we're not drinking. Today we're not. Because we got a chip coming up. We're going to get that chip. <laughs> I live by chip. That's not what we do. Today, we walk free. We don't even think about it. We wake up and we say, oh, my gosh, good morning, God. What's What's the plan? What you got for me? We find that this happened automatically. This is our experience. This is our experience. Not just theirs, but you look around this room and there are tons of people that have that same experience. We're not fighting it, avoiding it. That's why we're not cocky either. Because you know what? We fought it and we avoided it for years and years and years. And it didn't work. And we come in here and work some steps. I remember looking at you going, I've, I've seen Dr. Phil. If Dr. Phil can't fix you, nobody can. <laughs> That's my thinking. How are those steps going to fix me? How are those steps on hanging on the wall? And that's like, you got to take them off the wall, Julie. <clears throat> Telling me what to do. (laughs) How dare them. This is how we react. Um, This is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. It's amazing to me how long it took me to learn that I didn't have to fight alcohol and that this wasn't a program of fighting it, that this was a program of working steps and a program of action. I heard this was a program of action over and over. I heard that, but that's all I heard. A lot of it was around a bunch of fluff, like keep coming back. It'll work if you work it. Um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many little slogans I heard, but nobody ever said, Julie, what the hell are you doing? Why don't you shut up? Why don't you sit down? I didn't have that. I don't know why that wasn't in my experience. I talked to another lady here, and she came in the, the program, and she got hooked in a sponsor and got through the steps and actually got, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is the coolest. 
And then I was telling her my experience. She's like, oh, my God, that really happens? <laughs> I'm like, yes, that happens. I mean, that happens more than, than what you got, especially, and I'm going to say, especially with women. And we need women. We need women that are willing to say, you know what, shut up. You haven't worked the steps. You don't have anything to say. I don't want what you have. And if you want what I have, you better be willing to work some steps. If you're not, there's the door. Don't waste our seat. Don't waste your time. That's what we got to be willing to say. (laughs) Otherwise, we're going to go about it every other way and try to get the same result that we're getting in this step any other way but this. Because this is just going to lead us into the next step. And then the next step, which is even harder to commit to. See, each step is following it up with another commitment and another commitment and another commitment. And this is for our lifetime. What do you get or not get about lifetime? Not 30 days, not 60 days, not one day. Lifetime. Is it easy to let up on the spiritual program of action? Says so. (laughs) Says it is. Why? Because we start what? We start getting stuff back. We start, you know, I see it all the time. I see it all the time. I get to work at a little treatment center and, and I get to be there for the alumni that come home and, and I and I get to do lectures there and stuff and I see these guys come home and they're so all right yeah I'm ready right and they all they're all fired up and they've got a bunch of knowledge and they understand their problem they've started working the steps and they're like yes Julie I'm committed and then, where are you? Right? And then all of a sudden they start dropping like flies. They're gone. Where'd they go? Where's that commitment? Where's that desperation you had when you came in? Where's that willingness? I'll never forget. Oh, well, I should wait until the next, because it's a good example. Never mind. Just, I'll remind you. Okay. It's easy to do that, and then we're headed for trouble if we do, because alcoholism is cunning, baffling, and it's powerful. Absolutely. And it's waiting. It's lying and waiting. And the deal is, is that every day is a day when we must carry God's vision into all of our activities. What part of that do we not get? I don't know. There's days when I'm like, I don't want to. (laughs) Not today. Oh, shit. I took a third step. (laughs) And I'll call my sponsor, and the first thing he'll say is, do you want to take that third step back? No, I don't. The reason I don't want to take that third step back is because I don't want to drink again. I don't want to drink again because I don't want to run my own life again. I don't want to run my own life again because I don't want to hurt others again. 
It's a cycle. And so every day is a day when I must carry the vision of God's will into all my activities. There's a great 10-step prayer. There's so many great prayers in this book. It's unbelievable that the man who wrote this book was just had a problem with God. I don't, I'm like, really? You came up with that? And I thought I was smart. How cool is this? We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. So at this point, my will is now aligning with God's will. Oh, my gosh. Never thought that would happen. Never thought that would happen. And now we're walking truly hand in hand. I always I do this little thing when, when I'm at places and, and we talk about um, – when we first come in here and, and the internal condition and, and how it's kicking our hiney and it looks like that black hole, I call it my rat wheel that's going off, right? And it's just, just, just going and going and going and it won't shut up and my head is just racing and racing and it won't quiet. And so my solution has always been booze. And it works for a minute. <laughs> and then I'm drunk. And then I've got this power over here because you told me that lack of power is my dilemma and I'm going to have to get to this power. And I'm like, well, shoot. Okay, but I'm, I'm not, I don't have access to that power because it's mucked up. Like if you can think of it as a channel and it's just dirty, right, and corroded. And so which each step I take, this power is starting to connect to me. I'm connecting to this power. Well, at this point, it's telling me that my will is now aligned with his will. I'm standing in the sunlight of the, of the spirit. So I have now tapped into the power. The power has tapped into me and given me the power to recover. So at this point, I am recovered. I am sane. How cool is that? Given me the power to recover and to help others. And so then we're going to go on and learn what that looks like because I'm going to have to get quiet with God so that my prayers aren't anymore. Hey, God, here's the plan. Bless it. (laughs) We're going to change that. I love that you freely admit that. That's how you prayed. All right. So let's talk about step 11. Um, One thing that I I hear a question a whole lot um, Looking at amends in step 10 is, do I have to finish all of my amends before I can do step 10? And that's kind of a common misconception um, that we hear a lot of times. The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, In that paragraph talking about step 10, it says that I'm going to continue to take personal inventory and and continue to set right any new mistakes. Here's the kicker. As we go along, as I'm going through the process of making amends, I make one amends, I need to be doing step 10. Because in the process of life and living, I'm stepping on toes. And I'm making mistakes and I'm messing up because that's living. Um, And so step 10 is what keeps me current. Right? I'm certainly maintaining my sobriety in step 10, 11, and 12, but this is the the point in which I'm going to grow spiritually. And that's really kind of the aim of what it is that we're doing. How do I stay free of old ideas? 10 and 11 work as a combination to do that. But I can assure you this, you don't do step 10, step 11 is ineffective. You don't think it does. You doesn't feel like it is. But I can assure you that it is. Mm-hmm. And here's what I mean by that. Julie alluded to this earlier when she said it takes one resentment to shut me off, one fear, one interaction with another human being where I feel weird about it, and all of a sudden I'm, start, I'm, I'm shut off. 
And when I get shut off, the only voice I can hear is my own. Mm-hmm. And my voice sounds like, y'all are wrong. <laughs> Didn't matter what the situation is, what I said or thought or did was right, and you, what you did was wrong. And so it's really important for me to stay on top of what the word promptly means. Because I can wait till Thursday. And I've been known to do that from time to time, and mm-hmm. I suffered terribly for it. And Julie says, stop waiting. Stop waiting. And here's the truth. It's selfish of me to wait. Do you know why? It's not about the fact that it makes me feel bad because I'm ineffective with other people. My protégés are calling up. They've got stuff going on. I can't see straight because I'm still stuck in me. So how selfish of me not to do a 10th step. I didn't know that for a long time. And it got, got revealed to me. Um, some of the biggest things I've ever learned. I'm telling you, I've had some phenomenal teachers. Um, great people in my lineage, great friends in recovery. I've learned a lot of lessons. I've heard a lot of lectures, um, read a lot of books. I uh, listen to Joe and Charlie, and they are just, you know, the end-all, be-all to me. But I'm telling you, I've never learned so many lessons than in doing prayer and meditation. You want to get taught something? Shut your mouth. Right? Watch your creator creep up on you, spirit to spirit, and start connecting. I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. Julie's phenomenal, but the lessons I've learned directly from God surpass anything I've ever heard. The gentle urgings of my creator did Audrey say over here, Audrey, don't say that. Audrey, move over here. Audrey, reach out to that man. He's alone. No person will ever be able to teach me that or to tell me that. You know, so... You you want to do 11 effectively, stay on top of that 10th step. It's, it's an easy way to get shut off. So it says, much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. Underline that right there. We miss it. All knowledge and power. You know, sponsors are phenomenal. Friends in recovery are great. They don't have all knowledge and power. And neither does your mama. Don't try to 10th step with your mom. <laughs> Just FYI, just a side note. If you want to feel better about something, you want to be right, justified in it, call your mother. Yeah. You hear the truth, go to God. Right? So it talks about developing a vital sixth sense. But it says that we've got to go further, and that means more action. Because if I say, like Julie said, I'm a huge fan of, of being visual, looking at it as a channel um, between you and God, kind of like a pipeline. And once in four through nine, the corrosion starts getting cleaned out. Well, life starts happening and stuff gets stuck back in there. Step 10 continues to clean it out, right, so that the connection is going there and it's coming back. And if you think about it, everybody thinks that step 11 is this really hard thing that you got to really, really work towards. It's really not. Any relationship, everybody in this room has been in a relationship, uh, even if it's with your family members or with your, with your close friends, a relationship takes communication. I've got to talk and I've got to listen. I've got to participate. It's not about a feeling. I love God, but am I participating with God today or am I not? And that's what i got to look at. It says it suggests prayer and meditation. We are some praying people. How many times have you prayed loaded? Oh, my God. I can't even tell you. I used to sit on the toilet and pray and sing praise songs and, and try to get healed, and, and it never quite worked. But I, what I couldn't do was meditate because I couldn't shut my mouth long enough to hear. <laughs> right? I'm, I've got rattling off a list of things that I want. That's not prayer. That's not communication. That's, that's about making a, a list. It says we shouldn't be shy on this matter of prayer. Immediately what comes to mind in prayer meditation is what does it mean to meditate? What does that look like? Let me assure you, if you can worry, you can meditate. <laughs> you really can. It's that simple. You get on something and stay on it. 
Just like you do when you worry, oh, my God, should I have said that? Should I have not done that? Should I have been over here? You get obsessive on that. It's the same thing in meditation. I know that's a silly analogy, but it's true. You know, if you don't know how to meditate, just try it. Start with something simple. Right? You don't have to meditate. To start. It's 12 minutes every morning. That's not in the big book. Right? You must be on your knees in a lotus position. No. You must have outside spiritual books. No. But if you want to add them, cool. Right? There's no stop restricting it. It's when you get restricted that you get frightened. Mm-hmm. And the relationship begins to wither because you think it's got to be just so. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. Prayer and meditation. So it says they're going to make some definite and valuable suggestions. So when people say they're doing their 10th step at night, what they're really doing is a nightly review, which is step 11. Um, but we just get a little confused. So it's talking about retiring at night and constructively reviewing the day. So briefly what we're doing is we're, we're making a, a pass at how well I did step 10 today. Was I on my game watching for stuff or did I miss it? Did stuff slip through the cracks? And, guys, it does. There's times I look at my nightly review and think, oh, my God, I totally forgot that happened early this morning. I should have done a 10-step. It's time to get on it. It's 11 at night. I certainly don't call this woman. I'm going to jot it down or I'm going to remember it and handle it the next day. Right? I've been known to leave late-night voicemails, too. Um, it was a resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid. Do I owe an apology? Have I kept something to myself? Was I kind and loving toward all? What could I have done better? Where can I grow in effectiveness and understanding? This is not an opportunity to shame myself. It's an opportunity to say, you know what, I could have been more interested in what she was talking about, but I think I was thinking about what I was going to say in that conversation. Just as simple as that. God, for my corrective measures, God, could you, could you help me be more invested in other people? Get more, more present in the conversations I'm having. Stop thinking about me so much. You know, just as simple as that. Um, was I packing into the stream of life? What could I do for others? And let me tell you something. You're, you're packing into the stream of life whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is this. Your, your demeanor, your disposition, your attitude, you're touching people whether you want to or not. The question is, was it positive or was it negative? Were you giving back or were you taking from? You ever been in a car ride with somebody that's pissed or in a bad mood, <laughs> irritated at their boss, and you're like, oh, I wish you weren't here? You know, they're, they're sucking the life out of you. And they think they were fine because they didn't say anything ugly. Mm-hmm. No. Where are you? Right? It's like a ripple effect. It is. So it says, I'm not going to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, which is so hard in early sobriety especially, but I'm still a victim of that today, wanting to beat myself up about the day. It's not time to do that. It won't help me or anybody else. So I'm going to make my review, ask God's forgiveness, and inquire what corrective measures should be taken. You know, and there's times I'm going to jump on the phone and say, you know, I was reviewing this. This is kind of the corrective measure that's coming to me. I feel like this is the right thing to do. What do you think? Sometimes I bounce that kind of stuff off. Because sometimes self-will wants to make decisions based in guilt. I feel bad. Let me fix it. Let me get my hands on it. You know, and sometimes I don't need to do that. Sometimes I do. Sometimes it's appropriate. But it's also good to involve another person that doesn't have any emotional attachment to it. And talks about on awakening, we're going to consider the 24 hours ahead. I love that. I, I double start it. Consider. And I laugh at myself every morning that I think, here's, here's how it's going to go today. Here's what the plan is going to look like. It's never going to look like that. It never does. And if I can get with it, I can avoid disappointment. I can avoid upsets most of the time. When I can get with the word consider. I know that I need to be at this workshop today. I know I need to visit with these certain people. I know that by the time the night's over, there's a couple little tasks I need to get done. But beyond that, this is, this is God's time. This is his day. Do you guys get that? Right? See, I get sober and all of a sudden it's mine. This is my time. This is my day. No, it's not. (laughs) 
You're not even supposed to be here. Okay? Exactly. This is like our friends call the bonus round. Yeah. You get to be here. This is going to be about what God has for you in the day. Um, it's, it, in the beginning, I'm going to ask God to direct my thinking, especially asking it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. See, I would like to tell you that I can think my way out of selfishness. I can think my way out of a life driven by fear. That's just not the truth. That's not fourth dimension stuff. It's really not. I'm going to have to ask God to direct that stuff. Um, and then it talks about being able to employ my mental faculties and use my God-given brain on the plane of my will aligning with God's will. See, God's no dummy. He gave us the sanity back first, and then he gave us the proper use of the will, not vice versa. Because we're kind of people that we just plow drive through life trying to make it happen, trying to make it work. Now, let's get some sanity and some clarity in our life, first around alcohol, then around people and circumstances, and all of a sudden I'm not fighting everybody and everything because I'm doing 10-step stuff. Now I can start thinking about how to use my will properly, like how to help you. New concept, there's other people on the planet. Right? <laughs> Let's interact with them instead of stepping on them. You know, but what I'm going to mess up, that's for sure, but I'm, I'm few and far between as comparison to the way it was. And talks about indecision and what to do with that. It says, here we ask God for inspiration in bottom 86, an intuitive thought or a decision. I'm not going to struggle. I'm not going to fight this. There are times that I, I ask for inspiration, intuitive thoughts, what would you have me do? What, how would you have me be in this? And when the answers don't come immediately, that's not time to formulate a plan. That's a time to stay in, <laughs> stay in the pause with that. I know there's stuff I'm still pausing about today. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. Like Julie said, you know, we're always wanting to fix it and make it better. I dare you not to touch it. It's about the hardest thing you can do is not having to take action. It's having to not take any action. It's, it's a kind of a beating sometimes. But once you start getting the results from doing it, you're, you know what? Last time I didn't touch it and God worked it out and that was pretty smooth. So I'm going to back up off of it. You know, I sponsored this girl, Holly, one time. She's the funniest person on the planet. She said, I'm not touching stuff. I'm trying to see what else can I back up off of. Like, this, you might be on to something. I mean, she was so funny. She's not touching a whole bunch of stuff today. It's pretty cool. This is important on 87. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Huh. That sixth sense begins to develop, and then I begin to depend upon it. Right? When I get the intuition from God, there's very few times that I question that. There's very few times that I go, that's solidified. That's what it was. But early on, I'm fumbling with it. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm asking my sponsor for a lot of direction. Here's what I'm hearing in meditation. What does that sound like to you? And a lot of times it sounds like, hey, that sounds dead on. Sometimes it's like, I'm pretty sure that's you trying to get your way <laughs> and try to call it God's will. You know, Cliff always says that, you know, we're doing God's will and he doesn't know about it kind of stuff. It's funny. But I'm telling you, the more you work with it, the more you decide to trust it and to go all in, the, the more it begins to work, you know. And there's a lot of times people don't understand that. But I'm telling you, if you you really want to you really want to do something cool and sobriety, start trusting your intuition. Start trusting that. Start going out on a limb and taking taking action around it. And here's what I can promise you: you're going to be misunderstood. People will question what you're doing. They will throw things like logic and reason at you. But when you have been urged by your Creator, you, you won't care. You won't care. You'll go all in. 
You'll push all the chips and go, I, I understand that this is what God wants me to do, and you'll run with it. It's the coolest thing. I'm, this past two years, I've been questioned more by more people. You did what? You moved to where? To work for who? What? I'm telling you, when God shows you a path and you run, you don't care what people think. Anybody interested in that? Right? You left what? I thought that was a cool... Re- no, it wasn't. I left. Really? Yeah. And you can trust it. You know, it says, nevertheless, we are thinking will as time passes, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely upon it. So as I take necessary action and I develop this relationship with my higher power, I begin to trust and rely upon him. Right. That's the coolest stuff. That's like Julie talking about. She couldn't get to her sponsor to call him and say, hey, I had no cell service. Should I make this amend? Should I not? You know. You know, that's an inner knowing that once once it begins to happen, um, it's kind of like until you have it, it's just words. Until you feel it, it's something very different. And it goes on to talk about praying for others um, and how to pray. Um, most of the time we were praying for others, we were praying they'd do what we needed them to do. They would act right. Um, but now it's asking that I, I ask especially for freedom from self-will. I'm to pray for myself in that manner. To ask especially for freedom from self-will. And those are the requests that I ask. Can you ask to be a better daughter? A better husband? A stronger sponsor? Sure. If something that you want will benefit others, pray for it. But to make a laundry list of things that you think you need to be happy, haven't we done that already? We already traveled that, that road, right? Let's don't continue to do that. They've talked about being quick to see where religious people were right. Most of the time, I, I see a lot of people in recovery want to make fun of that stuff, right? It's funny how all these people in the world religions, no matter what they are, they've got some sanity, some purpose, some soundness of mind, some inner peace, and we mock them. Really? Right? Shouldn't we all be seeking that kind of stuff? I don't care who your God is, who you choose to worship. Are you, are you on a path, a spiritual program? That's what we're looking at. Right? As I go through the day, I pause when agitated or doubtful. If you have some funky color highlighters, get them out. Get them out. I'm about to show you a secret. It's like, they should, that, that should be the book. The secret should be the pause. It says, as I go through the day, I'm going to pause when agitated or doubtful. Right? More often than not, I remember this when I'm agitated. It took me years to get the doubtful part down. Right? And ask for the right thought or action. Right? Who better to, to draw closer to than the one that will save you? When you're in a situation you don't know what to do, pause. That means don't talk. <laughs> I'm telling you. I remember my dad said to me one time, he was a couple years sober, and he's like, if I could not talk, I would save so much trouble. If I could just stop doing that, I would be in so much better shape. I can get with that. There was a time when, when I really honed in on stopping short before the words came flying out of my mouth. It took a, a long time, and it still doesn't always work. Sometimes they get out without without me being able to pause. Um, so it says, I'm going to ask God for the right thought or action, constantly reminding myself I'm no longer running the show. This will make for a much less painful, painful tense step, I promise you. Humbly saying to myself many times each day, thy will be done. There's my 11th step prayer. We're in much less danger of excitement, fear, anger, worry, self-pity, or foolish decisions. It's kind of like that pendulum, that internal pendulum that swings from side to side to side. Because when I see the word excitement, I think, well, that's not bad. Why would I not want to get excited? 
Well, what we don't want to do is make decisions based on excitement. You ever walked on a car lot to look and drove off with a new car, right? Poor decisions based on excitement. This is what we're talking about. When I get overly anxious and I can't stop and pause and bring God in, because although I can maybe can afford that car and there's nothing wrong with it, is that what God would have me do? Where am I with relying upon God to show me every single decision? Right? Swinging from excitement to fear to anger to worry to self-pity, self-imposed crisis. Y'all know what those are, right? Yeah. Everybody in this room ought to know what self-imposed crisis are. So I set the ball rolling on something and then look back and go, oh, dear Lord. Right? <laughs> that was me. We become much more efficient, not tiring so easily, because we're not burning up energy foolishly trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. You ever wonder why you got here so tired? You ever get real tired in sobriety? Have a look at page 88 and see where you're falling into that. You ever get exhausted? It might have something to do with that, right? It's, 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 you know, exhausting trying to arrange life to suit yourself. It's a big old job. There's lots of people to be arranged. There's lots of scenarios to fix. There's lots of people that you need to sit them down, explain what they need to do to make you okay. Right? It's, it's exhausting. Step 11 is about getting out of the way and allowing God to work through me. Right? To be able to sit and listen in the stillness. That's the hardest thing that we seem to manage at the time. Start small. It doesn't matter what it looks like. You're on your floor. You're on your bed. You're sitting. You're lying. You're on your knee. Whatever. Whatever. God will meet you where you are. Don't let people judge you and make you feel weird about how you pray and meditate. Just do it. You will develop a relationship that they can't touch. They can't touch. Oh, you only meditate for 12 minutes? You're clearly not in the advanced class of alcoholics. <laughs> Screw you. You know, I don't care what you think. My relationship with God is so awesome today, you can't touch it. And I hope a year from now it's it's 10 times better, and then the next year it better be better. Right? You can't stay stagnant in a relationship with your friends or your family. Why would you stay stagnant with your creator? Right? You're always moving, always moving. What you got? Uh, you know, and I think that's just this so such an important piece of this because so often everybody wants to compare their prayer and meditation time with somebody else's and then they feel guilty because it's not this way or they think it should be this way and, and I get really tired of that and, and I think we need to be real clear that the book suggests that we seek. And it gives us some simple suggestions and prayers to use. Nobody has the right to tell me how to pray. Nobody has the right to define God for me. Nobody in Alcoholics Anonymous has the right to tell me how I must listen and how I must pray. Not even my sponsor. So I think it's we got we got to really get away from telling people what they have to do because see if I'm telling somebody how they have to do it how are they going to get a personal relationship with their creator and this is what it's about at this point I better have a personal relationship with this creator or I'm screwed because that's why we come to Alcoholics Anonymous here's the big secret <laughs> that's why we come to Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> to get a relationship with our creator and at this point, we got it. And that's who's relieved this mental obsession so that, that we don't return to the drink. I'll never forget early in sobriety, and I, and, and 
And then, I, listen, guys, I still, I get up, I mean, I'm as simple today as I say my third step, seventh step, and, and I go through the eleventh step. I still do that. As monotonous as it sounds to some of you, you know what? It works for me. And that's what works for me. And it just keeps it simple. And I remember why I'm here. And I remember what my job is. And I remember what my job isn't. <laughs> and I'll never forget, newly sober, and, and I called Cliff, and I, I had a friend that um, had relapsed, and I was trying to get her sober, and I was like, you know, real new sober, and you think, oh, my God, she relapsed. I must save her. <laughs> We're all guilty. Come on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my sponsor said, no, you don't. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, you don't know anything. You've only been sober, I don't know, forever, <laughs> old man. <laughs> and then he said, you're not to, you shouldn't go see her. You should, you know, he gives me some valuable suggestions because that's what a sponsor is there for. Valuable suggestions. And I said, um, <clears throat> on page 86, it says, God gave me brains to use. That's exactly what I said to them. <laughs> He said, well, it sounds like you don't need a sponsor. And I said, well, you might be right. Because I am so stubborn. I don't know how I've lasted this long. So we hang up the phone, and I'm I'm just like a little tornado running everywhere. And um, I finally... I didn't like anything or anyone. You know, we can get like that real quick, right? Get in my own self-will thinking. I, I never really looked at that. It doesn't say that God gave me brains, does it? It says God gave us brains. <laughs> Let's rely on each other. <laughs> Help me out. <laughs> and so I called him back one day and I said, um, I think I have an amends to make to you. It was a week later. And he let me go. He let me go. I mean, what's he going to do? Stop me? And so he's like, well, you can't do it on the phone. And I'm like, I know, old man. I'm calling to make an appointment with you. He's like, well, come on over. And so I went over there, and he said, what did I do to hurt you? And I said, nothing. I said, I have been a roaring tornado roaring through lives of others. And he said, so what? why do you want to stop? And he said, and I said, because I'm going to drink again. And he said, I know. And you're on your way. So let's get down to back to business. So what I'm saying here is it's, it's valuable to have this relationship with God, but it's also valuable to have a relationship with the people in the rooms because they think like this. And, and some people have a little more experience than we do. <laughs> especially in dealing with these new guys, right? I mean, when I got newly sober, listen, I thought I knew everything. And I'm just all smart, and I got this, and I got that, and look at me, I'm Miss AA, and if you only knew. And today, I'm so not like that. <laughs> today, I'm like, I know nothing. Y'all are so much better than me. I don't even know why. I'm sitting at this table like, yeah, I've got y'all fooled. Or something. I, I, what? <laughs> we were talking about that on the way over here. Like, uh, do they not know? They could have had somebody really cool. They could have had someone really cool. <laughs> Y'all got stuck with that. Y'all got shortchanged. But um, but the thing is, is that we have to understand that this is all about getting getting 
um, close to our creator, and nobody has the right to tell us how that's going to look. And and that's the cool thing about this, because otherwise there would be some people that wouldn't enter the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is open for anybody. It's a God of your understanding, not a God of my understanding. And I do not have to think the way you think. I do not have to have the same view as you have, nor does the girl that I sponsor have to have the same view as I have. Right? I mean, if we do, that's groovy, that's great and all, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to get you connected to that power, whatever that power may be. My opinions and my ideas may be different from yours. I guarantee you, you can still get sober even though. We're going to talk about the 12th step, and what we're going to talk about um, is not just carrying the message. We're going to talk about um, what it looks like to sponsor people. We're going to talk about what it looks like to actually, actually practice principles in all of your affairs. The very misunderstood and and forgotten piece of step 12. So we're going to start it off on chapter 7, working with others, um, on page 89. I'm going to read a couple things, then we're just going to kind of delve into it. And and what you'll notice about this chapter is the wording begins to change from we to you. There's a personal sense of responsibility to carry the message, to sponsor people, um, to practice principles in your life. Right? We've been kind of doing this as a big group. And and granted, we carry the message as a big group and it's a hoot. But it's your personal responsibility to practice step 12. So it says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. That's it. It works when other activities fail, because we're going to do that. Sometimes you're going to try to shop. You're going to be trying to have sex. You're going to be trying to get your finances in order to try to get right internally. And what the book is telling me is that that's not going to work, but we're going to try it, and then we're going to figure out that we've got to work with others. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. If you're wondering what that message is, it's enclosed in the first 164 pages. Julie doesn't have a message that differs from mine. It's the message. There's only one. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Nobody knows that like the real drunk. Sitting across the table from the other one. We've been misunderstood for a very long time. We've been talked at for a very long time. There's been lots of attempts and lots of failures to get sober. And when something happens when an alcoholic sits across the table from another alcoholic, a connection is made. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, all that sickness and all that drama and all those mistakes become a viable resource and I'm able to pull from that stuff in it and bring it to life um, it says life will take on new meaning to watch people recover these are your 12 step promises to watch people recover to see them help others to watch loneliness vanish to see a fellowship grow up about you to have a host of friends this is an experience you must not miss We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. That's an experience of action taken. I remember hearing that in early sobriety, people going, you are the bright spot of my life. I love newcomers. I thought, y'all are losers. (laughs) If I'm the bright spot in your life, you're in trouble. You know, (laughs) I did not understand what it meant to really carry the message and get an effect produced from that. I'm telling you, you you will catch a spiritual bump off of carrying the message and sponsoring men and women like you never got in a bottle. Never. Mm -hmm. But until you do that, it sounds real silly. I remember people saying, I'd love to go to a treatment center on Friday night and carry the message. I thought, God Almighty, is that what it's going to be like in sobriety? We're all going to be like church ladies having picnics and smiling and talking about how much we love each other? Until you know, you don't know. You don't know. It's the absolute coolest thing ever. 
life takes on new meaning. You may have had a sense of purpose as a parent or as a as a, a co-worker or in some other venue in your life, but you want to watch meaning take place, watch somebody else's life change right before your very eyes. There's nothing like going through the steps yourself. There's nothing like the experience of being changed from the inside out. Help somebody else do it, you'll never be the same. You'll never be the same. The most baffling thing is when people have the experience of doing that and then they stop doing it. I'm like, that's the good stuff. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that. Yeah, everybody's always afraid. I mean, I mean, some of us come in here and we're always so afraid to sponsor somebody and we're always so afraid to take that responsibility on and I understand that, right? But really, who's going to get them sober? God is. It's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to take them through the steps like you were taught. That's what your sponsor's there, too. Your sponsor's there to help you. If you have questions, you call them. No, you don't have all the answers. <laughs> right? And so it's not our responsibility to get them sober. It's not our responsibility to take um, take the success of them getting sober or them drinking again. So we have to be real clear on that um, and say yes. As scared as you are, say yes, because once you do it, then you, oh my gosh, how cool is that? I'll never, I was two months sober when I first started sponsoring, and my sponsor was at a meeting one day, and, and, and my sponsor comes up to me, and he's like, shove, literally shoves me, and, the, and he's like, she needs to do her fifth step, go, take her in the back room. I'm like, excuse me? I don't know who you're talking to for one day. No, I anyway, so I'm like, okay. I take her, I mean, okay, yes. My sponsor asked me, I say, yes, because I'm indebted to him because he's done something for me. He's taken the time and he sat with me and he worked with me. So now I'm indebted to do the same thing, right? Um, at the bottom of that page, though, I want to, I want to real, I, I think we, we, we tend to want to criticize doctors and, and ministers and, and people like that. And, and, and I think it's a real shame when we do that because the book clearly lays it out in not just one page, but several pages. Always cooperate, never criticize them because honestly, that's our lifeline. <laughs> we can go to hospitals and we can give them our name and number and say, listen, if you have a drunk that, cause we can be more helpful to them, right? To the, the alcoholic that comes in the door. If we cooperate with the doctors, if we cooperate with the churches and then we can give them our names and then they can, um, they can help us. If we criticize the way they do things, you won't get asked back. You won't be in the doors. And so now you've hurt who? Yourself and the new man that's walking in those doors. Does that make sense? So be careful with that. Go ahead. Well, it's also another reason to um, not live in the darkness, but tell your doctors, tell your ministers, tell your de- tell professionals that you are in recovery. You are, you will be a viable resource for them. You know, there, there's ministers that have just labored intensively, long and hard, trying to get us in a position to get sober and, and not being able to do that. If you can be a resource and a tool, how cool is that? Right? So if we can get in the fellowships, if you choose to go back to church and you want to get in that fellowship, be cooperative. We don't criticize what they're trying to do in the way that they're trying to do it. I mean, and how many times have we said, well, where do we find them? Where do we, I don't have anyone to sponsor. 
I, I'm a year sober and I still, nobody's shown up in my group. And every time that, I hear this a lot. I don't, nobody, every time someone shows up at my group, everybody attacks them and I don't get to them. <laughs> Thank God that, that, that Bill didn't wait for Bob to show up at a group and that Ebby didn't wait for Bill to show up at a group, right? Or call him. No, we go out. We go search for the one who is suffering. We're not waiting for them to come to us. You'll read again and again on our first approach, on the second approach. That means we approach them. We don't wait for them. We carry this message. Okay. Fine. Fine. So on the top of 90, it talks about how we can approach them. It talks about this idea that if he does not or she does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. Everybody I know has been guilty of this at one point or another. No, you really want to get sober. You really want to do this. Don't do that. Alcohol, one more time, is the great persuader. I remember trying to chase somebody down at the 24-hour club. I said, I'm going to go get her. She hasn't called me, but I'm going to go find her. Julie said, sit down. Sit down. Don't, don't stop people. And you can spoil a later opportunity. See, because when you're in active alcoholism, aren't people around you pushing you? Aren't they prodding you? Aren't they urging you? And they're trying to cheer you along. They're trying to force you into recovery. They'll come at you from every angle. We, as members of Alcoholics Anonymous, do not want to do that. We want to lay it open. And if you choose to join us, fantastic. If you don't, we'll still be here when you come back. And that's so okay. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to um, try to spoil an opportunity trying to persuade you. But there's a couple things I need to know. In the middle of that paragraph, it says, um, let his friend or family ask if he wants to quit for good and if he go to any extreme to do so. Do you want to quit for good? Are you done? Right? And when they start crawfishing, let them go. Let them go. You'll have problems downstream trying to get them to write inventory, trying to get them to make amends, trying to get them out on the firing line. They won't go. If you're not done, would you do these things? Uh, no. No, because this is not the easier, softer way. Tough stuff getting sober. Mm-hmm. So it talks about not forcing myself upon these people. Um, on 91, at the second paragraph at the bottom, it says, Call on him while he's still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. When are you more likely to hear some spiritual truth laid before you? Is it when you're 60 days sober? and showering and eating and, and everybody's happy with you? Or is it when you're busted and detoxing, right? Can't quite get it together. And somebody comes to visit you in a facility and says, hey, buddy, if you want a way out, we got one. They start talking about themselves. See, if you've been talked at for a long time, you understand that you've got to change that approach. I don't go to treatment centers and try to talk at the patients. You guys better do this. And you guys are alcoholics. And you guys don't do that. Right? If we're armed with the facts about ourselves, I can begin to speak about me, my alcoholism, my symptoms, and you can begin to identify. And it's a very different, I'm more likely to approach you. We're like startled deer, you know? We don't, we don't, one tap too hard and we'll be out the door sprinting. If you will talk about yourself, the facts from the textbook, lay it out, they will begin to approach you, but the ones that want it will. And the ones that don't think they got a better way, they, you you won't have to get in the mix with that. Does that make sense? It's a different way to a different way to look at it. And this is when the war stories become very appropriate. When I'm visiting you and you're coming off of a run and you're trying to regain your composure, and I'm saying, "Hey, buddy, I've been there too." You know, my last run looked like you know, blah 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 blah. We start sharing some stories and you start identifying and start getting comfortable because we are not comfortable 
talking about that stuff, at least not initially, with people that don't understand. We're, we're more likely to be dishonest. Mm-hmm. And the book goes on to talk about that, you know, we can't be approached by people sometimes in other professions, by family members, by well-meaning people who want to love us, but we there's a barrier. If you if you don't know what it's like to wake up in the morning, not want to drink, but know without a doubt you're going to anyway, don't talk to me about it. Right? That's kind of how it works. You know, on 92 it says, if he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. Right? So if I'm, here's the identification process. I'm sitting down with this new man, new woman, and I'm sitting here and we're matching stories. And we're matching the mental twists. And I'm going, oh my God, every day I woke up and I resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to pick up a drink. And I did it anyway. And then I'm drunk, right? And so we're sitting here matching our stories. Now, if he's an alcoholic, he's going to go, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yep, 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 yep. That's me, that's me, that's me. You got it. Right? If there's deers in a headlight, <laughs> You might want to say, hmm, might have to come back. Call me later. <laughs> they're not, they're not, if he's an alcoholic, he's going to understand at once. He's, he's going to match that mental inconsistency with some of his own. It didn't say we're identifying with losing our jobs, does it? It doesn't say we're identifying with losing this or losing that and all the unmanageability, right? Unmanageability is, no. The unmanageability is that I can't manage that decision to stay stopped, right? So it's not about all the injuries. Because look, I love how the doctor's opinion says our life becomes the only normal one. And it's absolutely normal for a doctor to go into surgery with a little nippy-poo, just like it is normal for the the housewife to need to go to the grocery store with a little nippy-poo behind her. Just like it's absolutely normal for for the high school student to go into the classroom with a little nippy-poo behind him. It's absolutely normal for the the guy pushing his car down the street to have the little nippy-poo behind him. So here, what do we all have in common? The (laughs) nippy-poo. We have to have it. Right? And so that's a, that's what we're trying to match here. We're not trying to match our external ex, external stuff. We're trying to match and identify with each other the mental component and the physical component. Right? And so we're getting real clear on this. And if we're not clear on this, it goes on to say, if you are satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Then we can dwell on that. From what? From my own experience of the queer mental twist surrounding that first drink. No, are you keep going? Um, it just goes on to say, continue to speak of this. Like we're just giving them a good old case of alcoholism. We just want to reel them in with that. Because if he doesn't understand the problem, he's not going to surrender to the solution. We're not trying to say, oh my God, I got spiritual. Right? We don't start with that. We start with the problem. What's the problem? Oh, my gosh, I can't quit drinking. Oh, my gosh, what? Right? And then we wait. We sit back and we wait. We wait for them to ask, hey, what'd you do? Right? I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I'm identifying. I got it. I got it. I understand that. That's me. That's me. What did you do? And then we go, reel them in. <laughs> Hook, line, and sinker. Right, but what we're doing is, is we've been taught proficiently by, by Cliff not to put the cart before the horse. And Bill did that initially. He went out and told everybody about his white lightning experience, and the drunks didn't care. They didn't. And it wasn't until he got with Silkworth, he said, buddy, you're, you're flip-flopping it. 
talk about the problem, let them identify first, and then hit them with the solution. I mean, haven't you tried to be saved before? Haven't you tried? You ever had that experience? <laughs> identify with them first, and then you can kind of hit them sideways. You got to work with a drunk, and, and it's important. It says, let him ask you that question if he will. If they're not interested, leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Do the kind thing. If they think they can handle it on their own, what do they do with Fred and Fred's story? Mm-hmm. He said, I got it, and they said, do this. Here's my number. Call me when you're ready. Mm-hmm. They heard no more of Fred for a while, and that was the experiment that he needed to have. And we don't stand in the way of them do that. So let them ask you the question, if he will. Then I can stress it freely. And I'm also real clear that you can choose whatever conception you'd like. Just because so-and-so is a Christian, just because so-and-so is a Buddhist, just because so-and-so believes in spirit of the nature of the universe or the whatever, doesn't matter. Can you get with there's something bigger out there that wants to get you sober? If you can, cool, let's move on. Mm-hmm. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. I mean, we've seen it over and over and over. And then you've got somebody on the flip side that's uber-religious, who knows it all. What do you do with that? Well, it's going to tell you at the bottom of 93, if they know all this and they've got convictions and they've got training and they've got knowledge surrounding this, he may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. Right? To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. Right? I know you love God. I know you do. But what does your behavior show? What does your action show? You can quote this, but what are you doing with it? You guys know what I mean by that? I'm a woman that can sit in church, quote the scripture, look in awe at the, at the beautiful, majestic paintings of my creator, and know I'm going to the liquor store tonight. Without a doubt. Right? That's not about a relationship. That's about a longing for, a desire for, but it didn't get me sober. It was insufficient. So I've got to have some action behind it. And it says real clear, we don't represent any faith or denomination. You're free to believe whatever you want to believe, but you've got to find him now. Him, her, it, whatever. Whatever your prejudices are, can we set it aside for now until you can get with something different? Mm Mm-hmm. And so let's say we hook him, and let's say he's like, yes, yes, I'm on board. That's me. That's me. Right? Go to the bottom of 94. It says your candidate may give reasons why he not follow all of the program. How many times have we heard, well, I don't need that. That's so good for you. I got this, um, I, I, God, I sponsored this one girl, and, and, and I was like, okay, baby, this, after we went, worked through the steps, I'm like, all right. We're going to do this Thursday meeting, and, and we do it. We carry the message here. And she's like, oh, I have group therapy at that time. <laughs> I'm like, right on. Right on. If that helps you, cool, go. Right? Cause look, it says we're not. he may have good reasons why he not follow all of the program. He may rebel at the thought of drastic house cleaning, which requires discussion with other people. Don't contradict it. Don't tell them they're wrong. Let them have their way. If they don't understand that they're, they've got, you've got to be able to exhaust all measures before you apply this whole program. See, we don't want you coming in and taking part of the program and not all of the program because that's not going to keep you sober for good and all. We want you to come in and be convinced that you need all of it because that's what's going to keep you willing to stay in the trenches all the time for the lifetime, right? So we're not going to contradict them. We're going to let them go. I see it all the time. People trying to talk people out of leaving. Please sit, stay, stay. No, 
Go! If you have a better plan, go! The book on the next page says, we don't have a monopoly on God. My God, I've seen people go to church and get sober and be happy. That can happen. Who am I to know what they need in their life? That is me playing God. Who am I? To, and I sit there and I hear people badmouth people that leave and yeah. do other things. How dare you? Who are you to tell people that they you know better than God what they need in their life? They might be successful at, at, at doing mission work or doing whatever. They may stay sober and be happy. That doesn't mean that they're not a real alcoholic or whatever. God may just have a different plan for them. I know his plan for me, and it's here. That's all I need to know. Nobody else is any of my business. Sorry. <laughs> never talk. <laughs> never talk down to an alcoholic. <laughs> or get on a spiritual hilltop. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, simply lay out the kit as spiritual tools for him. To, I always tell, you know what, when I'm working with girls today, I always try to impress on them. Um, I am not above you, and I am not below you, baby. I'm going to walk shoulder to shoulder with you. And that is my goal, to walk shoulder to shoulder with you. Please don't ever think you can't share anything with you. Me, please know that I am here for you. Your sobriety is the only thing I care about. We're in this together. And and come on, let's get real. Us women can be pretty darn catty, can't we? Why? Why do we do that here? Why do we? It's like crabs in a bucket. What's the number one offender? Why do we try to cause it in this program? What can run women out of this room more than anything? You think the man getting in her pants is running her out? No. It's the women that are talking about her behind her back. Because they don't think she should be doing that. Or they don't think she should be doing that. Or they don't think she should be wearing that. None of our business. When a woman walks through that door, what does she walk through that door for? To get sober. I have seen women pick up a chip, a birthday chip, and I have seen other women roll their eyes. Shame on them. Shame on them. You don't have a right to judge anybody in this room. I guarantee you, I don't have a right to judge anybody in this room. Because what does a sponsor, what does a sponsor not do? If he's not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. That's why you drop him. You don't drop him because he's not wearing the right clothes or he didn't get the job that you told him to get or he didn't do this or he didn't do that. If he's expecting you to be God in his life, you can drop him. Other than that, you work with him. People try to play God in this room way too much. I see it all the time, and I'm really tired of it. I'm really sick of it. Because what happens is those women and those men leave. 
And they think, AA sucks. AA doesn't work, and those people are crazy, and I'm one of them. And thank God I came back. Thank God I came back. So let's get this clear of what a sponsor is and what a sponsor isn't. A sponsor isn't God. My God, weren't you tired? If you're getting tired with your protege... (laughs) you're playing God. We're all guilty of it. I'm not, I'm guilty. I can, I've been at the point where I'm arguing with the girl. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm debating what I'm saying to you. (laughs) Stop. You follow the suggestions or you don't. Right? I've got these suggestions, the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, the concepts. Right? Go work with another. God will solve your problem. I know that. If you're not willing to do that, I don't have anything else for you. Now, I have life experiences. I have four children. I have a husband. I have some life experiences. I I can share that with you. Some of it might benefit you, but I can't expect you to follow those suggestions. I only thing I can do is expect you to follow the 12 steps and the 12 traditions in this room and out there. Does that make sense? A little circle snap. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, in, so we're talking about what a sponsor's not. Let, let's get clear about what a sponsor is. So back on them. Back on 18, in the italicized portion of the text, it says, But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, specific solution, who is properly armed with the facts about himself, can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So then they're talking about the identification piece. Now they're looking at this. The man who's making the approach, like Julie talked about, has had the same difficulty. Can't put the bottle down no matter what. That he obviously knows what he's talking about. That his whole deportment shouts at the prospect he's a man with a real answer. Right? If you have an answer, you don't have to convince people you have an answer. Your whole deportment oozes that you have something going on. That I have no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful. Guys, these, these, these people you sponsor are not your lackeys. They're, they're not your roadies. They're not, I, I can't tell you how many times Julie and I have sat in meetings and heard people say, well I get, you know, I get my guys to come over and take down my Christmas lights and I get my guys to come over and do, and I'm like, really? Sign me up they're, for that one. They're, they're dying of alcoholism. And you're treating them like they're your helpers. Mm-hmm. It's not okay. That's about your alcoholic ego in the sickest proportion. The absolute sickest proportion. That there are no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. Except for that one. I lecture. <laughs> These are the conditions we've found most effective. After such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. Here's what you got to understand about sponsorship. We have a friend in Dallas, Michael, that used to say this. And I, thought, I used to think, God, you're so dramatic. But he said, you know, the big book was written in blood. Right? It came out of the successes, but more often than not, it came out of the failures. This is why we know so much today about sponsorship based on this text, because they messed it up real bad and recorded it over and over and over so we can learn what to do and what not to do. Right? Because we're not perfect. We don't walk on water. Julie said there's times that we mess up. Sure. But do we need, we ought to have a guiding path. You are not 
the puppet master. Julie and I seem like we get on a, a roll about this. There's, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it, especially with women. If you've ever had a sponsor control you, you'll get real passionate about it, what it looks like to, to have a reliance upon God rather than a reliance upon a sponsor calling the shots. It's not okay. I've had it happen to me for a long time. It's not okay. Find somebody that understands this text that doesn't want to do your job. I remember calling Julia a couple years ago and trying to make her make a decision for me. That is so frustrating because she won't do it. She was like, I don't know what you don't hear me say about go to God. And I'm like, just tell me what you think then. You know, I'm trying to come at her sideways. <laughs> What's your opinion? I'm curious. You know, and she's like, I got to go. Get off the phone. Hey. Get somebody that understands that will drive you back into the book and drive you back into working with others and what the real solution is. Because otherwise, you're so screwed. Because what happens when your sponsor doesn't answer the phone and give you the immediate answer? What might you have to do? Oh, oh we're in trouble now. Because they're not available to you 24-7. My people know. I will shut my phone off. Yeah. Don't call me after. I'm, I got stuff to do. Love you, but let's, let's look at what we're, what we're really supposed to be doing. So it says, if he's sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. I'm going to show you what any links looks like. If I'm going to ask you to do this, we're going to read what it looks like. After doing that, you have to decide for you if you want to go on. You shouldn't be pushed or prodded by your spouse, your friends, the AA community, a sponsor who doesn't have anything better to do and no other protégés, so they're going, by God, you're going to get sober. No, no, if, if you're to find God, the desire must come from within. I will never be able to scare you into sobriety. I'll never be able to stand on the sidelines and cheer you in. It won't work. It, temporarily it could, but frothy emotional appeal just doesn't suffice, does it? Anybody in here have kids? You ever seen your kid look at you with that scared look on their eyes? If that didn't get you sober, why the hell would I? Right? Don't do that. When you're out carrying the message, show them the facts. Don't threaten them. Scare them into trying to get sober. You will never be successful in that manner. And these guys understood that. They said if they think they can do a job in another way, and Julie's already covered this, encourage them to follow your conscience. Hey, if you want to leave and go to celebrate recovery, cool. Mm-hmm. Keep in contact with me. Let me know how that's going. I'm going to encourage you to do that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm outie, 5,000. I'm going yeah. to church. D- I'm done with this. Cool. Let me know what service you're going to. Maybe I'll pop in sometime. We can go have lunch. Stop cutting people off. Right? And we've all done it. We've all, oh, let me know how that works for you. Yeah. Wow. How hurtful. How hurtful. We don't have to do it that way. We just don't. Well, and on top of that, because the book talks about us finding a friend. And I know a lot of people say, I'm your sponsor, I'm not your friend. And I get that. I understand that. But, but on, I mean, it talks about over and over. Um, well, it says it somewhere else too, but on 95, it, where do, where do you offer him? Yeah, offer him friendship and fellowship. What part of that did they not read? I mean, I don't, I really, I haven't done this yet. I need to look up the word friend in the dictionary and see what friend is. It doesn't mean I have to be your buddy. It doesn't mean, like, I love, I, I love hanging out with you all the time and we're going to go shopping and we're going to go to the movies, right? But I can offer you some friendship, right? Um, it also, I mean, it says it, oh, where was it? I just circled it. I, I was going through and trying to find, okay, where is it all the places that friend is? Because it's all over, Right? You made a good friend. If he doesn't want to see you again, at least he knows you, right? All over. Guys, this isn't a, this isn't about me placing myself above you. 
Seriously, let's get over it. We're a bunch of drunks in a room. Who is above one another? <laughs> right? Aren't we all the same? We're all the same. Shoulder to shoulder. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I see what you're talking about. Over on, um, on 94, it says, if your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you've perhaps mm-hmm. made a friend. That's what, that's what she's referring to. It gets real dangerous when we start putting each other on pedestals or we start shoving people way down here and, and, and not circulating shoulder to shoulder like we're talking about. Um, I can guarantee you this. I don't care if, if, you know, I have this many years, Julie has that many years, Angie does, and you've got three months. Every one of us woke up on the same playing field this morning. You either chose to utilize the tools and get on a spiritual path with me, or you didn't. Right? We're all on the same playing field, but when we start differentiating, it gets real, real, real dangerous. Um, just to make that point one more time. Um, but it, it also talks about this idea that... Um, I'm going to let it go with that. I'm going to be, we're going to be friendly and we're going to let it go with that. I'm not going to deprive you of an avenue and I'm not going to deprive you of a last drink if you need to take one. So okay. Go have the experience you need to have. It says on 96, um, it talks about not being discouraged if, if they don't respond at once. I'm going to search out another drunk and try again. Bill did that, right? Over and over and over, continuing to search them out. Um, and if he'd gotten disheartened with the half, first half a dozen that didn't get sober, didn't really want this program, he'd quit. Couldn't, couldn't, can't afford to, to get that. I remember being six months, nine months sober and telling Julie, nobody wants this. Nobody <laughs> wants, she, you know, she said, wait on the one. You wait on the one and that one was Angie. Thank God I waited on her. Right? And she had the same, Audrey, nobody wants this. Angie, you wait on the one. Mm-hmm. Over and over and so on and so forth. Right? I can't be discouraged because who's staying sober doing it? Right? Bill had that. Man, nobody wants this. And Lois said, I don't, I don't care. You're going to keep doing it. I don't care who wants it. You're staying sober and you've never been sober in your whole life. Go get them. Yeah. Go get them. And, and I mean, so we get that one, right? And we, we get the one that wants to start on the path of recovery and, and, and they're on their way and then all is good. And the, and the next thing you know, what do we start hearing? Their problems. <laughs> we always, we always get the phone call. Oh, but you don't understand. I can't make that commitment because this, you know, we say go carry the message and they're, well, well, you don't understand. I, I, da, 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 I, da, da, da. I can't say what's, and, and so I love how on page 98 it says, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts God and clean house. I mean, the coolest thing is, is that we can get sober regardless of circumstances, right? Home or no home. Wife or no, well, the book says husband, wife, no husband, wife. And so the cool, and, and the thing is, is as a, as a sponsor, it's not our responsibility to handle their affairs. Whose responsibility is it? Because if we shoulder their burdens, we will get tired. It's burned the consciousness that God will. God will. And so we just constantly take them back to God. I can't express that enough. You know, I mean, if I'm sitting there and I'm taking on their burdens and trying to solve all their problems, then I'm playing God once again. Um, and so we go on and, and, and we get to, um, we get to go out and carry this message and, and we always wonder what message are we carrying, right? The message is we've had a spiritual experience. And the thing is, is if I ask you if you've had a spiritual experience, 
and you can't say yes immediately, you might want to look at what you're doing. You might want to rethink. Like, have you had a spiritual experience as the result of the steps? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I have. I know I have. If you have to think about it, if you have to stop and look at me like deer in headlights, yeah, I'm going to think not. Right? And so it's kind of like sex. You know if you've had sex, right? <laughs> it's pretty spiritual to some. Okay, so you know if you've had it. It's no secret. It's kind of like that. The spiritual experience, you know. You know. There's no not knowing. And then you know you got it, and then I'm telling you, you want to give it away. And it's kind of like when Bill was sitting in that that bar. Because, see, life is going to hit. Life is going to come and life is going to hit. And it doesn't mean that life is going to hit and it's going to be bad. Life can hit with a very sunny day. (laughs) Not a cloud on the horizon. End of a perfect day. Right? My thought is, see, those are the days that I think about a drink. It's like, oh, my gosh, sunshine. (laughs) Pool. Right? Bikini. I look hot. Not really. Delusional. <laughs> if I had a drink, I might. <laughs> Those are coming off. Oh, put them back on, they say. Not cute. But Bill was there. He was stuck in that spot, and he's like, oh, my gosh. What do, you know, I've got the gay chatter of, in, the, in, the, in the bar, and, and, and the romancing of that drink comes back. And what does he do? What's his next thought? Oh, my gosh. But what about those alcoholics? And what about the families of those alcoholics? Who can I help? I've had that same thought come to me before, right? And so that's the cool thing. That's why we encourage you to work the steps rapidly, to start sponsoring quickly. Because if you don't, then you're missing What's good about the program? You're missing the whole factor of the program. Because it's kind of like I can have a spiritual experience by working the steps and then sit at home. How selfish is that? How selfish would it be for me to sit at home and not give back what I've been freely given? See, I didn't do anything but work some steps to get connected to this power and wake up and not want to drink. If I don't give that back, then I will lose it for sure. I will. I know that because I've tried everything else. Um, so what we do is we teach them to go out and carry the message and, and start working with others um, so that that comes full circle. Full circle. Thank you. So I just want to say real quickly, I know we're running out of time and, and we've got some questions to answer, um, is this this idea of, of practice and principles. Is this is something that we don't really talk about a lot. We've talked about carrying the message and going out to carry the message. We've talked about sponsoring. I want to talk to you a minute about principles. Because here's the thing. I hear a lot of times people say, well, if you if you sponsor people, you'll never get loaded again. You could never relapse. And the book clearly tells me I've got some immunity. But let me promise you this. I've seen people lead a double life in recovery, get real sick behind it, and, and there may be extended periods of time where they don't drink, but do you want to live like that? And eventually you will pick up a drink. I'm here to tell you, I've watched more people do that. 
around, won't tell you who they really are, won't tell you what's really going on. Don't expect to continue to run over the people in your life, not practicing principles, but slide into AA and be spiritual for an hour and sponsor a bunch of people because it makes you feel good about you and be okay. It won't. You, you can't not cheat on your taxes and you can't, you can't do that anymore. You can't continue to sleep around on your, on your spouse anymore. You can't continue to be dishonest with your boss anymore. Now, are you going to fall short? Absolutely. I'm not saying you're, you're here to walk on water. God, please don't misunderstand <laughs> me. That's why we have a tent step. When I mess up, I clean it up. I'm talking about people that aren't willing to clean it up. I'm talking about people that feel justified in whatever they feel justified in. Because why? They're on the firing line. Right? You guys see that? It's real easy to hide out in 12-step work because you're not willing to face the principles that you need to be practicing. And what are the principles? That's a great question. People say, what are the spiritual principles? I remember asking Julie that one time. I was like, hey, what are the principles of the program? Like, real, I'm embarrassed. I don't know this. Tell me. You know, and we're flipping through the book and we're pulling them out. Honesty. Where are you with some honesty and integrity in your life today? Right? When you, I love that Chris always says that when he goes to get a paper, if he accidentally grabs two, he'll circle the parking lot back, park his truck, go out and put that one back. Now, would it really matter? No. Does it matter to him? Yeah. Wonder why. That's about a pathway to your creator. What are you allowing to block it? Right? I don't want to get on a huge rant with it, but it's worth making a point about. It's really worth making a point about where are you with the spiritual principles. If you don't know what they are, let's talk. Let's go find them. Let's, let's look at this kind of stuff. Because you can't afford not to practice them. We've, we've stepped over too many people that thought that they could do what they wanted to and, and just carry the message and they'd be okay, and you can't. You just can't. So it's worth making a point about. Is there anything else? Um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to read this, and then and then we'll get on to the question. It says, you know, because we come in here and we think, oh, my gosh, am I doomed to this? To a life of boredom. If you're bored in AA, you're not sponsoring. You're not carrying the message. Because I guarantee you the book even talks about how there's going to be broken pianos and there's going to be this and there's going to be that. Ask my husband. It was never boring (laughs) around our household. Ask my daughter. She remembers it better. But it says, is there a substitute? Yes, there is a substitute. And it's vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. And there you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired and life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lies ahead. Thus we find the fellowship and so will you. How is this going to come about? You're going to meet these friends in your own community near you. Alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship, and that is so true still today. Right? That is true today. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds, high and low, rich and poor. Oh, I'm sorry, 152. These are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. Lifelong friends. I don't know how long did y'all keep friends. <laughs> I traded. I traded. I was like, they quit, quit calling me for some reason. I never knew why. Must have been that blackout I didn't know I had. <laughs> you will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties. You will escape disaster together, and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. Then... Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. How cool is that? 
Do you know how long I looked for this in my church? Do you know how long I looked for this in my home? In my this, in my that, in the self-help books? And I come to AA and I work some steps and I get connected to this power and I find it. And I find it in here. Because you know what? For the first time I found my purpose. I used to sit in my backyard with a bottle every night, crying out to God, God, what's my purpose? I know I have one. And he has told me today, your purpose is to be an Alcoholics Anonymous, because you are an alcoholic. And your purpose is to pull that woman with a vision of hope. You go into any meeting you want to with a big book. You go into any meeting you want to with a big book. You can take any topic that anybody throws out. You can open your big book and you can come at it with a big book. You can pull anybody with a vision with a big book. This isn't rocket science. But we've got to start pulling people with a vision of hope and not doom and gloom. We've got to start pulling people with a vision and to know that they can recover from this. No, they're not cured, but they can recover and they can live free and happy. We're not always happy. I don't always wake up and I go, oh, my God, I'm so happy today. I'm going to go skip the hula. There are days when I'm not so happy, but I guarantee you I'm free every day. Every day. Every other day I woke up and I said, please, not today. I can't drink today. And today I don't even wake up and think of that. That's what Alcoholics Anonymous can provide, besides some lifelong friends. Come and join us. We got some questions. Go, because I'm going to pull this up on my... She's bossy. I don't know if y'all noticed that. Okay, so here's a question. What if you 10-stepped about someone with a few people, and it was kind of gossipy? I like that word, And if so, is an amends owed, right? So those those are the kind Good of situations question. that I get myself into um, <laughs> when I wanna, yeah, when I when I am searching for an answer. But more or less, I'm searching to gossip. It's kind of what that's about. See, if I've got a problem with with Julie, I'm not gonna pull six or seven of you and tell you about it on the under the vice of I'm trying to tent step. I'm not trying to knock who wrote this question because I get it. I understand that. Go to your sponsor. Go to your sponsor. Go to your sponsor. <laughs> We're all so guilty of Oh, that. my God. I'll hold court under that. I'm just really looking for the right thing to do. Really, I'm trying to badmouth Julie. Well, isn't it any time we're badmouthing anybody and any time we're trying, isn't, isn't it all about pride and we're trying to look better? Isn't that what that's about? So my suggestion is get on your hands and knees and do a six and seven on it. Ask God to remove it because it's true selfishness and it's arrogance of you trying to be right. Quit it. It's wrong. I'm guilty. I'm not going to say I'm not. I've done it. There are people that I don't like, and I made sure that everybody knew how wrong they were. And I was absolutely wrong. And I don't. I, I try my best today not to do that. Absolutely. And when you catch yourself doing that, go make amends with the people you gossiped with. Yeah. For sure. For sure do that. Don't go tell the person that you gossiped about. Don't do that. Unless you continue it. 
then you might have to get humiliated. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we'll edit that. Second. I had to do it. That's why I said. Yeah. That's what helped but me typically, quit. Typically, that's not what we do. If you gossip about me, I don't, don't want to know. Tell me. I don't want to know. No, I don't want to know that you gossiped about me. No, go. I prefer right. to like you. Go make it right with the people you were, you were speaking with. Right, that's what you can do. I've, I've, I've absolutely done that. You got one? Um, well, it says in, in if this out, something is anonymous. Yes, it is. If it's anonymous, why do you use your last names? Mm-hmm. I'm going to read this thing from um, Dr. Bob on, on Tradition 11. This is a great question, a great question. It says, we need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. So let's remember what, ele- what, what Tradition 11 says, okay? At press, radio, and film. Dr. Bob, co-founder of AA, com- commented on Tradition 11 as follows. Since our tradition on anonymity designates the exact level where the line should be held, it must be obvious to everyone who can read and understand the English language that to maintain anonymity at any other level is definitely a violation of this tradition. The AA who hides his identities from his fellows in AA by using only a given name violates the tradition just as much as the AA who permits his name to appear in the press in connection with matters pertaining to AA. The former is maintaining his anonymity um, above the level of press, radio, and films, whereas the tradition states that we should maintain our anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. And it's kind of like if I, if I just say, hey, I'm Julie, I'm an alcoholic, and I leave, how is anybody ever going to look in a phone book and find Julie alcoholic, <laughs> right? That's why I introduced myself as Julie Harvey alcoholic. Um, the reason I have busted a few of my friends' anonymity is because I've had their permission. Normally, I would not bust your anonymity, but there's a few of my friends that, that I'm allowed to and have their permission. Absolutely. If you have made an amends to someone you ran into, do you owe an amends for making that amends out of selfishness? I stepped in some shit. Let me clean it up. Right? (laughs) It happens. It happens. What I mean when I tell you to make an appointment is initially start contacting people. When you get your nine-step amends list, get on the phone, get on the email, get on the something, start contacting people. Don't lay your list aside and go, I run into most of these people on a monthly or yearly basis, so I'll just, you know, when I bump into them, I'll... I'll do the amends. That's what I'm talking about. Now, if there's somebody, I don't know where you are, and I bump into you in another state, I'm going to grab you because I don't know when I can get that opportunity again. So, no, you don't owe amends for doing it out of selfishness, but don't don't purposefully happenstance upon people. That's what I mean by that. Does that kind of make it a little bit clear? Or did I muddy it up a little bit? No, more? you did. Yeah. I was kind of worried about that. All right. How do I get a sponsor who really knows the book? Are they carrying one? Is it highlighted? Well, not everybody has to highlight their book. Um, If you don't know anybody in your group, please grab my card, and I will will find out who's in your area because I do have some contacts. Mm -hmm. So um, anybody's welcome to grab my card anyway. You're more than welcome to call me um, and discuss the big book anytime with me because that is my favorite thing. And you can add, there's a couple little questions that'll, that are dead giveaways. And one of them is, have you, you want to ask the sponsor some questions. You don't want to just go, well, you look nice. I'll do you. No. Have you had a, 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 
spiritual experiences a direct result of working these steps. Anybody that has is like, grab your smokes. Let's go outside. i got lots to share. People that don't, they'll get real weird with you. They'll start crawfishing, and they're like, well, I go to a lot of meetings, and I've been sober for three years, and uh, yeah. uh, that's pretty good. You know, they'll, they'll get weird. They won't know the answer. That's a real easy one to, to kind of gauge it by. But, you know, Julie and I are more than happy to try to connect you. Our Julie sponsor knows everybody since the beginning of time, I think, um, in lots of areas. And we can try to kind of connect some dots for you if we can help you. We'd love to. Y'all have any other questions? Um, I know that um, AAFO is considering as a new form of the media where we protect our so I, would I assume then that the tape of this would not be on the back of the No, it is. But I, I mean, I, no, we well, it's not like, but we give, it's excitespeakers.com and things like that. So you can download the, the, the you know, the tapes on that. But even on the website, it'll say, you know, Julie H., Audrey C., right. on some of those websites. That we, we do get that about the print. In the internet, yeah, sure, but it slides through the cracks sometimes. And I'm telling you what, I'm 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 a busted drunk, and I'm real unconcerned with people knowing it. That's it, you know, Audrey, busted drunk, you know, don't care. You can bust my anonymity all day long, yeah. all day long. When will we receive that in the mail? Uh, yeah, I have to ask Angie that. We don't know I that. I don't know stuff. any of that. Anybody else? It's all over the book. There's protege, prospect, all kinds of stuff. And working with others. Mm -hmm. On page 92, very bottom, there's one. There's a couple different places it shows up. Anybody else? Thank you so much, guys, for having us. It has been a Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.